Colin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Really delighted to have you here. Uh, like I say, often at the start of the show, we've no idea where we're going to go. I have a rough idea. I know that you're uh, a man with military background, police background. You've served. I know you've been all over the world. I know we're going to talk about PTSD. I know we're going to talk about trauma. I'm going to start, actually. It was kind of why we were doing the sound check. I was like, well, well, how am I going to open up this conversation? And just on a gut level, I'm going to do a question that we usually do at the very, very end. And mm. it's if you could take anyone in the world out for a cup of coffee, dead or alive, mm. who would you take? My and dad. Why? Tell me why. I never really knew him. Um, my dad wasn't a good guy. Um, he had a he had a, a very heavy friendship with alcohol. Mm. Um, and um, my mum, I think I believe she's only sixteen when he got married, um, and she just had a really really bad life with him. My mum was from Sheffield. My dad's from here near near Oma. And she saw a side of him that we didn't. So we were only kids. Mm. I was like four or five, maybe something like that. But I remember him really badly beating her when I was when I was a kid. And the next thing, we were taken away, me and I have two other uh, brothers and two sisters, and we were put in a home, in the children's home <clears throat> in Oma, um, a place called Connie Warren. And I think we were there for about six months. And I never saw my dad again after that because we moved to Sheffield where my mum was from yeah. and uh, I never I never knew him till I think it was about 13 or 14 when we came back um, she'd remarried um, another guy from the same town um, moved back again and one day I was walking down the street and this guy jumps out and he goes hey Colin I'm your dad and I near had a heart attack how old were you at that point? about 13 jeez Louise you know and uh, I knew him from well, barely knew him from the age of 13 uh, till 19 when he, when he died. He died two days before my 19th birthday. We spent a little bit of time together with each other. He was a great fisherman. He loved to fly fish. He taught me to fly fish. He taught me to, you know, go camping and set snares for rabbits. <coughs> I didn't really like doing that. I don't like hurting animals. You mm -hmm. know, I didn't even like fishing, to be honest. You know, he would take me shooting pigeons. And that type of thing didn't sit well with me. You know what I mean? Just shooting something and leaving it mm -hmm. kill something to eat it sure if you have to you know not for sport uh, or any of this stuff but you know if your life depended on eating something in the wild then obviously you're gonna you're gonna do what you do to survive you know um and kind of spent a little bit of time with him between the age of 13 until the morning that he died uh i didn't get on with him i never really got on with him there was just that hatred inside of me for what he did mm. to my mum and uh, I just couldn't come to grips with it but if I could take somebody for a cup of tea or something or a drink I would sit him down and ask him why mm. because you never get closure Yeah, you know what I mean and that's what I would want not to find out if he was a good guy he probably was inside everybody has demons we all carry demons of some kind you know what I mean but if you I don't understand when you're married to somebody because that's a commitment that you both make than to beat somebody half to death mm -hmm. I never I, I can't fathom that type of thing yeah. you know what I mean so but if I could take anybody it would be him and I would want to know the reason why he was or oh, turned out the way that he did mm -hmm. you know what I mean? not to exonerate him but mm. to to help you yeah you know what I mean to, to understand try to why push the loop a little bit yeah, yeah. yeah yeah because I just believe that there's some people you can't help and there's some people you can't rescue mm -hmm. and I think he was one of them yeah you know, so between yeah. 13 and 19 then mm. when you saw him yeah 
were you forced into seeing him? Did you voluntarily see him? Because I think all of us in the room have experienced mm. with father figures that extremely strong magnetism mm. to a person that you might even see as a monster. I couldn't care about him, to be honest. Um, he lived opposite where my mum lived because it was just a small village, That's you know crazy. what I mean? Like, my last name is Gibson, so the, the church Bray in Fintana, where I grew up, it was just basically known as Gibson Bray because most of my family, relatives, uncles, cousins, lived on that on that hill. Mm. And my grandfather, James, was quite a nice guy back when he was alive, and uh, he was, like, the person people go to for advice, mm. you know, Um and so it was just, he just happened to live across the street. And it was my mum who kind of pushed us, pushed me, or tried to encourage us to get to know him. Um, and so I thought I'll give it a go, you know. And I tried, I wouldn't say I tried hard, mm -hmm. but I tried. But I just, there was that fine line yeah. that I wasn't going to go over. Yeah. Because of the memory that I had of him. Mm -hmm. pounding her you know mm -hmm. beating her when, when i was a kid yeah and i just didn't want to cross that line because i was scared of what i was going to do to him when i got older mm. yeah of course because i had that in the back of my head and i told him when i'm old enough <laughs> you're going to get it yeah i'm going to do to you what you did to her yeah because my mom's tiny mm -hmm. you know what i mean um she's like five two five three yeah and i just thought um you're going to get a taste of what you did mm -hmm. and that was always in the back of my mind and i was scared because i was really bad tempered as a kid I would have eaten concrete to get at you. You know, honestly, I would have fought with a shadow in an empty room, that that type of temperament, you know. Yeah. But I had a streak in me that nobody would ever change, mm -hmm. you know. And I just, I knew it when I, like, when I was old enough. He, he was going to get a taste of it. Yeah. Because I always dreamt about that. And that that's the only thing, one of the only things in life that really made me cry was watching my mum go through that, mm -hmm. you know. And why? So that was always the thing that kind of yeah. stood in the back of my mind. And, and, and I wouldn't say drove me forward, but um, I think I took some kind of strength from that because nobody was going to ever hurt her again. Mm -hmm. and, and that was it. And that was how my mind was back then. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, And then he died two days before my 19th birthday. And it was a massive sigh of relief. Mm -hmm. To be honest, because I didn't have to go and see him anymore. Yeah, I didn't have to see him in the street. I didn't have to. I never called him dad. His name was William, mm -hmm. and I just called him Bill. Mm -hmm. I would, you know, no, my name. I'm your dad. I'm like, no, you're not. Yeah. So I would never do that, you know. And that really, that made me happy because it really pissed him off. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that was just a, <laughs> that was just a one up on him. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know if I can say that. Yeah. Now, I'm not too sure. <clears throat> but I just really, it it didn't sit well with him. Yeah, he didn't get his own way. And I think that was the first time in my life that I just actually stood my ground mm -hmm. and thought, this is this is good. This is how I'm going to be. Yeah. And I think that that was the first really bad sign of violence that I had saw that I was going to take a stand against. Mm -hmm. And that was it. So. Yeah, him dying at 19, it also meant that you didn't have to kill him. <laughs> Mm. You know, you didn't have to beat him. I used to. I mean, I did. I, th I think like a lot of people in my situation, when you are young, you know, you do wish that. I wish you would die. I, mm. I did wish that on him. You know what I mean? Sure. I, I, like I wished cancer on him. I wished the worst forms of cancer and all that, that he would suffer. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, I don't know if he ever suffered in his life. He probably suffered mentally um, because 
I went down the route of alcohol mm-hmm. myself and uh, and it was to keep myself sane. Mm-hmm. So not that I know what he was going through and I can't, I'm not going to compare it, but he obviously drank for some reason, whether it was to, you know, help with the pain that he was feeling or whatever demons was inside him. I don't know. You know what I mean? So it's, uh, but I'm not going to compare Aye. mine with him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it was completely different. <coughs> so I think at 13, I think that was when, I think that defined me. Mm-hmm. I think from, I think um, I had a friend once tell me, he's passed now, um, by the time you're 13, you're going to be the person that you are for the rest of your life. Hmm. Because I think for, for for guys or boys or men, whatever you want to call them, you know, I think these days especially, um, they seem to be a lot more aware of when I was when I was thirteen. I think things have just changed so dramatically. Um, everybody's too sensitive now. Everybody has feelings now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Everybody needs a safe space and a pillow and a and a, and a bag of marshmallows to, <laughs> and a big quilt to feel good about themselves. Where we dealt with things in a different way. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and it was a fight round the back. Mm-hmm. And then you were friends afterwards. Yeah. These days you don't do that. Yeah. It's a grudge for life. You know yeah. what I mean? So I think by the time I was thirteen. I think that it kind of defined me that I would not be in the position where anybody would rain violence on me, mm-hmm. and because that just wasn't going to happen anymore. So yeah, you know. So, so that um, that temper you talk about, mm. the aggression. Mm. I use the word violence. Where did you start to channel that throughout boyhood? In school. Okay. In school, I went to a, a school called Five Mile Town High School. Um. And it was very Paisleyite. <laughs> I come from a mixed family. Great I come from a mixed family. But we weren't raised with any denomination. You know, we weren't saying, you know, you have to be a Catholic, you have to be a Protestant. I grew up in the UK, and there's none of that's over there. You know what I mean? And when you go to church in the UK, there's no hatred, you know, for your neighbour type of thing, you know what I mean? Unless you're trying to steal your goats or your sheep and all that type of stuff. But when, when I came over here, I was 12, um... And suddenly thrust into this Catholic and Protestant, you know, really weird world of religion. And I I couldn't understand it. And because I come from a mixed family and because the town I grew up in is a very small town, um, you know, we were all friends, we were all cousins and related to each other. Firemontown High School was a different planet, to be honest, because it was very Paisleyite, you know. And the teachers were high school students who'd graduated and went to Enniskillen College and then got a degree or, or whatever was in maths and then came back to teach at that school. Yeah. So the people that you were, grew up in school with were all of a sudden your teachers, you know. And it was really one-sided. And because I was friends with with Catholics, they didn't like that at mm. all. They would separate us, you know, when you go into school in the morning and you go into you know, the, the assembly hall, you know, the Catholics were taken out and they were taken to the library because there was no Catholic area, basically. And I couldn't understand that. So we were separated. And that was a that was a form of separation that I didn't like mm-hmm. because I played with my friends every day. Yeah. You know, we'd, we'd, I'd go to their house now before going to school. And then as soon as I go home, you know, get something, we were out over the fields like rabbits mm-hmm. with each other. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and that was till the, the sky was black. Yeah, and to to see that first thing in the morning where they're taken away and sent to the library, I, I didn't understand it. And so, um, 
uh, there was a guy in school, his name, he's passed now, and I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but he, he wasn't a, I could describe him in a few choice words, but I'm not going to do that. Um, he was a guy called, I'll just say his first name, Graham. He was a big farmer. And Graham was about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, when he was 13 or 14. Big rugby player. Monster. And he took a dislike to me for being friends with Simon, this, this Catholic this Catholic kid. And so Graham got to the point where he would stand behind me and he would punch me in the ribs at the back or push me or somebody would come walking down and push me into, the, into them. And we were in their woodwork class one day and... Uh, He's throwing pieces of wood over, you know what I mean? All this type of stuff. And I just snapped. <clears throat> and I picked up a wooden mallet, and I ran over and jumped up on his desk and smashed him in the face with it. Just in, the, in here, and he had a, a big lump, and he kind of went down. Of course, I got taken to the headmaster. I got caned, I think it was about ten times in the cane. And uh, every time that teacher hit me, I asked him for another one. I just wasn't going to give in, and my hands were swollen really, really badly. And that's when I started retaliating, was about 13. Mm. And I was only then, for some strange reason, just awoken to how people can be for no reason. Mm. You know, that would do it, picking each other, spit on each other, call each other names, you know, and I didn't understand that. Mm. Because that's not how we were raised. We were raised to be to have manners, you know. I called my, my stepfather Sir. I mm. didn't call him Dad. Yeah. My dad was military. My, my my stepdad was military. I called him sir. No dad or nothing like that. And in the morning time, we stood by a bed and made the bed and did all that stuff, you know. And, uh, you know, when I just was suddenly taken out of that comfort zone of being in the UK and brought over to Northern Ireland, the troubles were beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, the hunger strikers and all this type of stuff. And suddenly I was just thrust into this world of uh, weirdness. You know what I mean? There's no answers. All of a sudden, your friends aren't your friends anymore because you, you're either one side or the, or the other. Yeah. And Five Month Town was just a... It was just just a rotten place where mm. it was just one-sided and it, was just, it wasn't good. And, and that's just when I... My temper really started to flare. Yeah. And, and I fought every chance I could get. Yeah. You know what I mean? So... Can I ask a question? Yeah. Um, when... Uh, when I suppose, but uh, who was your first role model, and when was that? I never had role models. I never looked at people like that. I wanted to aspire to, right? You know, I never. Oh, geez, I want to be like him. Oh, yeah, I want to be like him. I just wanted to be like me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be the fiercest person that I knew, that had no fear. The uh, I, I, you know, I wanted to just be me. I didn't want to take crap from nobody. I never went, if I got, I got into fights and I got beat, you know, I was guys that were usually older than me and, and, uh, you know, not the toughest guy in the, in the classroom, but, you know, if anybody gave me crap, I was just like a dog with a bone. I would have chewed your leg off, you yeah. know, and, and you would have had to beat me to death to get me off your leg as a kid. <laughs> or if you beat, I'd come back, I'd come back the next day. With was black and blue. I'd come back the next day with a brick yeah. or, a, or, a, or a lump of stick. Yeah, yeah, and I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd come for you again, you know. Yeah. And then eventually people just began to leave me alone yeah. because they knew I was kind of crackers. Mm, was it Bond, you shall do that. But uh, yeah, I never, I never had a you know, and I, I never remember looking back and having a role model, Yeah. to be honest. So just, you didn't model that behavior on anybody you'd seen? No, no, that, I, that was... 
that was a part of me that was born into me, you know. Um, I just don't think you become that way overnight. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think you, we have, you know, we we have. Excuse me. Male male men are animals. Mm-hmm. We're animals. You know what I mean? And we, you know, our role back in the day was to <clears throat> defend, feed, and protect. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and when you're a kid and you're learning. You know, you say, you know, people say that you learn from what you see. Well, I just saw violence. Yeah. Mm. So I was born from violence. And that's just what I carried in me was was just a really bad temper. And I just wasn't going to let anybody roll over me. Mm-hmm. And so I carried that up until um, I think my early 20s. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just wasn't about to lay down and play dead for no one yeah so role models no interesting wouldn't think so So how does that start to spill over into career choices talk to me kind of like post school Um, how do you start thinking about all that my i have i had a cousin david um god bless him david died a few years ago um david was uh six or seven years older than me and he was in the military and david was a a physical fitness instructor um redhead irish crazy as a box of frogs and acid you know and he had a twin brother andrew but they weren't identical twins you know they were you know paternal yeah, yeah, twins yeah. andrew was very wiry brown hair and could box like anything whereas david was just a complete psycho david would have ripped holes in the door to get at yeah he cried when he got angry you know and he would shake and you know he would explode like the hulk but david he showed me that it was okay to live when he came back um, on leave and stuff, he used to take me everywhere. He'd spoil me, you know. I didn't have much growing up, but you know, he he would he had loads of money. He would take me to Belfast. He would buy me this. He would buy me that. Buy me whatever, you know what I mean. But it wasn't to appease me. It was because he loved me. And he was the first father figure, really father father figure I had. Hmm. And when David, <laughs> when David left the military, um, he moved to Belize, and he married a. Chinese American girl called Sue, and Sue had the best restaurant on an island called Hamburgers Key. And so I was in and out of trouble with the police, fighting, um, stealing boxes of biscuits, stealing tractors in the local field. You know the things that you do as a kid. You know what I mean? Back when I was growing up, that's, that's what Ros- anyway. Roska does that every weekend. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. So I was one of those rambunctious kids that when the when the sun split through the sky at six in the morning. I didn't go downstairs. I jumped out of my bedroom window onto the coal shed and down the pipe like a rat and just away. That was it. I was gone for the day, you know. Like and I'd knock on my friend's door. Because, like a rat. Yeah, That's what I got. A rat in the pipe. So, Very but, good. Uh, David had a younger brother who was my age, um, Barney, um, and his name is Bernard John, and I nick- used to nickname him BJ. And so him and I were the best of friends, and uh, there's 13 days difference in age you know so him we'd be gone we'd be that we'd be like two rats in a pipe we'd we'd be away the whole day so we grew up together and we got in fights together and and you know we we just did literally everything together mm. um we were like siamese twins joined at the hip mm. you know he got in trouble i got in trouble i got in trouble he got in trouble Sony hit him did hit me mm-hmm. that, that type of thing and back then he was my one true friend it didn't matter what he was there and he's like david he was You'd have thought that that Barney was David's twin mm. rather than Andrew, yeah. Because these two guys look so much alike, really stocky, flat, you know, flat hair. BJ he went to the Marines, um, and then he eventually went on to 
the SAS. Um, and uh, yeah, David was like a dad to me. And when he came back and forwards, I was always in trouble. Or he back then we didn't have telephones. We we wrote a letter. Always sent a postcard, and I still write letters now. It's to me, it's very personal. Hmm. Yes, we have a phone that we can. I can text. Say I'm outside, or what do you do? And say you know, do you want to get a coffee? Should we go for pizza? That's all fantastic. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I could go back to 1994 when I was in Belize and saw my first computer, that's just when everyone just went down the toilet. Yeah, but. They would would come back and forward. I'd be in trouble. And when I was 20, I was like that up until I met my, I suppose, my my son's mum. Jenny was from Dublin. I met her in London. And I think I was 29 when my son Connor was born. And that's when my life changed. That's when all the BS and all the crap that I... And all the anger that I held inside changed when he was born because everything that I thought was important was no longer, it didn't mean anything. Was, mm. And anybody that has mm. children mm. will know that feeling. That all the crap that you thought was important and all the issues that you held and all the anger, it, it just wasn't important no more. Mm. You focus on that little, Connor was five and a half pounds when he was born and I cried like a baby mm-hmm. <laughs> at the hospital. And the nurses were betting I was going to cry. You know, and I'm a big dude, you know, and I was a big dude back then. I was, you know, in the gym all the time and, you know, and uh, I picked my son up and he was, it was like a bag of sugar. Yeah. And everything changed. And I cried and I made a promise to him that I would always be there for him and protect him. And all the anger in me just disappeared from the day when he was born. That was it. I just changed. <clears throat> I didn't want to, I didn't want to be around my friends. Mm-hmm. anymore you know what I mean um, not in a bad way but I didn't want to spend as much time I didn't drink I wasn't a drinker I didn't go to the pubs I wasn't out shooting pool all the time or stealing cars or nothing I just liked to walk over the fields mm-hmm. you know I, I, I'm quite spirit. I would take my shoes off and walk in wet grass mm-hmm. like in the town where I grew up there's a there's a nine hole golf course and I would go in the rain and I would take my shoes off and I would just walk on the wet grass and walk through the puddles and find a tree and sit under a tree mm-hmm. and just sit there grounded feeling that squishy muddy between your toes and i would just watch the rain and that might sound stupid to people but it gave me comfort yeah it everything stopped it was like time stopped Mm -hmm. there was i had no anger issues i had no you know there was i was empty Mm -hmm. i just i was happy and then as soon as i moved away from that again i just went straight back down that rabbit hole of just wanting to just rip people's heads off and Mm -hmm. you know and 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 I don't know why that was that way. Um, I think just that being away from people and just being in nature was very was very grounding. When Connor was born, um, I would take him with me. I would when it was raining, I would wrap him up, yeah. and I'd put him inside my jacket, and I would walk the golf course hoping that he could feel what I was feeling, mm. that I that it would come through me and, and and into him, and that he would maybe appreciate it. You know what I'm saying? I would sit under mm. the same big tree. And I would just take him out and I would sit him forward and then let him watch the rain with mm-hmm. me. And he was only, you know, he was only, I don't know, six, seven, eight months old. Yeah. But I was hoping that I could transfer that through me to him mm-hmm. and that he, as he grew older, he, he might feel that as well, like, you know. Um, and unfortunately, the, the, the relationship with Jenny, who was an absolutely lovely person, just it didn't last. So when Connor was, I think, two, we decided to kind of split ways. And I started working with a friend. I was laboring 
doing all the donkey work as, as you did like enough for very little money but it just got me earning some money and it just got me kind of grounded and realizing that you know you have to work to better your life and stuff and so they moved back down to Dublin and she says I don't want to be here anymore and I said okay we'll go down home like you know and I'll come down every few weeks and we'll go from there and it, it just didn't last so I started to go back down that rabbit hole again of fighting mm-hmm. you know what I mean and finding you know not excuses to fight but not walking away from it when I probably should have mm-hmm. and I got into trouble with the police and stuff like that and uh and David came home, uh, just out of the blue. He knocked on my door and he was standing there. And he said, I'm taking you to Belize. Out of the blue. I didn't even know where Belize was. I'd never heard of it. Never, ever heard of it. I didn't I, I didn't know if it was another planet, you know. Um, <laughs> he stayed six weeks and, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna go back, call, and I'm going to send you a ticket and I'm going to bring you out here and I'm going to teach you to scuba dive and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I was like, okay, you know what I mean? And six weeks later... I had a, I had a ticket, and I was on a plane to Miami, and then to Belize. And this was early twenties. This was I was twenty nine at this particular time. So would it be fair to say that when I said role model, this is exactly what I'm talking about? Would it be fair to say that David was the first positive male influence? Yes. That I've when he when when him something? and I actually spent time together. Yeah. When we actually got together. Um, so you were starting to be fathered for the yeah. first time almost at yeah. that age. David always cared for me. David was the yeah. only person who put his arm around me and told me he loved me. Yeah, wow. right. When I was young. And I used What's to the age difference? Eight, eight, eight years. years. Yeah. yeah. So um, bigger brother kind of. And David was always there, you know, except, you know, when he went back to the army again, um, the, the time that he, he could have been, been away for two years, but to me it was two weeks because mm-hmm. he always stayed in touch and he would, I'd always get postcards if he was in Germany. Or if it was in Cyprus or, you know, wherever he was, I'd get a postcard and it'd be a few quid mm-hmm. in an envelope or something mm-hmm. like that. You know what I mean? And so he's always taking care of me. And I felt embarrassed because I didn't want the money. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to be with him yeah. type of thing. I wanted to have the crack and, you know, and, and, and run around with him because Dave was an absolute nutter, <laughs> you know. And, uh, you know, he was fearless. Dave was five foot five. He was fearless. He was as bold as a door. Uh, and for his oh, size and his character, he blocked some light. <laughs> he just blocked the light when he was, when he stopped. But he, he had a magnetism in him that everybody gravitated to. Yeah. He was like gravity. He could walk into a room and people would just kind of stop. And within a few minutes, they, he, he, they'd be gathered around him and listen to his stories. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a great storyteller. Not all of them are true. You know? <laughs> oh, well, every good storyteller. You know what I'm saying? You know. David would embellish a little bit like, you know, but he embellished to to draw people in and, and make people laugh, yeah. you know what I mean? Because I didn't realize throughout out David's life, he was suffering from PTSD, mm-hmm. you know? Back then, when I grew up, I grew up with, you know, um, ADHD and dyslexia, but you weren't, wasn't, you wasn't reckon, you were stupid mm-hmm. because nobody in school took the time to spend the time with you because you were stupid. So I remember being put in a corner you know, and having a bucket, putting my head in maths because maths was just like gobbledygook to me. My reports were Colin can count the cars as they pass the windows, but he can't do maths. He, he can't add two and two, which I couldn't because I just had no, I didn't want him in the classroom. I wanted to be out. I wanted to be in nature. I wanted to be swinging on a rope. I wanted to be, you know, building dens and, 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 and fishing and, you know, just being away yeah. from people, you know. 
And so David could light up this room and, and I would sit there and I would listen to the stories that he told. And I, I wanted to be David. It was then that I knew I wanted to be David. And he was having a massive positive impact on me, you know, because he had been to all these different places and all these different worlds, whereas I knew Fintner and, 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 and the UK and Oma. Mm. You know, we'd go down to Oma once a week on the bus, get a coffee and, you know, maybe see somebody that we knew, you know, or I go down to Dublin, like and see my son or I go to work. And it was just that boring, monotonous, constant nothing where it was the same stuff day in and day out. Yeah. You're like a worker ant outside, bring a leaf in, outside, bring a leaf in, mm -hmm. outside, bring a leaf in, fight, die. And that was that ant, that was the life of that ant. And I felt like just trapped, you know, whereas with David, it was escapism and all these magnificent stories that he told and these worlds that he opened up to me was just amazing, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And when I was like 15 or 16, I loved a, a guy called Jacques Cousteau. And uh, you guys, I, you probably the know who yeah. is, yeah. The Explorer. And I <clears> loved <throat> watching his programs on a Sunday, you know. And little did I know, 20 odd years later, I'd meet one of his sons in Belize, you know. And I would dive the Great Blue Hole where Jacques Cousteau made famous. So this is the, where my life went. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so David opened up this, this, this world of fantasy and wonder and possibilities mm. is the only way that I, I, yeah. I, I could describe that. Because I would sit back at night and think about this stuff and it would drive me nuts. I just wanted to get away. Mm -hmm. And David says to me, I'm going to come for you in six weeks. Save as much. Save your money. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't go out. So I had money in the bank. I had a, had a few pounds in the bank and everything. And I was more determined to get up and go to work in the rain and the snow than I ever was to get out of there. You know what I mean? And I just thought to myself, I'm going to do this. And then David's going to say, I'm sorry, you can't come. Mm -hmm. You know? So I'm one of them people, and I've always been that way. I don't believe stuff that happens. Yeah. You can tell me the rainbow was several different colors in it and I'm going to say it's just black and white mm. until that thing actually happens for me and then the colors will come through and then I'll see all the colors of the rainbow you know so <clears throat> six weeks later anyway they're banging on the door at six o'clock half six in the morning I went downstairs and I thought and there's David <laughs> and he literally kicked my door and <laughs> ran in past me you know what I mean right get the, get a brew on get the, get the, get the tea on and David would drink tea by the bucket, <laughs> not a cup. David would literally just sit and drink a box of tea bags in a day. He would honestly love tea, you know. So I did okay, another brew. So I just the kettle was on twenty four hours a day when David was home. You know what I mean? And he says to me, "Pack a bag." And I just looked at him. He says, "Pack a bag." He says, "We've two hours to be at the airport." And I was sitting Google-eyed looking at him, and I said, "Don't." don't mess me around yeah. he says get a bag let's go and that, that was it wow and we got to belfast we got up to the airport and i was still thought waiting for the the pun to be the, dropped waiting yeah. for the, the thing the, to the drop punchline I'm, yeah. yeah i'm just joking with you you know what i mean and mm. I'm, I'm, I'm no plane arrived we checked in on that plane over to miami you know and the plane was empty literally and uh i'd never been on a plane before you know, and it was a big 747. It's a big flight for your first flight. Yeah, yeah, nine hours, you know, eight, nine hours or something like that. And I just remember um, the whole middle seats were empty. 
And David, he says, I'm going to lie down. And I was terrified to leave the seat I was in. That was my seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody was taking that seat from me. <laughs> yeah. That was it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm sitting there and I was kind of white knuckling. The plane was shaking oh. and it was up and down. Was and I'm like white knuckling. And David, he's, <laughs> he's just out like a light on the on the row across me. Like, you know. yeah. And I kind of looked over and, and I think that was the first time that I ever really wanted to cry. Mm-hmm. I felt, I just felt emotional. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, my manliness held it back. Yeah. yeah I was going to show anybody who was going to cry, you know. But I just looked at him and I thought, you know, nobody's ever done this to me. Nobody's mm. ever done mm. anything like this for me. Not my own family. Nobody has made a promise to me and kept it, you know. Anyway, a couple, eight hours later, landed in Miami. <laughs> and it was like, to me, it was like Disney World. And I was just landing like, and the air hit me as soon as the door opened. Yeah. And it just near scalded me. It was mm. that hot. And back then, I didn't really have much. I had more hair than I do now. But it, it was wet, humid. And yeah. my hair just like a, like a brillo pad. Just curled <laughs> up, you know. And um, so anyway, we got off the plane and we went through, uh, you know, customs as you do and security and stuff. And David's cousin, um, Pauline, a Chinese girl, uh, Sue's, his wife's niece, picked us up, drove us to her house and we stayed there overnight. And then we were to fly down to Belize the next day and David says, uh, let's stay for a few days. Okay, he paid for everything, paid the hotel, you know, paid everything. Could have saved Pauline's house, but David just wanted a bit of fun, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And um, David and his wife had an open relationship. So when the cat was away, David would play type mm-hmm. of thing. And they knew, they, they, they both had that type of relationship, like, you know what I mean? They didn't have kids yet, you know, they just wanted to, you know, they loved each other, but they just also wanted to do their own thing. And that was the first time that I'd ever kind of experienced that type of relationship as well, because to me, when you're with somebody, mm-hmm. you, that was that was concrete, that was, that was ironclad, and it was locked, and the key was thrown away. <clears throat> but David was a real fun guy, and he knew everyone. He knew everybody in Miami, hey, Joe, hey, and everywhere we went, somebody knew him, you know. And I didn't delve into David's personal life. I never asked him any of his personal business. Um, You know, and we went, like, to the cinema, we went to the malls, you know what I mean, and we sat and we... I had the biggest bowl of ice cream I ever saw in my life, you know what I mean? And I couldn't believe this was happening. So a couple of days we spent up there and we went round seeing David's friends and, and I met quite a few of his special forces military friends that he had acquired over the years in, in the military and stuff. And uh, then two days later we arrived in Belize and the heat, I thought Miami was hot. The door opened on the plane and I thought my face fell off. <laughs> I just thought I just melted. The breath was taken out of me and I just stood there and it's just jungle. Wow. Jungle. When you fly into Belize, it's two parts. You've got a runway down the middle. You have the airport on one side and you have the British Army camp on the other. So you've got APC, which is airport camp, all the British Army, special forces, Marines, um, RAF were down there when I was there, um, all on one side and you could see it, the big army camp, you know. Then there was a... A big American plane, I think it was a, um, I don't know, um, the big C-130s, all these guys were getting out and then just taking up positions on the, like on the tarmac and all the guys would come out and the vehicles would come out and then they just drove across and entered into the camp, you know. And then the smell of the sea hit you. If you've ever smelled ocean, that salty, seagrassy smell, I was like, Jesus, what's that? You know what I mean? It stank. I was like, oh my God, you know, I thought it was sewers, but it was just seaweed. I was like, yeah, you know. <laughs> and uh, a big slap on the back of the head from Dave, you know, 
let's go. <laughs> you know? And uh, we got through customs again. And <clears throat> we just we, we got into this rickety vehicle that was held together with string and chewing gum. You know, <laughs> uh, it was just all rusted and, and beat ties. up and cable ties. And <laughs> well, back then probably with cable ties, no. lumps of bale of twine and, Thanks, you know, all this type of stuff. And, and it was fantastic. The window was in the car, didn't, the guy didn't have any windows, so you were blasted by the hot air. Obviously, it didn't need an AC because there was no windows yeah, to yeah, keep yeah, the, yeah. the cool air in anyway. And this reggae music was playing, and Bob Marley, No Woman, No Cry, yeah. you know, and I thought it was brilliant. And I did always like Bob Marley as a kid, and I thought, wow, this is fun. And I was, we were driving down the highway, and the river was on one side, and the jungle was on the other, and the sea was on the and I was just, I was gobsmacked. I'd never seen anything like this no one knew except on TV that this, these places existed mm. and then we got to um, we got to the municipal airport the smaller airport and then we got on a, what's called a puddle jumper a little um, I think it was a 170 Cessna and it was like this I thought the pilot was drunk <laughs> to be honest you know and there was eight of us crammed into it and all the luggage and stuff and he had to turn and I remember him turning into the wind to take off you know, and he clipped the fence as he was going over the fence, <laughs> oh this chain link fence. Goodness. And he's like, hold on, you know, and David, he's just sitting there chatting. David speaks Creole, watch your boy, like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he speaks fluent Creole. And he, and he all of a sudden he just transformed into this completely different person. If I hadn't knew that David was white and sitting behind him with red hair, I'd have thought David was Creole or black. Mad. He just transformed, you know, um, and I was like, who's this person? You know what I mean? But he got on with everybody. He could talk to anybody, you know, he could, you know, he, he metamorphosized from one person into these, all these different characters yeah. and he fit in wherever yeah. he went to, you know, he, had, he, he was like, I used to call him the chameleon because David could fit in anywhere, you know, and um, he chatting away to this taxi driver who obviously knew him. And so anyway, we, we uh, got into the plane and next thing we're gone, we took off and the plane had to circle to climb. It had to hit the thermals. Right. And I, I didn't fly back then. It was a few years later that I ended up taking uh, lessons to, to fly and stuff. And I didn't realize that uh, the, the 170 Cessna was so small, you know, uh, and it was we were actually heavier than was allowed in the plane. So the guy was circling, corkscrewing to, to get height. And so we got up, I think it was to about five or 6,000 feet, and then everything was just amazing. The sea was so blue. I had never seen colours like these at all, you know. All of a sudden, all you know, the, the airport went and then there was jungle. And then there was blue, turquoise, blue and dark blue as the as the water got deeper and deeper. And then all these little islands were just popping up here and there and they just looked like emeralds, mm. just in a blue in a in a blue setting. It was it was amazing. And then the horizon, you know, it was amazing. And I sat and I I think I held my breath for the whole thirty minutes. Just looking out the window, <laughs> just glued to the. I remember, like on a bus, my head was glued to the window, trying to see down as much as I could. Sweat <laughs> just the big stain on the window, like you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, David, he's in his own world, just chatting away to the pilot, and uh, the flight seemed to last forever, and it was just uh, amazing, absolutely amazing. And then we, I could hear the pilot saying, "Okay, you know, guys, uh, we're going to start descending now into San Pedro." So that was the town that was on the island of Ambergris Key. And Burgers Key is 36 miles long, and it's all jungle except for San Pedro, which is uh, St. Peter in Spanish, and this little town 
at the butt end of this island, you know, and that was it, you know. And you saw the runway and you saw this little strip of 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 town basically and houses and the rest was just all jungle and, and you know and then you could see the the little hotels and everything it was i was i couldn't speak couldn't speak then we landed this really bumpy disney world type of roller coaster you know type of a, a landing and uh, i was just glad that we got we got down and we got out and uh, i couldn't speak dave just looked at me and let's go Wow. That was it, and my life began. Began? Began. See, we, we are 43 minutes into our podcast. We have touched so far childhood, Belize, yeah. and there's about, I don't know how many hours left of basics to cover. Yeah. Of just, I, I'm really well, upset. I, I already, upset I, so much I already um, made a, a thing in my head where if you're happy with the call, not just to make it a two-parter. Yes. Please. Yeah, if you're comfortable, yeah, if you're yeah, happy yeah. enough. Because I, I, I'm yeah. in, I'm in no, I've no desire to, to go fast here. Yeah, you know, I'm enjoying this. And sorry if I'm talking too much, but no, no, Roscoe's on the edge of his seat. Roscoe can hardly even produce yeah. properly. He's so captivated. Like, that's the thing. I relate to a lot of things that you've been saying and all yeah. that. And the fact is, I find your story extremely interesting. It's <laughs> so it. good. I cannot get over it. You like, haven't heard. I know, and I want to hear more. This should be definitely a two part thing. This, this is like the first. First act of Oppenheimer. It's like there's still a lot more to yeah, go. This is a three part series. Yeah. This is a series. Yeah. So it was. That's just when. That's yeah. just when David showed me that it was okay to live. Yeah. That mm. it was okay to enjoy life, and that there was so much more mm-hmm. to life that I had yet mm. to enjoy and and to discover. Mm-hmm. So that was just the beginning of when I found happiness. Mm-hmm. When I could just say that. The only place that I've I can put my hand on my heart and say I was ever really happy was Belize. Mm. I've never been happy, really anywhere since leaving leaving Belize, and that I left in '98. So I was down there for six years, mm-hmm. over six years, and um, yeah, it was it was magic. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely magic. You know what I mean? And you were so the main thing you were doing there was scuba instructing. And I was and scuba instructing, and then I got into yeah. um, flying after that. Yeah, I got into flying and stuff, but I got into military stuff down there as well because um, David had loads of friends who were special forces, ex special forces and stuff, and they liked to go camping in the jungle in Belize, and I would go along with them, and that's when I kind of, you know, discovered that I just wanted to be something else. Rather than just, I loved scuba diving. Don't get me wrong. Uh, there's a movie called Cocoon. I don't know if you guys have it's ever funny. seen it. It's oh, an yeah. old, old movie. Yeah. It was a two, it was a two movie, and it was about these old guys in Florida that discovered these giant pods, and it's from under aliens. Yeah. And Spoiler. The the, <laughs> the aliens kind of when they swam in the pool, they kind of got invigorated and felt yeah. a lot younger. Well, the boat that was in that movie, we got, we ended up getting Mad. the Manta Four. And no way. Yeah, yeah. David and there. there was a, there was a guy down there called Dick Davis, and Dick I think back then was fifty odds, and Dick came from Texas money. He was a guy was a multimillionaire, and um, he walked about in a pair of shorts, a raggedy t-shirt, and Dick was the easiest going dude you could ever imagine. You wouldn't have thought that this guy had money to just put on a fire and light. You know yeah. what I mean? His house was just a mediocre house. He yeah. didn't live in a big flashy mansion. He drove a golf cart everywhere, you know what I mean? He, you know, he, he wore a pair of sandals, you know, um, Jesus Creepers, as we called them back then. Jesus and then, um, you know, you would meet Dick and, you know, he would buy a coffee and you would sit and talk. He was great into judo. 
and I was big into judo back then, so we would, you know, do some training on, on his judo mats under his, under his house and stuff. And uh, Dick was also a pilot, and, you know, he, he uh, said one day, he said um, he wanted to get into shark diving, and I just wanted to try everything, you know what I mean? And Dick says, oh, would you be interested? I'm like, yeah, you know what I mean? So he made a shark cage. <laughs> he welded a shark cage together, mm. okay? Now, I hadn't been to the Blue Hole yet, okay? <laughs> so we just took it out past the reef. In, on the island, um, the island is 36 miles long, and you've got the beachfront, and then there was a river that separated the South Island from the north. And there wasn't really much up north except jungle and, and people. Well, Madonna had a house there. I remember seeing her when she was down. Kelly Le, Kelly DeBrock and Steven Seagal paid a visit to the island. Tupac, before he died... In 95, I met him on the island. Tupac, Snoop Dogg, and Bobby Brown <laughs> came down. Before he died, not after he died? Yeah, no, they, they <laughs> wow. came down, and wow. they were on the island, um, and they were playing basketball with the local guys. Dang. There's a photograph of us somewhere, black and white. Um, another good friend of mine, Gary Cooper, um, who now lives in Thailand, and Gary was a scuba instructor, and he was a big influence in teaching me to dive, as well as David. Um, and... Uh, so anyway, Dick just decided one day he was going to go up to St. Petersburg in Florida and buy the boat. And it was after the second movie, Cocoon, The Return. And uh, Rachel Welsh's daughter, Tani, had been in the movie and I slept in her bed. She wasn't in it at the time, mind <laughs> you. In the cabin, you know, where she was, that was when I worked, because I worked in the boat as a dive master. Yeah. And uh, the boat was then, we used to take people out to the Blue Hole for four or five day scuba diving snorkel trips. And so you go out to a couple of the atolls, you do a few dives, a few snorkels, and then the the morning of your last day, you would dive the blue hole. And when I when I first got there, I'm not scared of anything. I'm not scared of heights. I'm not scared of depth. I'm not really. It doesn't really bother me at all. Um, when I went into the blue hole on my first dive, I went with a guy called Oliver, and Oliver was a local guy on the island, a, a young black kid, very tall, very handsome guy. Um, a bodybuilder type dude, you know what I mean. Into his fitness, one of the nicest, one of the nicest guys ever. And Ollie was the the dive master on the boat, so he was in charge of taking people diving, I give a little briefing and stuff. And David says to me, "Okay, you're going out with Ollie." You know, he's, I was already by that stage a dive master, and he says, "Right, you're going to go out with Ollie, and you're going to learn the ropes on the boat, and you're going to learn the blue hole. And the blue hole is just a bounce dive. You know, we would go to." 100 feet for 10 minutes. So basically, you would just get in, you'd give each other the thumbs up, the okay or the okay, look at me, let's go down, deflate, and away you go. And you would get down to 100 feet as quick as possible. And at 100 feet, you've got giant stalactites and stalagmites like this. And these things are 60 feet in diameter, okay, and maybe 100 feet long. Wow. And coral grows at an inch a year. So you, the Blue Hole apparently was about 60 million years old. So I, I'm not too sure on, on the details, but apparently it was a collapsed cave and a roof fell in, and it was a perfect circle. It's so big they see it from space, and it has coral around it, and Jacques Cousteau dynamited two parts of the coral to get the Calypso in and, you know, see how deep it was. And so as you dove in, it was sand that kind of went like this, and it was like diving into a pint of Guinness is the only way I could describe it. So it's the thir first 30 feet is light. And then you get down to the edge of the sand. And then the sand would just, it was like a waterfall. The sand would go down, would just go over the edge. And then you went down as quick as you could, and it was black. Mm. So a flashlight 
was no good down there because you couldn't see colour and you could barely see the light. So you just went down and you just you could see where each other was. You could hear people's bubbles. You could hear them breathing, tapping on the back of the tank and, you know, and that type of thing. But you would take a little swim in through these satellite and then you would surface. Then you would spend three minutes or 30 feet in degas and then go up on the boat. And the first time I did that, I panicked because I couldn't see anything below me. Mm-hmm. And it was just like black, like this looking down. And uh, I saw, the first time I went in there, I saw a flip of something white. Mm-hmm. Shark was the first thing I met. And it was a manta ray. Mm-hmm. That Somebody got a picture of it and, and it turned. And uh, I thought it was a flip of the belly of a shark. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, that was the first time I kind of felt helpless. I couldn't defend myself. I'm, I'm going to drown if I, if I do anything. Somebody's going to grab me, you're going to pull my regulator and my mask off and everybody's going to panic. But no, past all, we got up back up. People said, oh, did you see the manta ray? And did you see this? And I was like, I thought it was a shark. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but that was the first time in the blue hole. And I had then realised that that was the first one of my wishes to come true, was to dive in the blue hole. What Jacques Cousteau had mm. seen on TV when I was a kid, I was about 15 or 16. And things just got better Wow! after that. That was just one of the many things. And I remember that night when we pulled into a place called Half Moon Key, and it has a lighthouse on it, and it has a sanctuary for birds called booby birds, blue-footed booby birds, and they're very rare. And I think they're only found in Belize, these birds. And there was a, um, there was a, a little platform built up into the trees so you could stand and you could watch them, and people go up and take photographs, be very quiet. And everybody was going down. It was about quarter of a mile away from where we pulled in and the, the, the chefs on the boat were preparing uh, key lime pie and coconut pie and rum and coke and food for everybody because it was the, the evening time and then the music we're playing and we, there was about we carried 22 people on the boat you know so the boat was 54 foot long and 20 foot wide it's quite a big boat and um, cabins and, and, and deck space where people slept and so we pulled in and these guys were preparing and everybody went down to see the baby birds while this was being done and I just didn't want to go with them. As soon as they all came back, I just went off on my own. Mm. I wanted that space on my own, you know. Yeah. And I went down, and, and it was just getting dark, and I just remember sitting there, and, and, and all, the, all the birds just suddenly stopped singing and squawking, and it was deathly quiet, and it was the most peaceful sound ever. Mm. But when I looked up, you could see every star in the sky. Mm. There, was no nat- there was no false lights from the houses. Mm-hmm. So the moon was rising on one side and it was just, it was, I don't know, it's like everything you would just see in a movie. Mm-hmm. It just started to light up the water. Like it was a big yellow moon um, and and then all the stars were there and you could look up and you could see everything. It was amazing. I just lay on the deck and just want, didn't want to leave. And I laid there for about 20 minutes and, and an alarm hit, oh, I better get back. Mm-hmm. And then it got back and then the party began and everybody was having a good time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was brilliant. And uh that was, you know, David gave me that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and when I went back in the, the next the, the next morning, he just looked at me and he went, well. <laughs> and, and I just says, yeah. And he went, that's just the beginning, Carl. Wow. And that was it. So very, very, I've loved hearing some of the things that you've, you did in Belize, and I'm sure there's like a million yeah. things more. Yeah. I'm interested now in... What happened to you in Belize? How did you change? Um, what did you become in those six years? I found me. I found a very calm... I found the complete opposite of mm. the monster that 
<clears throat> I got to love myself to become, you know what I mean? There was nobody threatening me. People spoke, hey, how you doing? Didn't get that here. What are you, what are you looking at? Mm. You know, it was, you know, it was what I grew up with, you know. And I'd be walking downtown and people would say, oh, you were the diver on the boat yesterday. What, what's your name again? And then people wanted to, oh, you have an accent? Where are you from? Because mm. I wasn't American. You know, I didn't have an American accent, you know. Grew up in Northern Ireland. Um, where are you from? Oh, you're Irish. Oh, you guys are crazy. You know, you guys, I'm like, do you know Joe Blow, um, you know, from Dublin? And I'm like, uh, no, I don't think I'm... Because everybody thinks yeah. in America that you know somebody. Yeah, yeah, You yeah, know, yeah, they yeah. think um, the, 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 you know, that Northern Ireland is tiny, which it probably isn't, you know. Um, but, oh, yeah, do you know... So no, 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 no. Do you know... No, 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 no. I haven't met him yet. You know I, I've I mean? been asked three times in the States, do you know such and such? Yeah. And I have known yeah. every single... All three of them. Have you really? Yes, yes. <laughs> the first one was Stuart, Stuart Townsend or Townend. Crazy. In Hollywood. Man, you're, you're the one that's keeping the stereotype alive. Yeah. It's, it's guys like me. you perpetuating this myth. That's what it is. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, it is that small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I found, like I found that, I found me, I found, I, I found a piece of me that, It just made me realize that, that it was okay to live. Mm. You know what I mean? You know, or this uh, is what life could be yeah, like. Yeah, this is what life could be like. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I could get up in the morning uh, and hear the, the waves. The reef was a quarter of a mile away. Belize has the second largest reef in the world. It's 180-something miles long. comes from Mexico, goes all the way down, and then down to Guatemala. And it's all blue water diving in Belize. It's all canyons, finger canyons. So when you go down, mm. you can go down to a canyon, and then it, it goes to a sandy bottom, and then it's 3,000 meters straight down, you know, and um, did some crazy diving out there as well. But it was blue water diving, and the fish, and the colors, and the corals, and it was just unreal, absolutely unreal. Um, so you could dive, uh, like on a good day, you could see the 60 feet down to the sand. Crazy. And the water was so blue and clear, you know, and you couldn't wait to get in. The water's 80 degrees most of the year round, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So you could... I never dove in a wetsuit. I dove in a pair of shorts. Mm -hmm. And that was it. A pair of shorts, uh, a set of fins, a mask and a scuba tank. I very rarely um, wore like a wetsuit. The only time I would wear a wetsuit was jellyfish season. Mm -hmm. There was a jellyfish called Pika Pika. And it's a thimble jellyfish about the size of your thumb. And they sting. They lay eggs in the water. And I didn't realize uh, how badly that they, they, they hurt. And they, I remember David telling me one day, David goes... Uh, Pika Pika called, you'll see it, it's just like vomit on the top of the water, it's just vomit, the colour of vomit, and it's um, millions and millions of these little jellyfish that are just, but they lay their eggs, and the, their eggs stick to you, and they, and they sting, Oof. and David says to me, pee in your wetsuit, hmm. pee inside your wetsuit, I'm mm -hmm. not peeing in my wetsuit, because it stinks, you know what I mean, yeah. pee in your wetsuit, Carl, or I'll be peeing on you when you come out. <laughs> yeah. like, Thanks, Dave. And he, and he was right. And I didn't pee in my wetsuit at all. And I came up and what I tried to do instead was I took my regulator out and I blew bubbles mm -hmm. to clear them. Mm -hmm. And so I went up through this space and then they went down my wetsuit and I was stung from across my chest, my back, my neck, all up to the back of my head um, with these stinging eggs. Yeah. And David peed on me. And then he scrubbed me with one of those green barrel pad things because urine, you know, or vinegar. Mm. We didn't have vinegar. Yeah. We, had, we had Dave. <laughs> <laughs> vinegar so Dave. Dave. Dave was just sitting in the shore, just drinking a few gallons of water. He he'll be up yeah, soon. Yeah, he'll be up soon, so I'll save it. So he, he peed on, down my back. Is it ammonia? Is that what it is? Yeah, ammonia. Yeah. And then he scrubbed me, you know, and I was quite sore for a good week. 
you know, not just me, but everybody, you would dive anyway, you know what I mean? So, but uh, yeah, life kind of, life just got better. But I just discovered a part of me that I didn't really think existed. Mm -hmm. And I just found peace and quiet and I could walk into town and people generally wanted to know me mm -hmm. and wanted to talk with me and, and didn't, you know, didn't grow up. So there was no animosity, you know, there was no jealousy about what you were doing there because I got a lot of that from my family because I used to write letters and then you had to get photographs and it was two weeks to get your photographs, you know, developed. Mm -hmm. And then it was three weeks to send it from Belize <laughs> to back to Northern Ireland. So my family didn't believe me, the places I'd gone and the things I was doing. So I took photographs to prove what I was doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? There was a lot of jealousy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because um, I was the only one who left home, mm -hmm. you know. And so I was continuously proving myself what I was doing and, and where I was going. And, and you know, and it, it, it was a really, really kind of like a sad feeling to think that the people I grew up with wouldn't believe in me and were calling me a liar. Mm -hmm. And then I just kind of thought, David says, look, listen, their opinion of you doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Nobody's opinion of you doesn't matter. You're out here now. You just live your life and enjoy yourself. You know what I mean? And just, you know, be be you. And uh, the, the same thing happened to David. He found himself when he went to Belize, mm -hmm. you know, and he be, and he was happy. He became a, one of the highest rated paddy scuba diving instructors in America. Wow. And he, he brought that down to Belize and he, and he built his business down there um, called Dive Dreams. And his motto was dream you dive, dive your dream at Dive Dreams. And he ended up getting a, a really good dive scuba center going. He put me through basic open water, advanced water, you know, rescue diver, in diver water, medic, assistant instructor, instructor, blah, de, blah, de, blah, you know what I mean? I ended up working and ha helping to run the, the local um, hyperbaric chamber on the island as well with a, a lovely guy called Dr. Otto. So I got into hyperbarics as well, you know what I mean? Um, to understand more the effects of people who were getting hurt by the bends and, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, bubbles trapped, cerebral spinal and all this type of stuff. And it, and I just, I developed, I flourished. I, I was like a sponge wanted to learn. And the more I was showed, I couldn't retain anything in school, mm -hmm. but because I was doing something I loved, I could remember everything that yeah. I, was, I was being taught. And I just, I was, I, you know, it was brilliant. I, I, I didn't really have much faith in myself um, academically mm -hmm. at school, but when I got out there and I got into scuba diving, there probably wasn't nothing I didn't know because I got every book, I read every book, and then I would speak to other instructors and I would learn something new. Or I'd go and they'd say, yeah, go and dive with Larry Parker. And Larry was a quite a famous American guy, you know, um, had a place at Victoria House, you know, and he had a great diving centre. And I, would go, I met Larry and I'd go out and work with Larry on his boats and he would learn me something different. Then he brought Entenox and Nitrox and all these other different types of diving down. I got into this type of diving, yeah. mixed gas diving, and I flourished. Yeah. And I just learned, and then I, I realized my own capacity of how capable I was of learning when I was told I was stupid yeah. Yeah. in school. You never amount to nothing. <clears throat> Amazing. I said to myself, I'm going to go back to that school one day, and I'm going to tell them they're all wrong. Yeah. You know. And 30 years later, I'm back and give it to them. No. I think that's a good place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good place to yeah for part one for part one. Yeah, that's good. Feels natural. Yeah. Solid end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My next, right. if you're comfortable, come back in. Call. Absolutely, I'd yeah. love to. Yeah. I, I uh, the next, the next. Episodes. I can talk forever, mate. Mate, I can I listen. Can I can listen forever. forever. That's what we love. That's what we love. I'm very blessed. I have to say, like, I'm very blessed um, because David, you know, he opened up this world 
to me. Not just me, he helped other people. David just didn't help me, you know what yeah. I mean? He helped other friends as well. And, you know, David was a great teacher. You know, he, he was a, the life lessons that he learned was, was amazing. I used to think he was full of it most of the time. <laughs> but it was only later on in life that I realized that he was really good mm-hmm. at teaching, mm-hmm. but not forcing an opinion on you. Dave was very political. He's into American politics. And Dave would argue, he'd argue with the president of the United States and he'll win. <laughs> but he was really passionate. He, he was passionate about life, everything to do with life. And he was one of those guys that would, you know, within five minutes of talking to him, you learned something. And he wasn't pretentious in his way of doing it or pushing an opinion on you. He would say something and, and then you would think about it and you would think that you thought of that yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? He was a great positive inf- influence and, yeah. and he touched a lot of people and he helped a lot of people. Yeah. He brought people, local guys from near poverty and taught them to dive and yeah. helped them set a business up. Yeah. You know, and I I probably met two people in my life since him that have done that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So um, It's class. Yeah. At know. the risk of sounding like a TV show. Uh, next time, yeah. next time, best of Belfast. Uh, the opening question I think should be: um, Why did you leave Belize, and what what took yeah. you out of that paradise? Yeah, and uh, we'll see. See where that takes us. <laughs> that laugh is so mysterious. That's gonna be a good. That's gonna be a good one for you. Keep this for next time. Yeah, um, next time. Everybody Just needs a Dave. Belfast. Yeah, you know I miss him. Dave died. Yeah. Uh, he died in really bad circumstances Fuck. a few years ago. Dave, I taught Dave to be a paramedic. Because I'm a, I'm a qualified paramedic, a tier two paramedic, which I was doing in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and, and a few other places. And um, <laughs> Dave and I, he was a first aid instructor. So he set me on the path of doing first aid. And then when I left, when I left Belize, um, I just went a different, I just went a different path. And I started getting into more tactics and, other other areas and stuff and um incorporated medicine um remote medicine and and all this other stuff into this other world that i moved into Mm -hmm. and uh dave had been in iraq as well and a few other places but he wasn't a paramedic he was a medic and i says right you've done for me i'm gonna i'm gonna train you now Mm -hmm. and i trained him as a paramedic and, and got him certified as a paramedic and then his life took a a different turn mm. as well, like you know, and we separated. Yeah, and went different paths, same paths but different roads. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so Brilliant. that's another. Colin, thank you for today. Really well, look forward to the next time. No problem. Thank Good. you for having me on. It's been, it's been brilliant. I haven't really <clears throat> spoke about this stuff to anybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Lot of the few people I did tell it to just didn't believe me. Yeah, you know, because it is, it is unbelievable un- in the in the correct term of the, yeah, of the you word. Know what I'm saying yes. because I haven't met anybody that that I met that's done what I've done yeah you know and I don't mean that to be pretentious or sound like inflated Mm. ego or nothing but my life has been it's had ups and downs Mm -hmm. don't you know don't it's not all been sunshine and rainbows but for the most part it's been it's unbelievable Mm. you know and as I've in life I have very few regrets but uh, I don't regret my life at all you know so it's great yeah Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, boy. No problem. See you next time. Yes. Ta-ta. I was in Iraq, and uh, I had this driver. Um, Louis was his name. I say he was because he's no longer here. Uh, and I watched him one day washing himself, and he used to go to this little trough, and because of the Muslims, 
they would wash their hands and their feet. And uh, I just kind of inadvertently stopped one day and I was, I was watching him do this. And he called me over and uh, he said, sit down. And I sat down and he took my, my boots off and he, he pulled my feet over and he sat and washed my feet for me. And I was just totally blown away. Wow. You know, and he never said why. And I didn't say thank you because I didn't know what to say. But that's what he did. Mm. And I still, to this day, don't know why. I guess one of the most intimate things that can you can ever do for somebody and that you can ever receive. Yeah, well. I, I got a lot of attitude from a lot of guys after that. You know what I mean? Um, other contractors, because a lot of contractors don't like the Iraqis or Afghanis or the people that they're in the country working for. There are good and bad guys. There are really bad guys. I've had the experience of that. But there are also a lot of really, really good guys. You know, people who follow their religion. You know, you know, oh, the Quran's the devil's book. You know, I've read the Quran. I've read it, and uh, you know, but I've never read the Bible fully. You know what I mean? But um, I was given the Quran in English. I have cousins who are Muslims, half you know, Muslims, and um, I, I got this, and I read it, and uh, it was really weird because. I wanted, if I go somewhere, if I go to a country that I know is going to be, most of the countries I've been to are hostile. I haven't really been to a country that hasn't or isn't except on vacation. And then you're always looking out for something to go wrong, you know, and you always see something that goes wrong. But I would always try to study a bit of the language and learn a bit about the culture because I think it's ignorance to go somewhere and not do that. Mm. I just think it's pure ignorance, really. You know what I mean? Most of the places I've been to have just been for cash. I didn't really care about uh, what was going to happen, what could have happened, or, or, or what did happen. Um, it was just for money. It was to build my lifestyle, you know. Um, that I don't know whether that's good or bad in people's eyes, but that's just the way that it was. And uh, when I was getting my feet washed, I was really embarrassed. I was totally blown away by this and I was kind of like, you know, like looking over my shoulder and, you know, to have another male wash my feet, you know. And uh, I got a lot of flack and a lot of crap from a lot of the guys. Uh, and um, that went on for quite a bit. And it kind of, it kind of pushed me away from a lot of people because of the ignorance, you know. So, um, and even the team that I was on at the time, one of the guys on it, and I'll not mention his name or anything like that there, but he, he just, he didn't like Iraqi people, even the, you know, the, the, his driver. And this particular guy that I'm talking about, I'll tell you later on what happened. Um, but yeah, he was quite a hateful person, turned out to be quite a hateful person, uh, and just hated everybody. And I mean, by everybody, I just mean Iraqis, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I talk a lot of flack about that, but... It just, it, it again proved to me how shallow people are, Yeah, you know, when they don't understand the reason behind somebody doing something for you. And it's like you say, that was quite an intimate thing, you know, and uh, Iraqi people, they hold each other's hands. Yeah. The guys will hold each other's That's hands. Right. They used to come and hold my hand, you know, and, 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 and I'd be like, you know, you know I don't, don't do that, but it was there. It was, uh, was kind of like an acceptance mm -hmm. for me. You know what I mean? It, I was one, probably one of two guys that would go to my team's hut and eat with them. Now they eat on the floor. Mm -hmm. They'll eat on a big carpet and they'll have a, a massive tray of lamb and rice and bread. 
and they break it with the left hand and they eat, you know, scoop it up and eat it. And I used to go of an evening and just maybe just, they would have chai tea and I would have coffee. And their coffee would be like something that the local council would put on the road. You could stand a spoon in it. It was just <laughs> thick and black, you know, you come out, your teeth would be black, you know. But um, it, it, it was an amazing experience of acceptance from these guys because I didn't really know them. I'd only known them a few months, you know. And to be brought into, you know, somebody's life like that unexpectedly was it blew me away, mm-hmm. you know, because um, I had never even had that. I'm not from my own kind of people, mm-hmm. from Westerners. Yeah. I'd never had that experience. But to go to a country that was really hostile and to have, you know, Iraqis as drivers and shooters and medics even was quite unnerving Yeah, because there was quite a lot of instances where these guys would turn on mm-hmm. their teammates and kill them, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or something of that nature so I was totally blown away by this guy did this for me and I never like I say I never asked him why and he never told me why mm. and you know even to this day I, I still think about it every now and then mm-hmm. you know but that was uh, that was an amazing experience yeah you know so really interesting I worked in Rwanda for a short time three months wow. I was 18 and experienced what you just described yeah you know older, you know, 40, 50-year-old Rwandese men mm. holding my hand, walking down the street. And whenever I kind of got over the Northern Irish-isms yeah. that it all brought yeah. up in me, yeah. I actually found it to be a very healing process yeah. because through circumstances, I realized I never really had had a lot of intimacy with other men. Yeah. And particularly older men. Yeah. And there was something about it. I was like, this is a beautiful part of that culture that now I'm moving into fatherhood. You know, I'm like, I would like to reflect this in the the family and the community that I'm yeah. a part of. My best mate in the world, Nathan, he won't mind me sharing this. He's uh, he's dating a, a woman from Spain at the minute. And they're a very, very affectionate culture. Yeah. You, know, it, the, you would never walk into a room and not embrace each other. And we made a pact recently. It's like anytime we see each other, you know, with the friends, we're all going to get up off our seats and we're going to have that embrace and mm. have that little connection. Yeah. Something so simple, but it actually is really meaningful. It, it is. Um, I think it's the contact I didn't get much contact from my parents growing up, so I was never a hoggy person. I didn't really shake hands with anybody, you know what I mean? And you had to stay striking distance from me. That was it. You know, something's going to happen, you're going to get you're going to get smacked and that was like a defense mechanism for me. Mm-hmm. You don't step into there's a line between me and you and you don't you step over the line, you're going you're going to get it, you know what I mean? Because I saw everything as a threat because of the way I grew up, you know. So I always kept people at a distance. Sai actually was one of the first people I hugged. Wow. You know, and I don't really do that mm. for people, but not because Sai's sitting there. Sai and I are quite very, very good. I like to think we're very good friends and very close. But that he was the first person that I actually hugged probably since leaving my team, mm-hmm. my guys, my friends in the sandpit. Wow. You know what I mean? So because... We would shake each other's hands and hug each other because we didn't know if we were going to see each other at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, and it was not like a silent goodbye or anything like that there, but it was just, you know, take care of yourself. It was, yeah. That was never said. Mm. Take care of yourself. Watch your six. Watch your back. I'll see you later. We never said I'll see you later, or I never did. I'll just say, you know, be safe. Mm-hmm. You know, stay low, move fast. Yeah. You know. Well, Colin, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Good to be here. You're actually the, uh, you're the first guess we've ever got back. I appreciate that. I feel honoured. I really do. uh, 
I say that to <clears throat> honor you, but also just to communicate to uh, you listening that I think there's something really significant about this story. And I was talking to Roska and Sai and a bunch of other people. I think it's really significant that we're having these conversations and I'm really excited to see what will happen as a result of it. But Colin, if we pick up where we left off mm. last time, like a, a Tele Nuevo, I think is the, the Spanish yeah. soap opera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. so we kind of ended, you, you went on this massive, massive journey. You know, you, you kind of yeah. brought up through a lot of abuse, a lot of trauma. You find yourself, you move to Belize. This yeah. amazing character in your life, David, comes, turns yeah. your life around. You're six years in Belize. You're scuba diving. It's colorful. Yeah. You know, I still can picture the different shades of blue that yeah. you describe in the water. It's just gorgeous. And it's like, mate, why the heck did you ever leave that? You were in paradise. You were in the Garden of I will Eden. give you one guess. Why I end up leaving Belize. I'm going to say a female. You are 100%. <laughs> oh, Cy Kelly yeah. coming in yeah. clutch yeah. with the male yeah. insight. It's, yeah. always, it's yeah. always a woman. Not, yeah. to, not to slag. But. I was, um, oh. when I was living in Belize, I kind of, uh, I used to stay at this little, <clears throat> I wouldn't say a dingy hotel, but it was just a very basic hotel called the Pirate's Lantern. What a great name. <clears throat> and it was, it's in the Caribbean. And, uh, and it was, uh, run by a guy called Stuart Elliott, Taff Elliott, and Taff was ex-military. Uh, and he walked about with his chest stuck out and a big, deep Welsh voice and his moustache all tweaked up and everything, and he was a complete tool. He was, a, he was not a... You know, he thought a lot of himself, you know, and he did... He looked down on the people around him, you know, and Taff was part of the politics out there. He was... There's two uh, political parties, the PUP and the DUP, and they're red and blue, Crips and Bloods, basically, you know. And I think Taff was um, the Reds. I don't remember if it was the People's United Party. I'm not too sure, but he was big into this. But he also sold land, so he was a realtor as well. He was a really greedy guy, you know. And I didn't know that in the beginning. And he had two daughters, Amanda and Fiona. And when I was scuba diving for my cousin David, uh, the eldest girl, Amanda, was David's secretary. But she was also a dive master, so every now and then she, to earn a few dollars, she would take people diving. Um, but Amanda was quite void of emotion because of the way that she was brought up, you know what I mean? Um, she was really nice, um, but I didn't like her, to be honest. I, I felt absolutely no emotional connection or feelings with her at all because she was just like her dad. Um, and that was unfortunate because she she was nice, you know. And, uh, yeah, so I was staying at that little dingy little place and uh, I didn't realise that Fiona had existed. She was up in college up in the States um, and she was half Chinese, half white, uh, and her mum was from Kuching in Indonesia, Rose, lovely, lovely woman. But one of those women that walked four or five paces behind her husband, mm. you know, it's the culture that she came from. And Rose is tiny and she was really nice and she's always polite and she was like, make me a sandwich and kind of like sneak it to me, which I didn't understand why that I'd get a sneaky sandwich, you know what I mean? I thought because I was a paying guest and I just ate when I wanted to eat. I didn't, I don't have set meals even now. I don't come home to dinner on the table at five o'clock, you know, I don't, I don't wake up and have a breakfast every morning, mm. you know, I eat when I'm hungry. Um, and that was the way that it was most nearly my whole life. 
And so I used to get a sneaky sandwich from Rose and, how are you doing, Colin? How are you today? And is the room okay? The room was basic. The room was, you know, not much bigger than a regular bathroom. It had a single bed in it, a sink and a shower. That was it. And curtains on the window. That was it. And that's that was my life in a nutshell. I, I didn't like owning anything. I, I probably owned two pairs of shorts, a pair of long pants and a couple of shirts and T-shirts, a, a pair of sandals and a pair of trainers. That was it. That was it. I just wanted to be able to grab my bag and go. I didn't want to belong to anywhere. I didn't want to belong to anybody. You know, I didn't want to. I never attached myself to anybody or anything that I couldn't leave in five minutes. So that was my, that was the way my life was. Um, so I, the only person that I grew close to out there was David. Because David was like my dad. You know, he scolded me and, you know, and he mollycoddled me. And, you know, he, he did all the things that a father would do. And there's only eight years of difference between him and I. But he was really much a, like, a father figure in my life. Um, he, he, he guided me through some of the roughest times in my life. And if I hadn't had him, I probably would have been swinging from a rope, mm -hmm. to be quite honest, you know. And he actually talked me down. He talked me down twice from doing that. And uh, so anyway, this little room was... Can I just ask Colin, yeah. was that while you were in Belize or later? Um, no, it was stuff that I had dragged with me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, the stuff in my life still that, that will never leave. Um, and it's it's a constant battle sometimes to either jump into a bottle or to swing on a rope. Mm -hmm. And that's how I'm just going to put that. It's just stuff that's... It's like luggage. You take it everywhere with you and you just don't unpack it. Mm -hmm. And you know, every, even when you go to unpack it, there's so many layers that you just don't get through them. You know, and that's just how I can describe that really. So um, so not every day is sunshine and roses. Um, as a lot of us know, you know, it's not just... <clears throat> It's not just me that experiences that. There's, 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 I don't know if you guys in this room experience that too, but we all have a certain degree of crap that we take with us wherever we go. Just for, for context, yeah. you know, you're, you're talking to a suicide survivor, so okay. I've experienced that multiple times in my life. And, you know, even in the last decade when my life has radically turned around, yeah. there's been seasons and moments where you're, you're facing that demon again yeah. yeah and we all experience life in different ways sure but yeah there are there are days where you're fighting to get through to the next yeah that's why i'm grateful for every day yeah. you know so i wake up and you know i'm not religious i'm spiritual mm -hmm. you know what i mean i am not to the, probably to the way that Sai is or to the way that you are maybe maybe these guys i don't know but i have certain beliefs you know that uh, i think and I don't want to get too deep on this. Um, I think that I like to think that when we leave this place, we go somewhere better. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that is or whether it's heaven, if people call it heaven, but I just don't think this is the be all and end all of mm -hmm. our sentient life. You know what I mean? So, but yeah, that's a bit deep for me. That I'm going to wipe it down. That's so, good. It's good. No, um, so you're talking about David, you're talking about yeah. scolding you, you're talking about and yeah. ultimately why you're leaving Belize. So, anyway, um, I was living in, in Taft's place in the Paris Lantern and very carefree, scuba diving, dating chicks, you know, just living living the life of Riley, as you say over here, you know, not a care in the world. And then one day I meet Fiona and I paid, didn't really pay her any attention. She was gorgeous, lovely looking girl, really, really, really smart girl. Um, and Fiona had been, once been Miss San Pedro, so she'd won beauty contests. Um, and she was, I think she was like six years younger than me, I'm not too sure. 
but I paid no attention to her. You know, I just, I didn't want to know. I didn't care. I wasn't interested in, in getting involved in anybody. You know, um, there was no room in my life for emotion for anybody or from anyone. The only person that I cared about was David. I cared about what he said and what he was trying to teach me, even though I fought against him. You know, um, I just didn't care. I didn't care about nobody. I just wanted to scuba dive. I wanted to have a good time. I wanted to do a bit of traveling and so forth and so forth and go, you know, camping up into the into the jungle with the ex-military guys, all that type of stuff. And anyway, and then Fiona pops into my life. And for about six or seven months, um, she was working in David's wife's restaurant, the Jade Garden, the, probably the best restaurant in, on the island. It was absolutely phenomenal. And she'd be working in there, and I'd see her every day, and she'd say hi and all this, and I'd be, hey, how you doing? And never really bothered about anything. And then, I don't know what what happened. Uh, one day, it's just like, bang, like a punch in the face. And I just started talking to her, and I found out that she was also a Gemini. Now, I don't know if that's... <laughs> I'm not into the stars or into this alignment stuff, or, you know, they say Geminis are... I, I'm a typical Gemini. I'm either nice or I'm bad. <laughs> There's no in-between. I'm either good or I'm bad. That's it. I, I prefer to stay good as long as I can, but uh, sometimes that doesn't always go anyway started talking started hanging out and, and on, all of a sudden against my I shouldn't say better judgment we started dating and her dad didn't like it you know I, he didn't see me as a threat but I just really didn't like him and he was the patriarch of the family he said jump they said how high type of stuff you know what I mean and he ran everything around him with a, a fist like my stepdad and that just didn't suit me, mm. you know what I mean? How one other person could try and have so much power and control over your life, tell you what to do, when to eat, when to sleep, when, uh, that, that just wasn't going to work for me. So we kind of started seeing each other and hanging out, and then, and then all of a sudden, I suppose, things just got quite serious, and uh, we started dating seriously, and <clears throat> I was completely out of my comfort zone, because I didn't really, whereas a relationship was, I didn't really know what I was supposed to do. I wasn't nice. I didn't have nice things to say. I wasn't rude to her, but I was nice to her, but I just, I didn't know the lovey-dovey stuff that you're supposed to say to somebody. You know what I mean? She'd say, oh, do I look nice? And I'd be like, yeah, you look okay. <laughs> Grand. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Not too bad. Does <laughs> yeah. my bum look big in this? Yeah, it looks, does look really big, actually, you know. But then again, you're only in a small bathroom. But um, no, it was, you know, I, I didn't know. I just, you know, I wasn't, <clears throat> it wasn't in me to be emotional. Um, anyway, things got really good. And she wanted to, well, her dad basically told her that uh, she was going up to, back up to college. Um, he didn't want her working in uh, David's wife's restaurant. And she was wasting the talents, you know what I mean? So we, we moved up to Florida. And up in Florida, I had met this guy uh, who sold scuba gear in Belize, a guy called Andy Holub. And Andy was a, an ex-fighter pilot from Vietnam, half Polish, half American. As ignorant as a person, he just was, yes, no, no, yes, no, yeah. And that's just how he spoke. He didn't say, he didn't explain anything. No, yes, no, but... I got on all right with him, you know. I kind of understood where he was coming from. He just didn't take crap. And he was a big dude, you know. He'd been through a lot. And so I started working for Andy while 
Fiona was in college or in university, should I say, or, or and uh, so I would fly off to Mexico or Bermuda or wherever Andy was going, um, and we would sell scuba gear, pick money up, fly back to the states, get more scuba gear, and we could be away a week or two. And I made a lot of money doing this, but I also learned how to fly. And um, he had a an ex drugs plane that had, we used to ferry drugs all over the Caribbean. It was a um, a Cessna uh, twin turbo aircraft, and uh, he just said to me, "Here, put your feet on the pedals and take the steering wheel." And I'm like, <laughs> and he says, "No, you fly with your feet." So the pedals. So if you want to go right, press the right pedal. She banks over left, and she's left. And uh, so I got got to grips with it quickly. Learned how to trim everything in and ch- check everything, check ailerons and servo tabs and everything on the ground, the pitot tube, everything. He taught me how to fly, and I ended up getting a, a PPL, a private pilot license, about six months later. I never really used it. I just I just had it. It was something he wanted me to do. So I did that, and Fiona was doing good uh, in in, uh, in college and stuff, and. Um, I just missed Belize. Living up in Miami was nice, um, but I didn't like crowds. Everywhere you went, you were shouldering people, and I am just always one of those guys that looks where the door is, you know, and um, even as a young young kid, I would be doing that. I wanted to go back down to Belize, and so I just sent to Fiona, I want to go back to Belize. I don't want to be here no more, so... She gave up. She didn't want to be in college either, to be honest. And she's like, oh, I said, I don't care about your dad. I'm just going to tell him. It's not. It's down to me and you. And that's when things went down the toilet. So we went back. She gave up college. We went back. I got a little apartment, and uh, I opened up my own business. So I got my own dive center. Um, with David's help, got my own boat, called it Paddy's Pirates. <laughs> nice, nice big skull and crossbones on the side, and it looked really good. Business was great, you know, everybody knew me down there, um, so getting a small dive centre was, was, was easy enough. There was a guy called Chris Alnut, and Chris um, was uh, ex-RAF, and him and I got on really well, and I ended up taking over his dive centre, me and Fiona, and uh, we ran it for quite a while, and then things just started to get really bad. You know, he, his dad started interfering and all that type of stuff, and it came to... He got physical with us. He just decided one day he just wanted <coughs> to teach me a lesson. And uh, Fiona and I had, by this stage, got engaged. Um, I think we've been together about two years at that point. And she used to work and live up in the jungle, <coughs> excuse me, in a place called Chanchich. And it was an eco-tourist lodge. It was absolutely stunning. It's in the middle of the jungle. Um, it has Maya temples, you know, that are still covered in grass and everything, you know. So they were unexcavated. Um, and the guy, uh, there was a guy there called Tom Hardy. And Tom, he he could do anything. This guy could build anything. He's ex-Vietnam vet. And his wife, Josie Hardin, was a nurse in uh, Vietnam. And then they had a guy called Norman Ivanko. And Norman is, was Josie's brother. And Norman was a tunnel rat mm-hmm. in Vietnam. He's only a small guy. Wow. And I used to call him Magic Hands. This guy was awesome at martial arts, you know. And uh, so I had met Norman 
about a year previously, one, one morning on the beach, and I was walking into town, and it was raining, and it was lashing out of the heavens, and I just had my T-shirt and a bag, little bum bag, or fanny pack, as they call them, T-shirt, no, no shoes, no socks. They say no shoes, no T-shirt, no socks, no problem. <laughs> so I had to walk down a pair of shorts. And as I was walking down the beach, I saw this guy surrounded by four or five local kids. And I didn't know Norman at the time. And these, Norman was kind of, he liked his rum, you know. Um, so Norman, it was, this is about half eight in the morning. So Norman's kind of, I think, suffering the effects of the night before, you know. And he's walking down to maybe find a hair of the dog or something like that or... And these kids were surrounding him and they were asking him for money. And Norman was about five foot two, five foot three. And Norman was in his 60s, I would say maybe close on 70 back then, you know. So he wasn't a spring chicken. <clears throat> and he's the little moustache and, you know, really bright blue twinkly eyes, you know, that just, you could see into this guy's soul when you looked at him, you know what I mean? He just expressed himself. He was always smiling. And he was always laughing. And these kids are harassing him anyway, and they're trying to get money out of him. And he's smoking, and these guys want his cigarettes. And he just, Norman was like, yeah, you're not getting anything. You know what I mean? And these kids were just the scum in the streets. These little gangs, you know, down there, and carrying knives and whatever. And so they surrounded Norman, and Norman's got his plaid shirt tied around his, his waist. And he drops these guys. He drops all five of them <laughs> in a flash. And my chin hit the ground. I'm just standing there. And I walked over. Stupid question. I said, you all right there, mate? And he, goes, <laughs> and he goes, damn kids. And he says to me, are you Irish Dave's brother? And I said, no. I says, Dave, Dave was my cousin. And he says, come on. He said, let's go for a drink. I didn't drink. I said, okay, let's go. So we found this little wooden bar that was open and we sat down and he's got his rum and coke going and you know we just introduced himself as Norman and uh, so that was my introduction to Norman and I didn't realise that later on he had actually lived and worked in Chanchich so my first time up going up to see Fiona up into the jungle oh, again I was blown away I was absolutely blown away by what Tom and Norman had built in the jungle it was, if you look up Chanchich Lodge in Belize, you'll get an idea of, of what I mean. Um, so Tom and uh, Josie run this place for a guy called Barry Bowen. And Barry Bowen was a third-generation Belizean. He's dead now, uh, but he owned Coca-Cola and he owned Belican Beer. And this guy was... <sighs> he sucked the life out of you, this guy. He was like a, a vampire. You know, he was nasty... He was just a nasty, over-opinionated, rude, um, <clears throat> forceful individual, you know, because he had money. And um, But he owned this lodge, and I had never met him. I just heard of him. And unfortunately for him, I was up when he was there, and um, I was sitting having uh, dinner with Fiona and um, a couple of the people that were there. And uh, she goes, oh, that's Barry. She goes, uh, everybody was around him. I said, you know, who's that? She goes, oh, that's Barry Bowen. That's the owner. And she's like, you know, go up and introduce yourself. I'm like, I don't know him. She said, no, 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 just go, you know, go up and introduce yourself and, you know, tell him you're with me and, and uh, you know, and um, 
you know, it's nice just to say, I walked up anyway and he looked at me and he turned his back. I just kind of stood there for a few minutes anyway. And um, so he, he knew I was standing there, so I tapped him on the shoulder. Turned around the nicest, nice place you got here. And just walked up and he's like, who the hell's that? <laughs> you know, I went back and sat down and that was my introduction to him. And he was, yeah, the few times that I had met him was just not, not good. You know, he's just, I just never had nothing in common. Anyway, set up with film for about a week, got to know normal. Um, Josie and Tom and uh, started working around the place, helping them move stuff and, you know, um, lift things and help build things, wee bits and pieces and stuff. And then the rest of the time I just spent, when I was on my own, because Fiona was obviously working there, she was, you know, she was doing the bookings and everything. I would just walk in the jungle. There was loads of paths down in the jungle. And uh, they have an animal there called a jaguar rundi, which is a really odd-shaped cat. And it's a dark brown cat. And um, it has a small head and it has a big body and a long tail and it, I'd heard people talking about this and Norman goes oh yeah you know be careful you might see one of these things they're very elusive and I saw one <laughs> on my second walk I heard this really strange like a guttural not a growl but a, a noise and I kind of stopped <clears throat> you know I'm in the jungle anything could have happened they, they have um, the Ferdinand snake up there which is one of the most poisonous snakes it looks like a diamond back without the rattle you know, and they're really poisonous. You get bit one of them, you, you're gonna you're gonna go down very quickly. Even the baby ones can can bite. And uh, I heard this noise anyway, and I kind of like looked off, and I saw this face, this little head looking at me, and it was a jaguarundi, wow. and he just kind of jumped and ran. And I thought, right, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna tell him. Not one of them believed me. <laughs> no, none of them believed me. <laughs> you know, I said, oh, Norman, I saw one of those things, and Norman was like, yeah, that's cool. You know, but I, I says honestly, I saw these. Where did you see it? And of course, I couldn't describe where I seen it because I didn't know the jungle trails. You know, <laughs> and I said to Fiona, I said I'll take you down. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find the place where I seen it. You know, and I was like, oh, none, like I just felt like a like a peanut. Basically, I, nobody believed me. You see, and I was like, oh, God, thinking I'm lying. You know, so set up for about a week. Had a brilliant time. I got to go around the place and then headed back to San Pedro, back to the island. And uh, Fiona's dad confronted me. He waited at the airport for me. So as I landed on Tropic Air, which is the little Cessna planes um, that skim the wire as they're taken off, too heavy, um, I seen him at the airport and uh, he just verbalised me straight away. Oh, I don't want to see you. Uh, you not seeing Fiona no more. And, you know, you, do, you don't fit into our family. You know, you don't do what you're, what you're told to do. And, you know, and I'm the head of this family and I run this and I run that. And what I said to him, I'm not going to repeat, you know. Um, and I just walked off. So I went back down to my place and, you know, um, I didn't have a phone. I couldn't phone Fiona. I didn't, couldn't tell her what, what, what had happened or anything. But I'm pretty sure by the time I got home, he, he was on the phone to her. Because he had a phone, he had the luxury of having a phone and stuff. And uh, so I just kind of resigned myself to the fact that I was just going to beat the crap out of this guy the next time he gets in my face. And um, <laughs> must have rubbed a genie's head or something. <laughs> For about an hour later, he he, uh, he comes down to where I was living and uh, he offers me out to fight. Really? Yeah, he did, yeah. Wow. And mind you, I'm 30 yeah. Back then. 
and I, I was big, you know, <laughs> and I didn't take crap from nobody, you know, I would have fought in an empty room, you know what I mean? <laughs> And this guy, Taps in his late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. Apparently he was a boxer in the army, I don't know, you know. Um, so he liked to tell people anyway, he was a, a champion boxer. And uh, so I went out with him anyway, and he's, you're not seeing my, you're not seeing Fiona no more, and you're not, I, you're not welcoming his family, and, you know, and you're just fighting against me all the time, and I, you know, you need to comply, and you need to conform, and I'm like, you need to, get away, like, you know, whatever, politely. And uh, he starts all this. Oh, the wee fisty cuffs go up. <laughs> and I just, like, looked at him, and I burst out laughing. And so he's like one of these old pugilists, and he's kind of... Yeah. And he came running, and I just whacked him in the throat. <laughs> and he... And his tongue literally came out, you know, and he, he couldn't breathe, you know, and I was like, oh, God. So he couldn't breathe for a minute, and he goes, I've got you now. And he goes to the police. Ah. Oh. And he went to the police. Dirty. And, uh... So he had a red mark on his throat. Yeah. I knew all the police because I used to do judo with these guys and we used to go to the gym and I would give them free dives and all this type of stuff, you know. Not to, they were nice guys. They got paid very little money to do a really crappy job, you know. Um, and so I got to know, like, the guys and stuff and, you know, some of them used to get beat up, you know, being a police. And so I taught them a few locks and a few throws and a few chokeholds and, you know, some dirty stuff like, you know, um, uh so I got on really well with him anyway. About an hour later, the police the police van arrives, and uh, well, I can't remember the little guy's name anyway. It might have been Norris. I'm not too sure. And he goes, "Oh, Mr. Colin, you've got to come with me." I go, okay. So I'm thrown into the back of a, flat, a flatbed truck in the back, handcuffed. Okay, with a police officer sitting on each side of me through the town for everybody to see. Mm. Okay, so then I'm taken to a police station about the size of this room, and there's a jail cell in the corner. Now they didn't put me in jail, which I was quite grateful for. So the inspector was there, and I can't remember the inspector's name, but he was quite a cool guy, you know. Um, and he asked me what happened, and and I told him what happened and everything. And you know, Taff had given a completely different version, you know. Um, and Taff had a lot of power down there for being in the political party and stuff. So he had, I would believe, quite a big hole on a lot of people, you know, because each party stayed in for four years and they just literally destroyed it for the next, same as in politics, literally destroyed it for the next party coming in. But he reaped a lot of benefits and a lot of rewards from things, little backhanders here and dodgy dealings there and all this type of stuff, you know. Uh, so he's quite affluent. And because he was quite good standing in that community, he had a big reach. So anyway, I had to go to court um, for assault, which was probably just going to be a fine, a couple hundred dollars fine. But the fact that Taff had paraded me mm. like a common criminal through the town for everybody to see was really embarrassing for me. Mm. And it was devastating for Fiona mm. once she found out that this had happened. So then she just, her mind just started mm. to go. Um so anyway, I didn't end up going to court. I got really sick. I had malaria. I got a really, really bad uh, bout of malaria. And I went up to the States. I went up to... The, the clinics in Belize were okay, but <clears throat> I went up to the States. and But I didn't tell the police. I was going. I was rushed. I was rushed up on a friend's airplane. And so I was... I missed two court appearances. And when I came back, 
there was a warrant out for me. Mm. So I wasn't I wasn't home for about an hour. And the heavy duty police landed, armed this time. Uh, pistols and everything. You don't usually use that anyway. Again, they this time the cop me behind, um, threw me into the wagon, took me down, threw me in jail. And uh, Fiona, I didn't realise that she was home. She'd stayed at her dad's place. So I'm in jail anyway. I'm in a jail cell that was probably by eight by eight with about 20 other local guys sweating, the smell of urine everywhere. There was a hole in the toilet in the corner, you know what I mean? So it wasn't a clean place. And the floor was just wet with pee, urine and everything, you know. And it was a sweat box. And I was sat in there and it was <laughs> it was the most unpleasant experience ever. Anyway, Fiona came down to the jail and she told me she didn't want to see me anymore in front of everybody. Mm. That was it. And I just said, so, okay, that's that's all, all good, and, good and dandy. So they kept me overnight, and then the next morning I went to court, and Taff appeared in court, cap in hand, looking all meek and mild, and me, and you know, and all this type of stuff. And there's me, <coughs> filthy clothes from the night before, and the judge was quite a pretty easy, cool guy. Why is this? Why is this? Why is he still in these clothes? Why is he in court in these clothes? You know, because they should have allowed me to shower, change. I wasn't going anywhere. I'm on an island. I'm going to swim to the next, you know what I mean? So they allowed me to go home, have a shower, change, and come back. And uh, Fiona and her mum was there. Oh, my, my heart sank. My heart went down the toilet, you know. I didn't care about nobody else. I cared about mm-hmm. her seeing me like that, mm-hmm. a criminal, you know what I mean? And she knew what her dad was like, but she took his side. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was gutted. I think that was a f- mm. the first time that I had felt pain. You know, not betrayal, but let down. Mm. Really, really let down <clears throat> by somebody that it was supposed to love you. You know, and uh, so anyway, I got a fine. <clears throat> I think it was three hundred and fifty American dollars, which was not really much. You know, and the judge was very understanding, and he, you know, I give my my version of it. And, of course, Taft gave his version of it. And then the judge saw the bit in the middle. He connected the dots, you know, and he said, you know, he told Taft, well, you came down to this, you did come down to this guy's house. You did threaten him, you know, you did want to fight with him, you know, um, but because Taft hadn't put hands on me, yeah, you know, because yeah. I hit, I could have busted his windpipe. I give him a good old mm-hmm. dig, you know what I mean? And um, he still had a sore throat and all this type of stuff. And, but you know, because I'd laid hands on him, I'd committed the offence. And uh, so. this is long before. Um, sorry, to interrupt you. You were teaching me a lot about preemptive strikes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It, the legalities yeah. behind this stuff, but this is probably long before all that has come. Well, down. this is the Caribbean as well. You know what I mean? There's so this, different this, legislation this is, it, over there. It, Belize it used to be British Honduras. It was part of the British Empire, and I think in the early eighties it got its independence, and so it went from. And you, you might look, want to look this up. I, I could be wrong. Um, so it went from British Honduras to Belize. And I think Belize means free road or free tra- travel or something like that. So it became Belize. But it's still governed by British law. You know, the, it was still part of the Commonwealth. Um, the Queen was down, I think it was 94 I was there, and she, she was down in Belize. Mm. And um, something around that time. 
And uh, so anyway, I got a fine and I went home and Fiona had moved out. Okay, so um, no note, no nothing, no no nothing at all. Um, and Taft then had the audacity to, when I got the fine, to come over and try to shake hands. No hard feelings. Um, but uh, but I've won that, and you don't have my daughter. Yeah, but he says that's the end. He goes, that's the end of, of uh, you and Fiona. He says, um, and you'll be off this island, he goes, by the end of the week. I can guarantee you. And he was right. He was right. A week later, Fiona came to me and she says, you need to leave. You, I don't want to see you again. Don't contact me. Don't look for me. Don't email me. And the emails had just come out at that time. Nothing. Don't contact me again. And that was 30 years ago, and I've never heard from her or seen her since. Wow. I've seen her on Facebook. I've seen her, um, you know, on, on other apps and stuff. But I don't, I don't, you know. Don't engage. Don't engage, like, you know. Mm. And she's a nurse now. You know, she always wanted to be a nurse, and I tried to encourage her back then to, to go into it. And now she's, she teaches nurses, so she's doing really good for herself, you know what I mean? She's a single mom and all that type of stuff. Um, and so I kind of experienced the worst kind of heartbreak ever. Not only did I lose somebody that I really cared for, but I lost myself again, and I lost living in paradise. I lost the only place that I was happy, that I got up in the morning time, and I went down on the pier and I had a cup of coffee or a Coke and I watched the ocean and I watched it when it rained and I watched the grey turn to blue and I watched all the colours in the car. I watched all those because I'm quite century when it comes to colours. Mm. What that gave me peace and all that was taken away. Okay. And I had to come back with the tail between my legs back here. I had to phone my mum and say, mum, can I come home? Oh, man. And after like being known yeah. as the guy. That but I didn't go home. Mm. I went up to the States and I joined the Marines. <laughs> that was it. I met this guy called Kenny Brown the week, the, the day before I was leaving. And just, just conceptually, Colin, yeah. like, you, I know you're about to tell us yeah. how, but the why, is it just a case of you just had so much pain you just didn't know what to do with it? Is it a, oh, I've always wanted to do this? Is it... I always, like, I'd thought about the military because um, David's, I'd been in the military and he'd served in the Signal Corps and Special Forces. And, uh, you know, he was a great influence. His fitness was unreal. You know, David was built like a bull. He was a small, red-headed guy. And for his size, he'd block some light. He, he was maybe the width of that door. He was he was a huge guy, like, you know, um, really fiery. You know, didn't stand for nothing from nobody. But his morals were really good. And the military, his his childhood was was bad growing up. He had two brothers, Andrew, who was his twin, and 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 his younger brother Barney, Bernard John, who I call BJ. You've met? Did you meet BJ? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And BJ is ex marine and SAS, and medic. So he's had a real bit, real big life. Um, and so David was always, and Andrew was a marine as well. Andrew was a wee bootneck as well. He's probably one of the smallest at five three. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, they all had a big influence in my life, but I just didn't have the intestinal fortitude or the guts, okay, to join the military because um, I was just too bad-tempered. I, I think I would have just went ballistic and did all the wrong stuff for all the wrong reasons. I wasn't going to take crap from nobody. I wasn't going to tell let anybody tell me what to do. I'm not going to let anybody order me around. I'm not going to let anybody tell me to, when to go to bed and when to get up. 
and I went to jump and how high, none of that stuff. I just wasn't having it. But as I used to go on these trips up in the jungle with David and these guys, like, you know, and I learned not how to live in the jungle, but how to, you know, build <clears throat> a basha, as they call it, uh, you know, a, a sleeping, you know, a little sleeping tent or put up a little canopy or, you know, build a little platform off the bed and off the ground for your bed and all this type of stuff and swim in the river, in, in, like in Belize and stuff and river crossings and, you know, repelling from trees and, you know, all this type of stuff. Um, I just thought, that's it. So I went up to the States and I joined the Marines. That's probably also an argument for family and community. Yeah. Yeah. Watch, watching them as well. I didn't realize that at the time. Like, you know, um, I was just angry and I wanted to channel my anger. You know, I wanted to get a, get a grip in it because if I didn't get a grip in it, I was just going to do something to me or I was going to kill somebody else mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a, ra- a fight of rage. Mm-hmm. Because when I lost my temper, you, I couldn't stop. You know, they say the red mist comes down. You know, this was like a curtain that just came over me and, you know, and I would just go nuts. I would pick a rock up. I I'd, I'd, I'd just, you know, I just wasn't going to stop until the, the worst thing was done. And that wasn't the road I wanted to go down. So I went up to, David by this time was living up in Houston. And I went up to David. Of course, they knew everything. Fiona and... David's wife, Sue, were really good friends. So she knew what was going on even before I did. She knew what was happening because Taff was really good friends with Dave. Fiona used to work in a restaurant and, you know, they used to eat there all the time. And, you know, so there was that, you know, they knew what was happening before I did. Everything was discussed about me behind my back, you know, what the next step was. And Dave tried to tell me, but he couldn't because I would have confronted them. And then they, they would have known Dave told me. So he was stuck between a rock and a hard mm. place, you know. And it broke him to watch me get broken. And knowing that he couldn't do anything about it, that he couldn't help me. Because, you know, he's got his wife on one hand, you know, and then he's got his friends with Fiona. And they'd known Fiona before me and all this type of stuff. And it was just a chain reaction of crap, you know. So <clears throat> I saw the the pain in Dave's face, you know, when I, when I went up to see him. And uh, it was the first time I'd seen him cry. Hmm. And he took me for, <clears throat> excuse me, he took me for a coffee. And then he told me what happened, you know. I didn't blame him. I couldn't, you know, couldn't put the blame on him at all. So I, he says, what, what are you going to do now? And I said, oh, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go home, trail between my legs. And he was like, no effort. Join the military. <laughs> Get in there, you know what I mean? You're young enough, you're fit enough, you know, you're, you're tough enough, you know what I mean? Just go, go, go. And I went, Bollocks, I'm going. So I went to the local military recruit in the mall, Marines. <laughs> <laughs> I did the same thing. Okay. So I walked crazy. into It's really yeah. funny because you walk in, they're like, hey, come on in, you know, cup, cup of tea. Yeah. And you go, oh, I'm actually, I can't, I'm, I'm British. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, there's a flyer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, I was born really in Houston. Excited. I was born in the States, you know, yeah. I just grew up, you know. And uh, so I've got that funny accent, not an American accent. So I went to the Marines. <laughs> and he's like, hey, you know, showed all these little movies going and everything, like, you know, and I'm going to cut the cop my hand. And I said, listen, cut the crap, I'm joining. Went, oh, okay. You know? Yeah, yeah. So they allowed me to go to college for two years to, you know, get a, um, to get a degree. Um, so I went up and I did uh, marine biology because I wanted to save the ecosystem because being a scuba diver, all this mm. type of stuff. So I went to um, Paris Island. 
uh, South Carolina, which is quite famous. That's where they mm -hmm. filmed the movie G.I. Jane with Demi Moore. Mm -hmm. And I remember going up and <clears throat> there was this big, massive sign over that said, we make Marines. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm having some of that. Nice. You know what I mean? And uh, so I, I'd done all the paperwork previously, um, went to college. You know, they were still paying me um, a Marines training salary, blah, 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 blah. So um, I went up and I did 13 weeks basic training to a place called Port Royal. And um, they, <laughs> your first week there is like, it's like, you know, orientation. You know what I mean? But there's two or three thousand other guys in your position as well, like all off the bus. You know what I mean? You're you're thirty two here? I'm about thirty one. Thirty one. Thirty one, something right, like yeah. that, you know what I mean? And uh <clears throat> so I'm up there and and uh, all these other guys, all these buses are pulling in, everybody's getting off these buses and then you shout at straight, get in line Okay, you know, attention and all these huge Black dudes, big drill sergeants with these big hats on, kind of headbutting you, face with these hats, giving you, and you're standing there, you know, you know, and I was, it bewildered me, you know what I mean? Firstly, I just wanted to punch the guy in the chin, you know, because <laughs> they hurt, those those brims hurt, you know, and then he's screaming in your face and he spittles all over you, you know what I mean? And he's moving down the line and everybody's getting in touch, you know, and, uh, but I'd been screamed at my whole life, to be honest, so that wasn't going to, the screaming part wasn't going to bother me, you know? Um, it was the constant telling what to do was going to grip me, you know what I mean? But I thought, no, I'm going to give it a go. See, first week is orientation. You walk around, all the, you see all the guys doing the drills on the drill square and there's women on one side, you know, training Marines and guys on the other. And it was a massive place, you know. Um, so the first week is orientation and then the fun begins and you're up in the morning time and you're running around the place and you're doing your push-ups and all. So 13 weeks. Um, so your first week is your orientation, then you, you've got your 12 weeks basic training. So I did that and then I was still finishing my uh, my degree and everything. So um, so yeah, I did that and, and slowly got into things and I loved it. I loved the running, the physical, the, you know, the, the shooting, you know, the orienteering, you know, and, and everything that you're learning, your map reading, everything that you're learning in the basics was, was brilliant, you know. And you're on the reins constantly because you don't get, unless you're a marksman as a Marine, you don't pass. So every Marine is a marksman, male or female, is, is a marksman. And you get your little badge, um, your marksman badge. But you will not, that's part of your passing out. If you don't cut that mark as a marksman, you, you see ya, see you later. Mm. So anyway, um. I didn't have anybody come to my passing out parade. David couldn't get there, obviously, because Sue, his wife, got cancer. She got mm. breast cancer and ovarian cancer at the same time, which was, he didn't tell me. I didn't like Sue. I didn't like her at all. Um, but I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not anything I would wish even on the, my worst enemy, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, to watch somebody rot, you know, from the inside. <laughs> But she, she was lucky. She had breast removed and she had stomach removed and rebuilt and she, she went to chemo and, and she survived. She's a, she's a survivor. So that's, you know, 30 years ago, um, 20, 25, 30 years ago. And she's a survivor, you know what I mean? Which fair play. Not, not too many people get that, get that chance to, to go through that and, and, and come back, you know. So I'm getting deployed. I'm going here and there and, you know, um, getting stuff done. And, and uh, yeah, so I had a great time. 
the physicality of everything was great because I was able to challenge and, and challenge, uh, channel everything that was in me, you know what I mean? And I wanted to be a better person. And they break you down. I mean, they break you into bits, but then they build you into a robot, you know what I mean? And you're just a killing machine. You are just literally somebody who's primed and ready to just let rip, you know what I mean? You're, you're paranoid about everything, you know. Um, nothing ma makes any sense. You get orders and you do them orders, you know, you don't question anything because you're now programmed a certain way to do certain things without question, hmm. you know. And uh, I found it, I thought it was great because I finally had a purpose. I found myself out of purpose. Did you enjoy almost like the relinquishing of control, if that's maybe mm. the wrong way to Not say Not really, but... um, because I was unable to control the bubble around me. Tell me more. But in the sense of... I no longer have to plan things for the future yeah. and figure out who I am and where I need to go. Yeah. That's being taken care of. Yeah. Is that what you meant? Yeah, so I'm not. Yeah. yeah, so that's basically it. Like, yeah. uh, you know, um, I knew what was going to happen. I could control that, you know. <clears throat> I could control, you know, if we were, like, in Iraq or Afghan or wherever we were, you know, I could control that three feet around me to the next guy and he could control his and he could control his until something happened, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, and you knew... That's really interesting. How you get out, you know, how you dismount, how you're, you know, how you're sweeping, how you're moving, you know, how you're dropping, you know, all this type of stuff. So you're controlling that environment that you're in up until the point something That's goes boom. That's really amazing. Like, the, I've never heard, heard said like that, yeah. that you are in full control of three feet around you. And that's all mm -hmm. you need to know. That's amazing. It's in a span that you touch somebody. Yeah. You start to what six feet, but metaphorically as yeah. well for for the, for the unit for your life that that, that you've got three feet, <coughs> you're master of three feet around. That's you. it. I control that space. That's but I control what goes on in that space. Then the guy beside me controls his, and yeah. he controls his, or yeah. she controls hers, or whoever's beside you. You know, what and I mean? somebody controls all your spaces. And then there's somebody yeah. there's an eye in the yeah. sky. Yeah. Hopefully there's an eye in the sky watching over us, or there's you know overwatching some building, you know, keeping yeah. an eye on us and telling us what's happening or, or what's going on. You know, so you're able to control to a certain degree, that space around you, you know, until it was no longer controllable, mm. until you had to react, you know, with aggression, speed and, you know, force. Uh, and then you just give whoever was unlucky enough to be downrange the good news um, and send the message home, basically. So, you know, I, I had a great time. Um, I'm not going to go into detail of, obviously, you know, some of the stuff that kind of, you know, went on and stuff like that. Um, but uh, you get you guys get the picture. Um, but I it was great and I loved it and I did five years with the Marine. I was second battalion, second Marines, um, and I was uh, I then moved to Camp Lejeune, and I had my eye on um, Marsoc, Marine Special Operations Command, um, Marine Raiders, and they were in Lejeune, and. Uh, yeah, then the fun began. You know what I mean? It was the training was more intense. Um, you know, you were training with a green team. We, you know, we were fortunate enough to have guys from SEAL three with us. You know what I mean? And we were, you know, we, there was more intense drown proofing. And I don't know if you know what drown proofing is. Drown proofing is when you're captured by an enemy and your hands and feet are tied, and you're thrown into the water. <laughs> you know, um, you're, it's quite a really scary experience because you know you're blindfolded at the same time as well. So you, when you hit the water, you kind of, you know, being a diver, it, it was easy for me to stay calm um, because your body will right itself. 
if you start flapping, you know what I mean? When you first go in, you're going backwards, or you're just thrown in like a sack of spuds. So you're, you're in a heap, like, you know, and then people panic and they start, because they can't move their arms and their feet and start this, you know, people can just drown automatically. But when you get to the point where you, you're a Marine, you've already done drown proofing in the pool. I am in a swimming pool in, in controlled conditions. There's a diver in the water with you. You know what I mean? There's several divers and, you know, he, he will, if you're panicking, he'll take you to the surface, you know what I mean? Uh, or he'll write you up and stuff like this. Drown proofing is quite an intense experience. Um, your hands and feet are tied, probably blindfolded, um, and you're dumped in, and then you don't realise that the, the water's not deep, you know, so you panic because you don't know how deep the water's going to be. In a pool, you know, because there's a bottom of a pool. Pools are in, in most Olympic pools, 8 or 10, 20 feet deep, whatever. So you're basically in the shallowest end, and you 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 take a breath. You know something's going to happen. <laughs> So you automatically, you know, and then you're thrown in. And by that time, you can hold your breath, you know, more than a minute, two minutes, three minutes, you know, four minutes, you know. Um, I know some guys could hold six or seven minutes, you know what I mean? I was lucky enough to be able to hold my breath for just under five minutes. But it was a lot of practice, and it didn't come naturally to me, you know. So I would practice in the pool holding my breath and stuff um, when I was when I had my own free time. So drown proof and you're thrown in, you, you, you kind of let your body upright and then it will sink slowly and then when you feel the bottom you kick and you get to the surface and you take a breath and you allow yourself to go down again mm. and then you kick and you get to the, and you allow yourself, and you can do that for quite a while you, you know you, you're not going to do it forever mm -hmm. I know I know like I had heard of a couple of guys who drowned mm -hmm. you know what I mean um, because they just got physically tired in the water now remember if it's cold water it's going to take it's going to sap your strength as well you know, your body, your, your body heat's going to dissipate, I think it's 20 times quicker in water than it does in air. So you've got shivers and cold, and then your, your body's going to fight for the organs to survive and everything. So you're hypothermic or whatever, you know. Um, but there's people in the water that, uh, there's a doctor, you know, there's medics, you know what I mean? Um, we did it at nighttime, we did it in the daytime, we've done ice swims, we've crossed lakes, you know, really, really freezing cold lakes, everything like this. Your training becomes more intense. Your free fall becomes more intense. It gets higher, you know. Um, your um, your rock climbing becomes more intense. Uh, your skiing is more intense because you're carrying heavier packs. Um, you're going to different countries now for Arctic warfare training, and we trained with some of the Norwegian commandos who were just absolutely phenomenal. Um, we trained with uh, German commandos, you know, brilliant. Bring we, you know we've done little bits of training with SBS and SAS and this type of stuff, especially in the jungles. And um, when we kind of end up going back down to Belize, um, so yeah, life became life became life again, and I found what I wanted to do. And I after you know a good intense few few months, I graduated Marsoc, and um, my world just opened up big time, you know what I mean? Then I, I got deployed, I was getting deployed. Um, yeah, and the fun, the fun began, you know. So my life took a, from a massive implosion in Belize, you know, with Fiona and, and her dad to, you know, five years later being the best that I could ever possibly be physically. I still had... I wouldn't say uh, I still had mental issues. I still had mental health issues, you know, um, because it dragged a lot of trauma around with me. You know what I mean, and a lot of abuse, um, which is really kind of it's 
it's hard to deal with and it's supposed to be from people that are supposed to love you. But then you find a brotherhood with guys and girls, marine girls, like, you know, who accept everything, everything that's in you, the good, the bad, the ugly, you know what I mean? All that, they, that's all acceptable because everybody around you had the same thing, the same life. Most of these guys that, and girls that I had met, you know, had been abused and raped and, and beaten and, you know, and all this in their lives and then just wanted to make a better life for themselves, mm. you know? Um, so when they say that that's your family, that's that's your family because I would die for the guy on each side of me without hesitation. I would put my life down to make sure, and I know that these they would do the same for me. Mm. So there's no, there's never a question you know, that's a question you never have to ask anybody. You know that that's going to happen. And the only other person who would have done that for me would have been David. Mm. So I kind of remember the stories that he told me when he joined the, the military because he was some small Irish guy, Paddy this and Paddy that and this, that. And the abuse that he got, you know, going joining the British Army from being from Northern Ireland, you're just a Paddy, stupid Paddy, you know what I mean, all that type of stuff. So the stories that I would listen to him telling me, as I got older... I understood the things that he was telling me, whereas when I was younger, I didn't because not that I didn't care. I just hadn't experienced it. And then when I started to experience the own crap, you know, um, I then understood, you know, and he's and they would always say to me, look, you know, Carl, you'll never until you experience this. You'll never understand it, and so this is in life. I don't understand why people give an opinion of something that they've never experienced. <laughs> you know what I mean? I hear like, like I heard, you know, the other day people talking about you know certain topics, and I'm like, I said, oh excuse me, I said I just overheard you, but you know, yeah, because this guy's sitting right here, and he's like, yeah, 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 and I said, well, you know, were you there? Because that's fascinating. No, and I just looked, and I said, well, how, what, how can you have an opinion on something you've never experienced? And he just kind of like. Oh, mind your own business. <laughs> you know what I mean? Quite abruptly and rudely. But I just wanted to put this guy in his spot because I knew that he was talking crap. Yeah. You know? Because I'd been in the situation that he was, he probably saw it in a movie. You know what I mean? Um, and then he was talking with his experience. And I said, oh, geez, you know, when did that happen? Then he couldn't answer the question. And then seen his face go red and he'd seen him getting all tense and getting a bit angry. And I, I just was right, okay. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So didn't want to put him on the spot, but it was just, I generally thought that he'd experience that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So then I began to understand more um, the things that David would tell me, you know what I mean, and the things that he would try to teach me. He never forced anything on me. He would always make, make a suggestion. And I'd go and think about it, and then I'd have thought, I thought of that, and he was just planting a seed in me, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, you know, I would think more now about people's conversations when I'm on my own. Mm-hmm. than I do when I'm actually talking to somebody. Most of the time, I'm you're, you're talking. I hear about 15% of what you're saying to me because I'm still stuck on the first sentence that you've said because my mind, even like at home, people could talk to me and if I have nothing in common with them, my mind just goes blank. Mm-hmm. But I just, I'm like a nodding dog in the back of a car. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like just, yeah, yeah, and I'm not really listening. And I don't mean that to be rude, you know what I mean? But my, I, I process things in a certain way. Things have to be in order for me. And like I was saying, I can't compartmentalize everything. I think about it, it goes into file 13, that's locked, and then that's pushed away at the back. And I think about it, and I don't think about it no more. If it's not important to me, I don't care. Yeah. If it doesn't bring it, anything positive into my life, I am not, I'm not interested in your, in your crap. I'm not interested in your, 
your make-believe or you shoulda, coulda, woulda type of stuff. You know what I mean? There's a lot of Walter Mitty's out there. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a lot of stolen valor. You know what I mean? As a sign I would talk about one day. And I don't understand that, why somebody would go out and buy a uniform and, you know, and then pretend, read up on stuff and then to pretend to actually have been there. You know what I mean? It's, it's, I, have, I have a purple heart at home. You know, I have that stuff, but I don't brag about it. I don't talk about it. Mm. You know, it's on my shelf in my house as you go in. It's there for everybody to see. But I don't brag about it. And, oh, yeah, I got this for, you know, this and this for this. I, I don't do that. You know what I mean? I have a bronze star. You know, I have, I have a silver star. I've got other clusters. I've got that stuff. I don't talk. I don't brag about it. Mm. I've been in situations that would make your hair curl mm-hmm. and the things you would see in movies. But I've also had brothers and sisters in the military with me experience that as well. You know what I mean? And so unless you've... You know, unless you've done something or, you know, along the lines of don't lie about stuff, you know, don't don't lie and, and, and don't, you know, don't don't do that to yourself or don't do it to the people that, you, you know, that you, you're supposed to be respecting, you know what I mean? So when I joined and I got through all that and all through all the training and was able to exit subs, you know, which is not a, you know, it's not a very comfortable feeling when you sit in a little tube sitting there with, you know, six, eight other guys with your gear on, waiting for the light from red to go green, and then you're exiting, like, you know, and then you're coming out of a tube at the side, and, you know, and you and it's pitch black, and the guy in front of you is tapping the sub with a, with a little metal thing to let you know, and your carabine down to him, and you can't see diddly squat, it's like looking at that wall. Your heart's boom, boom, boom. I mean, it's going fast, like, you know, um, and when you look up, you you can't see anything because it's nighttime. So you follow the directions of your bubbles. You're letting the bubbles go, and you know the bubbles, so you know that's up. And then you've got your board with your with your lumen on it, and your, your and your compass and everything. You know what I mean? And then you're deploying your little rigid radar and gas it, and up it goes. You know what I mean? So it's it's intense. So I got to do all that stuff. I got to jump out of perfectly good aircraft, twenty five, thirty thousand feet oxygen jumps. Um, I got to rappel down the side of mountains. You know all that type of stuff. I got to play with some crazy guns, some crazy toys, technology. You know. Um, and I, I got to experience the worst that people can do to each other, you know. But I also was able to give some of the best stuff, being a, being a medic, being a paramedic. You know, not only, you know, we built schools and houses and, you know, little churches and helped villages and, you know, and all that. We had engineers come in and they built wells and, you know, and, and, and they put electricity and they, they brought generators and all. So you're not just fighting a war. You know, you're deployed to a country that's maybe had a hurricane or, you know, that, that's been devastated by a flood and you're able to give back. But mm. people don't see that. Yeah. They just see you as a killing machine. Mm-hmm. And it's always the bad crap that the military get. They never really see the good stuff that you do. You know what I mean? But I don't care. Mm. Somebody else's opinion, me, it's none of my business. I don't care. You don't know me. I'm going to worry about what you say. You know, um, so I, I've done the good and the bad. And I've been involved in that stuff, but the I would never say the good outweighs the bad because it really doesn't. <laughs> but they go hand in hand, mm-hmm. hand wash hand. They go hand in hand, you know. Um, so I had a great, you know, time in the military. I did uh, nearly thirteen years, you know, and uh, I had a brilliant time. I learned some really, really tough life lessons, you know, in the military, you know. And, uh, you know, there's been times that I shouldn't be here, mm-hmm. that my friends are no longer here, but I am. And it makes me question 
how and why that happens. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, eight inches from you, your friend gets four or five rounds in his chest that could have been you, but it's not. You know what I mean? And in one minute, you're you're calling mag, mag change, you know, there's a mag, you know, grenade, you know, whatever. Um, and all of a sudden, you look around and there's a corpse. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there's so many times that I've been in those situations where... I mean, I've been shot twice. It's not a nice experience. I got shot in the in the shin here and then on the side of the knee just by small rounds. Um, and that'll probably come down the line talking about that. Um, but that wasn't in a combat situation. You know what I mean? And uh, I've had dislocated shoulders and arms and I've got a broken arm. I can't straighten the arm no more. Mm. That's that's done now. You know, so I carry injuries, you know, and things that have happened. But I was fortunate really fortunate to still be here. That's why I'm grateful every day. One of the reasons why I'm grateful every day that I, I can wake up, you know what I mean? Um, but, you know, you learn. Would you say that, uh, how you word that, is it easier to be more thankful from the experiences you've had mm-hmm. than it would be for the likes of us? No, I'm not saying for the likes of you guys, you know what I mean? Because I don't know what you've... I know, I yeah, understand I'm trying to find a way to word that. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Would it, would it be fair to say somebody who has... Your life before. ...many times yeah. to go, actually, I'm, I'm very thankful to be here today because I know what I know how easy it is yeah. to not be here. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's a lesson. That's, you know, that's a lesson I I, I relive every day. I, I I wake up and I'm I'm grateful for more than anybody could really mm. understand. You know, so, yeah. and that's that. That's something that I take with me every day. I'm never. I don't. Uh, how can I say this? I. I don't plan for the future no more. You know, I live through the day, and if I wake up the next day, I'll live through that day. Mm. And then if I live, live through the next day, I'll live through the next. I don't plan. I don't plan to go anywhere. I didn't plan to come here today because mm-hmm. I didn't know if I was going to if I was going to wake up. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I woke up today, you know, and had my couple of cups of coffee, I knew I was going to be here. Mm-hmm. But tomorrow, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. So I'll never say, yeah, yeah, we'll go here tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I don't live like that. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I don't know if that's a, I I don't know if that's a, you know, a, a crap way of living. You know what I mean? But it's how I live. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, and that's why, like, when you, I am grateful for all that type of stuff. So, but my life has been amazing. Um, and I'm thankful to be able to have been in positions where I've had, like, I learned from Sai, like, I've learned from him what it's like to be spiritual because I'm not really like that. You know what I mean? And I've had loads of friends who, like, in the Marines, they would go to Bible class, Bible, and I'd be one of the only guys kind of like sitting there you know, drinking a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody would be prayers because you've got Catholics and Protestants, you've got Jews, you know, mm-hmm. you've got Muslims, you've got all different... And there's me sitting there, you know, Billy Nomates, just waiting for people to finish the prayers and stuff, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> it just wasn't my scene. Yeah, 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 It just wasn't me, you know, anything that I was interested in because I'd seen so much happen and I'd asked and prayed <clears throat> before and got no answers. Now, I know that, you know, God, you know, doesn't work and it doesn't always answer and there's not always a there's not always an explanation and there's not always you know the answers sometimes don't look like we think they're going to look exactly you know what i mean so um but i'm more spiritual now um you know because i wouldn't say it's because 
Well, maybe it is because of the things that I've seen and experienced that, mm. like I said earlier on, there has to be better than this. There has to be somewhere else that we go. You know, um, are we just here to to eat, breed, live and die? And then once we, we die, we cease and that's it? Well, we'll answer that in the next episode. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, you, you know what I'm saying? It's just really, it's kind of like, a, it's probably one of those questions that, you, you know, I don't know. Be- because I'm not a faithful person, yeah. you know, um, I don't go to, ch- it's, not I don't, it's not that I don't believe in God, you know. I believe that somebody created us, somebody better than us created us. Mm. Whether it was in his image or her image or whatever the way that people want to say it these days, I don't know. You know what I mean? But um, it's, I think it's one of those questions for me. I don't think I'll get a definitive answer, but I just I do like to think that, you know, if my time comes and I do expire, that I go to the nice place. Mm-hmm. That's what I'd like to think. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, but yeah. Colin, again, <laughs> I don't know. We could be doing this in like 10 years time. It's like, would you come back for one more episode? <laughs> I'll come back anytime. <laughs> Still about the month of July in 1985. <laughs> no. should do an hour or two. Yeah. No, Colin, I appreciate it. There's, no um, problem. There's lots left to, to talk about. Yeah, no worries. We opened the series now, I guess we can call it a series. We opened the series um, kind of promising we talk about PTSD. You've already shared quite a lot. I'm sure you'll share yeah. some more next time, but it would be, it'd be good to unpack some of that and see how... That I'm going to use a terrible word and say that season of your life mm. or the things you have experienced, uh, how you move forward through the after effects of some yeah. of that as well today. Yeah. It would be interesting. Yeah. Thanks, Sai. Thank you, Roscoe. Thank you. Adam, good to have you here. Thank you, very much. Thank you for listening and watching. Uh, Catch you again next time. Unbelievable. Back again. Here we are. Colin, thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me. Very, very cool. We're just going to see where this goes, as always. Is yeah. this part three? Is this part four? Three. Unbelievable. Part three. Wow. So we left off last time where you were talking about the, really the start of your military career. Yeah. yeah. And let's pick up from there. What do you, is important for you to tell us? Um, I think for me, I, th- I think because I don't really speak about, you know, the things that I've experienced, um, and and I get this question quite a lot was what what I did or what what my role was. Um, I was part of a, a CQB team basically. Um, it was an eight man team, and our job was basically to clear buildings for Overwatch snipers or whoever was going to occupy, whether it was intelligence or whoever was going into that building. My job was to clear them. So anybody that was in there that uh, wasn't supposed to be or offered resistance with firearms or whatever, we cleared those buildings out. We made them safe. And so Overwatch would come in. They would take the top floor and they would set up. We would take the bottom floor uh, just below them. And we get try and aim for the tallest buildings possible. We hoped that the, the uh, intel that we got was reliable which it really sometimes really wasn't. And we were quite often in the middle of hornet's nests. So and quite a few times uh, things didn't succeed and we had to pull back. But what we would primarily do is we would hey-ho or halo in. And I don't know if you know what that is. I don't. Halo jump is high altitude, low opening. 
which is an oxygen jump. And you jump at certain heights and then you deploy low um, and, and vice versa, basically. So we would um, fly in, drop, open, and tab in. Tab in is walking. And so we would walk, I don't know, it could be eight kilometers, maybe less, uh, undercover darkness. And uh, we would go in, we would pick the target, um, and we would enter that building, and then we would clear it. And um, make it safe, as said before. Um, then whoever came in, came in. We would stay for a couple of days to make sure that everything was good. And then another green team would come in and they would take our place. And we would move on to the next one. Mm. So basically sometimes, not all the time, there could be three or four buildings that were cleared and you'd have overwatch from those positions. It depended on um, on what was going on in the area. Uh, or if they, if it was just intelligence gathering, or if it was there to basically arrange a meeting somewhere else, yeah. basically, um, uh, and and that was it. And that's what I did. And the rush doing that is like something you you never feel. Nothing can ever. I don't think anything I've ever done has has ever replaced the adrenaline rush that you get from that. And the scary thing about that type of uh, that type of job is you, you become a sponge and you soak it up and the more you do it the more you want you know what I mean you don't worry about the first guy in through the door because that first guy could potentially take whatever's coming at him entering that but the amount of training that you do and the amount of rounds that you put down to be able to do that it becomes second nature mm. so and you you rely on the guys behind you 1,000%. You know what I mean? So sometimes it doesn't always go to plan. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are fatalities and, you know, <clears throat> you do lose uh, team members and stuff. But Can I just ask? I've yeah. always, always wondered this. If someone is protecting a door, mm. let's say there's five guys, mm. guns pointed at the door, yeah. and your job is to go into that room, yeah. how on earth do you go about even remotely try attempting that? If there's somebody on the other side of the doors, yeah. well, you would put a charge, the charge would be applied, that door would be open, and then frags would go in or flashbangs <coughs> would go in. And not like in the movies where you see one flashbang go in and you you chuck these things in, you know what I mean, rapidly. On each of our packs, we carry flashbangs at the back, so the guy behind you will take a flashbang, he could pass that forward, or they could step up and throw it, but you just, it's it goes in and... Uh, so you want to create as much chaos as possible on the other as side. As much chaos as possible, noise, chaos. If it's a, if, you know, if it's a silent entry, um, it's that's a different that's a different thing. You know what I mean? Um, again, it depends on the intelligence that you're given. How many people are on site? You know, um, alphas or tangos are on site. If you want to put it like that, um, your method of entry. Um, it, it's there's a lot to play, and it, things change. You know, you might have a plan, um, and then you get on site and then something else happens and then you have to think and reorganize that plan and then come up with something different you know that's why in in a team you know yes there is uh you know there is there's one guy who is the leader but everybody has a say you know there's no oh that's a stupid idea or no i'm not going with that you all have a say and you formulate a plan mm -hmm. and that's it you know and then you, you go from that and that's what you do you know everybody's trained hard to get to where they are Everybody's done the same training as you. So, you know, there's nobody better. We don't look 
like in the regular army of a sergeant or a corporal, you know, and but for us it was different. We we just had a, we had teams, and because we relied on each other and we believed each other and we loved each other and we worked and we slept and we ate and we fought and we played together, you know, there's a bond there that um, that's never broken, and you never say no. That's stupid. You sit in your form, you think on your feet. You're trained to think on your feet. It doesn't work all the time. Um, things can go pear-shaped, as they quite often do. Um, and sometimes you, you have to bug out. You have to just backtrace your steps and, and leave. You know mm. what I mean? It's not all like it is in the movies <coughs> where everything is successful. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, a typical scenario is when they, when they, um, when they went into uh, to get uh, Osama. And one of the choppers broke down, hit the wall, and so forth. And they had to, those guys had to reorganize and and do and do different things. And they just carried on with the mission. Mm. You know what I mean? So you know things don't always go to plan. Machines don't always work properly. Um, sometimes people don't always work properly. I've been in teams where I had one guy freeze, mm. and he just froze, and that was it. And he was just catatonic. You know what I mean? And we just left him and we just carried on. But we got, went back and he was safe. He was he was put into an area that was safe. We couldn't mm-hmm. leave anybody with him to watch him because mm-hmm. we needed everybody to to complete the mission. Um, but we went back and he was still there and we, we got him out and that guy was uh, hospitalised. Wow. And uh, whatever clicked in his head, whatever whatever reminded him or whatever made him do that, he was never the same again. I've never seen him since. Uh, I don't know whether he's he's living or breathing, you know, you stay in touch with somebody, but, you know, certain elements come into play mm-hmm. and you hope that they're okay, but you just move on. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's it. That uh, sponge idea you talked about mm. where you you kind of, you develop this kind of itch for yeah. it. Yeah. Did that ever, I don't know, I want to say get you in trouble, I mean, more on the personal front where you're maybe, you're, you're hungry for it or you're looking yeah. for it where maybe you, you should have, pulled back or? yeah that only happened to me um when i became a contractor when i left and, and went into contracting um being a contractor is not glamorous it's not like you know it's not glamorous at all you, you're a glorified armed babysitter and the amount of crap that you have to deal <laughs> with from clients who have absolutely no idea about what you do or what you've done before you know, whether it's in the military or, you know, they have no clue. They just come in and they want to be. And I don't like that. I don't like people clicking fingers at me or being rude. <clears throat> An example of that. Um, I worked for a very well-known uh, security company, two very well-known security companies. Uh, I'm not going to say the names, obviously, you know what I mean? Um, and I worked for one for <coughs> seven years. And um, the guys were great. The guys that you worked with were great, but it was the people in charge of the camps that you you had to deal with. Um, a lot of these guys are all ex-military. The stores, especially guys who are in charge of giving you kit that you're supposed to have and you don't get because you think that these guys paid for it themselves. Medical kit. Um, we I took a very bad IED that, uh, in 2011, uh, which I was involved in which I was lucky enough not to be injured in. And I had no medical kit. I had none. You know, I had black uh, duct tape. Uh, I had a, a couple of lollipop sticks for splints, broken fingers. I had two uh, tourniquet cats, uh, quick-action tourniquets. Um, 
and uh, a bag of fluid. That was it. And I was working on a contract <coughs> for Shell Oil. Okay. <laughs> and these guys had no clue that what we didn't have, mm. you know. But if you went to complain about something, you lost your job. And that was it, you know. And the guy that I worked on, um, a guy called Steve Johnson at the time, an ex-Para guy, um, was... His driver was blown to bits. I think I mentioned this before. His driver was... He took the, the blunt and the brass, Louis, because he was quite a, a, a fat uh, type of dude, quite a jolly type of guy. But he took the whole blast, and Steve was lucky because Louis had shielded him, but it peeled Steve's face like an orange, and it blew his eye out, and it blew his nose and his ear... Uh, and and his hand, he lost. It. He ended up losing his losing his arm. Yeah, his ribs, everything was peppered. Um, his face was just basically plastered on the windscreen, mm-hmm. along with Louis's head, basically. Um, and when I opened up the door, um, I drove through the blast. Um, we didn't know what was coming, uh, but every it was weird because everybody was on the side of the road with cameras, and I'd pass this information from three to one vehicle, three to vehicle one, and everybody standing there, but. The road that we travelled on was also travelled on by the American military. And if anything usually was going to happen, you know, contractors very rarely got hit ex- except for the early days. Um, we weren't really a threat to them. We just carried um, clients back and forth to meetings, to oil fields, to, to other camps. <clears throat> so we weren't really targeted that very much. Um, and yes, contractors did, did, did get killed and they, they did get blown up and you know, uh, and 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 uh, the, I have a couple of quite gruesome documentaries on on that, and you know what I'm talking about, psychos. I think you've you've seen that. Um, so they did get killed from time to time, um, and I found out later the reason why we got hit was one of the guys in. And I'm not going to say his name. Um, on the move that morning for us, we went through a, a funeral, a Iraqi funeral, and one of the guys were giving these guys the finger. Crazy. Okay, so they targeted us, but they targeted his specific vehicle because his vehicle was gold and ours was white, you know, and usually um, the first vehicle would usually get it, but they didn't. His was the second vehicle. <clears throat> and so they let the first vehicle through and I was be eyes behind him about five meters, and my camera because we carry cameras on our dash. And I had a, a pair of sunglasses with a camera on it, and I also carried a, a small camera here too because sometimes the Iraqi uh, security guys would try and take him off you. So I always had backup, you know. Um, anyway, this guy was giving him the fingers, and none of us knew about it. And they targeted us, and they targeted him, and uh, he he got smashed to high heaven. And uh, he was very, very lucky. After that incident, um, and I didn't know, know the guy that well. I'd stepped in as a medic to do two extra weeks. And the guy's like, no, go home, go home. You know, this shit happens. You're going to get, you know, you just just go home. And I was like, no. Is that kind of the superstition where if you, stay, if you overstay the, your job? If you've gone through your 12 weeks with no, no dramas, go home. Right. Take your leave. Take your three weeks leave. Go home. You know, get drunk. You know, do whatever you're gonna do. Get it out your system and get ready to go back again. You know what I mean? Because each time you went out there, you you didn't know if you were gonna go home. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And uh, like the early days, yeah, I I had met guys that had gone through. I mean, I've gone through a lot of stuff. Because I've worked in, in in different countries and. 
I'm just a shit magnet, basically. I think you know what I mean. To be honest, um, I'm just one of those guys that uh, I don't know that, that crap follows. Nobody really wanted to work with me. My nickname was Lucky Charm. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I was a floater medic. I was never assigned to one team. I would go to different teams each rotation I went in. But um, yeah, it's uh, you never knew if you were going to go home. You know, so and and I went through quite a long period of time where nothing happened. Mm-hmm. You know, and then all of a sudden shit <clears throat> would would happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and it and it they say things happen in threes. Well, I survived three IDs in one month, and uh, yeah, that was that was quite a colourful period. I don't know. I don't know why it didn't affect me. I don't know why. Um, to be quite honest. Um, when when uh, when we took the ID in two thousand, it was Father's Day. It was a Sunday, half seven in the morning, nineteenth of June, two thousand and eleven, when we got smashed up. And I remember, you know, uh, I think I've t- I think I've told you this. I we had this uh, when we left the camp. It was just um, a, a shitty camp in the middle of Al Zubayr, and Al Zubayr is was run by Katabi Hezbollah. These are the guys that put you in an orange jumpsuit and just relieved your head from the rest of your body. And then they would post videos online. Um, the morning that we got smashed up, we all lined up. I think our call sign was Sierra 6. So you had nine call signs in the morning. So we get up in the morning, go to the gym, go for breakfast, get a shower, you know, meet the team, talk about the plan, um, Go to your vehicle, make sure the vehicles are all clean, water for the clients. You go to the, you get your gun from the armory. Um, you had a pistol, which was a, a I think it was a, a CZ uh, nine millimeter, Checkers Wacken nine millimeter, look, which looked like a P two two six, like a Navy Seal pistol. Not not a bad not a bad pistol, heavy, but I, I liked them. They did the job. If you if you squeezed and, you know, they would they would send the the good news downrange, um, and you had a short AK. Um, which was probably an M92 or something, um, very loud. It had the big flashbang on the end, which made a lot of noise. So I think the noise would scare people more than actually getting hit by the round. Um, anyway, we'd go, we'd load up, um, get into the vehicle. Each, you know, the TL would call out, yeah, we're okay, good to go, leave. Uh, and I remember we pulled out, and you could go two ways. You could go left, which was a dirt road, which just took you a shortcut to where you were going. But you never knew if there was anything on them. I mean, you saw the tracks of the vehicles that went through these all the time. You didn't know if there was something on that was buried that it was going to go boom. So every day it was a chance that you took getting to your destination. The morning we went out, we took a right 300 metres onto the main road. So once we got to the main road, I was the last vehicle. I would call three on the main, which meant three vehicles now on the main road. And that would go from two to one. And then we travelled up uh, about another half a mile and we came to a railway crossing. And on the railway crossing, um, I never really seen a train on it, to be honest, um, but this, you know, there was a small Iraqi uh, cabin and this guy was a guard. And every morning he would do this and that's water. Or he would say, my, and water. So I'd throw two big, you know, 12 cases of water out to him. The poor guy would just be standing there all day. This particular morning, guys are standing there with cameras. Right. The minute we hit the main, and 
place called ISIS 3 to 1, ISIS cameras everywhere. Something's going down, you know. We didn't have any reports that morning of anything untowards, but you never know. I didn't never took nothing for granted. And uh, so we travelled up, we got to the we got to the uh, railway crossing and this big two Ford F one fifties pulled up beside us. And on these Ford F one fifties are two big browning mounted machine guns. And in my window there's a small port. I locked my AK and I put that through the window. So I don't know why. I put it through the window. And the Iraqi guy turned at me and he went throat slash. You know what I mean? I did this to him at first. They either do this or they do this. If they do that, they're not interested in you. But this guy did this to me, okay? So I put it out the window, and I just, okay. That's all right. He didn't do nothing. Climbed out of his truck. He went down to the security guard. Usually he would wave at us. Not this morning. And the Iraqis kiss each other on the cheek. And the Iraqi guard said something to him. They got in their trucks, and they just about faced down the other side of the road. And I said to my TL, I says, um, we're going to get smashed. We're, we're going to get smashed. No, no, it's, we've known, it's okay, it's okay. So we're going to get fucking smashed. And that was the one time my spider sense kicked in, mm. you know, and I had tingles and I my heart was beating. I could hear my heart in my ear. And... Uh, no, it's, everything's going to be okay. We no intel this morning, you know, blah, 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 blah. So we were going to Ramela, which is a big oil field. And it was about a two and a half hour drive. Now, we drove this three or four times a week, you know what I mean, with no dramas. We'd get stopped by dodgy checkpoints and they'd ask you for water. They'd try and check your ID on your weapons, you know, all this type of shit, you know. Um, this particular morning was just, it was different. It was just different. And so I just says. You know, three to one, this, we're going to get... No, it's okay, it's okay. A big truck pulled in once these two Ford F-150s went... They were, because in Iraq, the roads are big. <laughs> but the traffic comes down the same way. <laughs> There's one road this way and one road that way, but the traffic will go up and down on the same road. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's just that much traffic. They don't give a shit. They'll, they'll call each other on the swearing and cussing and all this road beeping, and the police don't care. They, they, the security don't care. And at the top of the road was a big roundabout. On each side of the roundabout was a mosque. We called it Twin Mosque Roundabout, <clears throat> you know. Never had any dramas there before. Never, you know. But you just because there's no dramas doesn't mean to say there's, there's not going to be one. Yeah. So anyway, this big lorry came in, pushed in between vehicle one and two. And it pushed Liam, a guy called Liam, uh, an ex-barra guy. Big unit, real nice guy. Very easy going, very slow talking, um, his vehicle was pushed up, way up. So they pushed his vehicle, and they separated him between Steve and me at the back. So when you're moving through a city, you're up tight. You're close into each other. There's no spaces. So you get as tight as you can so no other vehicles can come through. Some You might get a sticky bomb, magnetic bomb in the back. You know, when that goes on, you can't get out of your vehicle to get it. You're going to go boom. You're gonna, it's going to be night-night. So Liam was pushed up. Um, and he says, oh, he says, I'm, I'm being pushed, I can't stop, you know, to go with the traffic. He says, I'll stop, I'll pull up, and, and I'll, I'll wait for you. <clears throat> no worries. And now our vehicles, there's a red button, and it's a transponder. You hit that button, it sends a panic back to the ops room. So they know exactly, they're monitoring you anyway on the screen because your, your vehicles have a transponder. 
so they're monitoring you anyway, so they know where you are, and you're in the TLs in constant communications uh, with the with the ops team, and they're, they're somebody. You just hope that somebody in the ops room is not watching porn or sure. something like that and paying attention to what's going on, because a lot of them just chat. Uh, anyway, name got pushed up. A few minutes later, we were cleared, and I said to Steve, we, we're going to get hit. No, it's okay, Liam, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. In the middle of the road is a grass verge, grass median, and on that median there was a little fruit stall. And every morning um, you see the little guy chopping his fruit and drinks, and, you know, and people would pull in and buy, and buy stuff. So we drove up, and uh, I was about probably four metres, five metres behind Steve, and next thing, boom. And I saw this blinding flash. That was it. And the little guy disappeared. The The IED was where he was, so he disappeared. They blew him up as well, so he had no idea. Poor guy had no idea what was going on. And that's when it hit Steve's vehicle, and it went through Louis. And now the the glass on the armoured vehicle is two inches thick, and it's and it's armoured glass. So whatever went through his window left a perfect six-inch diameter hole, but just above the sill. I have a picture of it on my phone. And it went through the vehicle, straight through. And we were only doing 10, 10 miles an hour. So they targeted Steve's vehicle. And... My vehicle rocked going through the blast. It was just black. I couldn't see anything. My driver just automatically white-knuckled and he, he, he peed and pooped himself. Just, he, you know, I don't know if he knew what was going to I have no idea. And as we pulled through that, I saw Steve's vehicle veer off to the right and the brake lights were coming on and he hit a metal barrier. And for some reason, when we got through that, I just said to myself, I can live without my legs, but I can't live without my head. And I pulled my seat back as far as it could go. I just dropped it like this. And my driver, Ali, they're all Ali to me. I couldn't remember the name. So I had Ali number one to number eight at times, you know what I mean? And they all thought it was funny. It wasn't derogatory. It was just a joke with these guys. Um, because really nobody took time to joke with them. You know what I mean? They're all called derogatory names and all that type of stuff. I... The guys I work with, I just tried to have a good rapport. You know what I mean? Um, they would call me doctor, nice. you know, which was, you know, pretty pretty cool. Um, um, and I would have a coffee in their room. I would go and see them. I would make sure if I went to the States, I'd bring them back a little cheap Casio watch. They all had the same watches or a, a cheap set of Ray-Bans or something. Like, so they all, all kind of looked the same. And I think I was probably only, and I wasn't a TL. I was just a medic. I, I think I was the only guy who did that. I'm, I'm not too sure. I could be wrong. Anyway. Pulled in. My driver knew exactly what to do. He pulled up alongside the vehicle to do embus debus drills. And I remember I just hit the panic button straight away. Contact, contact, contact. Alzebra roundabout. Um, Steve's vehicle's been hit. You know what I mean? Liam's been pushed up. And I'm sure Liam was on a, his frequency talking back. Um, and so I was on my own. And uh, it wasn't the first time. I just had a feeling that this time was going to be different. I uh, looked at Steve's window and it had blown out like a white snow cone. I looked at that and I was just like, what a, what's that? You know, because the brake lights were still kind of going. And I was like, fuck, you know, this is, he's, he's been smashed. And uh, so 
checked. It's all loaded from before. I took my driver's pistol because they didn't carry AKs. And I didn't know if this guy was going to turn around and give me the good news. I had no <laughs> idea. So I took his pistol. And on my body armor, I had uh, my pistol was here, but I had a, an empty holster. So when I got out of my vehicle, I took my pistol from here to there because in a vehicle, you can't really pull. Mm-hmm. So I kept it here and it was easy to, to pull and, mm-hmm. and launch. So when I got out, his pistol went here. I just racked it, took the, the, the hammer off and put it in so it was it was good to go. And I got out of that vehicle and I looked around and I was on my own. My driver was glued, God bless his cotton socks. He was glued to the wheel. I mean, he went from being brown to white mm-hmm. to gray, you know what I mean? And, and he just, you know, pooped himself and vomited and, and everything, you know what I mean? So that, that that guy had never seen anything go, go bin before. So he was just glued to that wheel. And it was just like talking to a corpse. I'm like, don't move anywhere. Don't fucking go anywhere. Don't, don't leave me. Because these guys would drive off and leave you, you know? So I got out, opened my front door and the back door to give myself a bit of protection. And I thought, well, if they're going to, somebody's going to come for me, they're going to blow my legs off. But um, I had protection from these two doors. And I went to Louis' door and I pulled up. And I looked in there and this guy was just a mess. Mm. Guts everywhere, no arm, everything, just just a mess. Half his head was sheared, and you know he was sitting like a goldfish out of water. His, his face was gone. There was nothing I could do for him. He was just done. I could hear Steve screaming. Um, cleared around my vehicle, checked right. There was loads of people on the street with cameras. I didn't know what was going on. I saw a vehicle come down with a large lens, and I thought it was a, a RPG. And I sent the good news over to this guy and uh, changed mags and moved moved on, moved around. I got around the side of Steve's vehicle and he was screaming. And uh, there's a small village on each side of the road. And these guys, I just saw guys in black and white. Doesn't mean anything because people wear black and white all the time. But I just saw these guys black and white, about eight or ten of them coming out they didn't have anything in the hand but it didn't mean to say they didn't have nothing in the, the pockets and stuff they could have had grenades they could have had a pistol knives I didn't know and I put it up and I imshi imshi stay back and these guys were like this and my my heart was beating I thought my head was going to explode and uh, I thought that that was going to be my last day on this planet and I just basically said goodbye to everybody that was in my life and I just said I hope to see you in the next in the next world and uh, but I remember being really calm, really, really calm, because I said to myself, if I panic now and something happens, I'm I'm going to die. I'm not going to be able to defend myself. But at the same time, I said to myself, if they do come for me, I'm going to fight. And I don't mean this to sound like a Hollywood movie or to be all bravado. I'm going to fight to the last round that I have, and I'm going to try and take as many of these guys as I can before. I eventually go, and if they don't get me, and I've got one round left, that's that's for me. You know, that's gonna be that's gonna be my good night pill. That's it. I'm not gonna be taken. I'm not gonna be put in a room, videoed. I'm not gonna have none of that stuff. Sure. I'm just gonna eat eat one. Thankfully, that never happened. Um, uh, my most immediate drill at that moment in time was to get Steve into my vehicle and get medications or get give him some type of. I didn't know what 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 was wrong with him. And I opened up the door, and he was alive. He was screaming. You know, the, I don't know what pain that guy was going through. You know what I mean? And I remember saying to him, 
you have to get out of this vehicle, Steve. I've got to get you into my vehicle. I had all the med kit. I've got to get you into the back of my vehicle. And he stopped screaming. And he got out. And he walked to my vehicle. <laughs> just stopped. You know, just switched off. And I got him into the back of the vehicle. I couldn't get any, any veins in his hands, so I took his boots off and I got fluids and got big veins on the side of your ankles. I took, got the fluids into that. Did you shout at him? Did you talk calmly I did. to I him? I shouted did at you? him. I shouted I just basically shut the fuck up. Yeah. You know what I mean? You need to shut your mouth. You need to listen to what I'm saying. You know what I mean? We're, we're in a shit situation here. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're, we need to and get what, you. what do you think that activated in him that enabled him to get out of the car? Um, stop screaming. Is survival it, is it training is it human based I don't know what it was is in it... Steve you know what I mean I didn't know Steve I spent two weeks with him mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying the guy's a para you know I've met I've met airborne guys from different countries who are just animals you know what I'm saying I think in certain situations he knew that he was hurt he had two daughters and a wife and he said call get me home because mm. he was taking them kids to Disney World a week after he got home you know what I mean and he says get me home and I says, I need you to shut your fucking mouth. I need you to wind your neck and pin your fucking ears back and get into my vehicle, Steve, or you're not going to get home. And that, I think that did it. I said, you're not going to see your kids. Get into my vehicle now. And he stopped. And and he staggered. He didn't get out walking like he wasn't in pain. He suffered, you know what I mean? And I says, listen to me. Watch what I'm doing. I mean, his face was covered in blood. His eye was blown. He, was just, he couldn't see. I can't see, Cole. I'll see for you. Mm. Get out! I'm not like uh, there's nobody else there. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I had to watch him and watch these other guys and constantly, you know, looking back and checking and hoping that my guy wouldn't drive off. You know what I mean? So I had to, I got him out of his side, um, and walked him round the back of my vehicle in, to get into the back of my vehicle. So that ten or twelve feet was, in my mind, an hour. Mm. But see, he was leaning and walking and he was on me and Steve's a big dude you know he's got body armor on you know what I mean and I'm walking with him you know and I'm trying to get him into my vehicle and I'm checking arcs at all times you know what I mean is, is somebody going to throw something is somebody going to come down again you know are these guys going to pull something is you know is, is, is there a sniper I don't know you know what I mean this was playing my mind but my immediate drill was to get him into the vehicle and get him fixed as much as I could. I noticed when he got out that his hand was just hanging on by skin. And there wasn't much blood. But he had, you know, he had wounds. Um, his eye, obviously, his nose, his, he had a dent in the side of his head. He was in bad shape. So I got him into the back of my vehicle, laid him down, went to the back of my vehicle, got my, my bug out bag, because I had no kit for these guys, so I brought my own trauma kit in. I took a cat out. Um, <clears throat> I took out a bag of fluid. Um, and that was it. I couldn't give him any morphine. We didn't have it. You can't give morphine to somebody with a head injury. Um, I just hoped for the best. So his face, his face was bleeding just really bad because you have loads of small capillaries. That's why when you get a head cut or a face, it looks worse than it is. When you get nicked with a shave, it bleeds a lot. So it's, done, it's not really bad, but it was because it was an avulsion. It was a flap. You know, um, I just basically had to pull that on and bandage. I covered both eyes because he had glass in this eye. And I couldn't take it out, so I bandaged both, and it relieved the pressure of him blinking. So I cleaned his, best, uh, his face as best I could, um, uh, assessed the damage on that, loosely 
put a, a pad over it, bandaged him up, um, and went to his hand. There was not much blood, which was really weird. So I took that hand, and I taped it on with duct tape. <laughs> That's all I had. Um, and a bandage. And I put a cat tourniquet just up above it a little bit and got it on the side as I could. And all the time, Steve's screaming, you know what I mean? So and all the time, I'm trying to watch to see what's going on, you know what I mean? And, and trying to give my driver instructions to calm down and get ready to move. And I had Liam in this ear, I'm coming down, I'm, I'm, thank you. I'm coming down, I'm coming down, call. And he had to run the whole way from sure. the, the Twin Mosques, which probably was a good mile, mm. mile and a half on his own because his vehicle got stuck. And I could hear him coming in and I couldn't, get, I said, I saw it. Steve's been hit Liam, you know, blah, 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 blah. I never heard back from, I never heard back from our comms room. So whether, I knew Liam was getting, but they're not going to directly say to me. So he was making his way down to me. When I got Steve in, I got fluids in. I, put, I couldn't hang them, so I put the fluids under his body armour and pushed the fluids in quicker. So I only had one bag, got his bleeding stopped. He started screaming again. Um, and then he asked me to shoot him. Shoot me, Carl. Just shoot me. I says, no, I'm not going to do that. You've got your kids. Just, just fucking shoot me. It's, it's too much. And I says, you're a para, Steve. You're a para. Just wind your neck in, shut your mouth, listen to my voice. Or you're going to get home. Oh, you're fucking lying to me. You just, you know, all this type of stuff. So I, the amount of pain that he was going through, I, I, I don't know. You know what I mean? And then he stopped. And I thought he died. His breathing just went way down. The guy's gone into shock. Um, I was checking him, checking pulses, you know, making sure that he'd vomited. I turned his head, cleaned his, you know, cleaned his mouth out. He was white, you know what I mean? He was going into hypervolemic shock, losing blood. I had one bag of fluids, you know what I mean? You know, I, I thought, he's going to go, he's going to die, you know what I mean? And anyway, Liam came down, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, eight or nine little flatbeds pulled up all armed to the teeth. Just from straight across the road. And these fuckers had sat and watched the whole thing. I don't even know if they had set it off. I have no idea, but they were supposedly the fire brigade. They had no insignia, no cap badges, just dark blue uniforms. And there was one guy, and he looked like a rat, this little skinny guy. And they all have Saddam moustaches, you know what I mean? And this guy had his finger on his AK, and he just stared at me. He had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. It was like Butch Cassidy in the Sundance Kid. And he just stared at me, and I said, Salam Alaikum. And the guy says, Alaikum Salam. And my, my Arabic or Farsi back then was quite limited. You know what I mean? So I, I says, um, I can't remember what I said. Uh, Ishmi Colin, uh, Abu Connor. My name is Colin, father of Connor. Something along those lines. Uh, you know, and usually they would do this. You know, it's, it's okay, like that there. And I just went like that. And not one of them did that. Not, not, nobody did nothing. They didn't give me this. They didn't give me just. You know, kind of looked around and they were trying to look in at Steve and take photographs and fucking pushing people back. Like, you know, they're trying to get into the back of my, my vehicle to get my kit. I pulled the, the, the back down because we had Toyota Land Cruisers. But they were more interested in taking pictures of, of Louis dying, you know. And uh, next thing, Liam landed on scene and I had another gun. So my AK was racked, the safety was off, and I just stared at this guy. I said, you're going to fucking get it first. I'm going to kill you first. You put you 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 touch that and you point at my direct you're gonna fucking go and meet Allah, mate. I'm gonna arrange that meeting for you. And it was then I started to get angry. You know? And this guy's just staring at me, you know, and everybody else is kinda like interested in going to see what was happening. 
and the 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 commander of this ragtag fucking um fire brigade team was trying <clears> to speak to me and he speak very quickly and I'm like you know shway 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 you know easy stop stop shway shway and then Liam came down and Liam started engaging this guy in conversation you know and I saw Liam rack as he came down and I just thought I have another gun you know what I mean and I just thought this is we're equal now you're going to get it this one guy just looked at me and I just turned and I just I just put it on him and I shouldn't have done that I could have been arrested for that you know what I mean and I just put the gun, I just put it on him and I stared at him and then he just kind of you know, dropped his head down and he took his finger off and I just stared at that guy and I wanted to I wanted to give him the good news. I wanted to smash him to a red spot at that particular moment in time. And I, like I'd say, was these guys have done this, they've set this up because they've just appeared out of nowhere, you know. Mm. So when I lay him engaged with this guy anyway, I went back to check Steve. Um, Steve was quiet. I just thought he died. I couldn't see him breathing. My driver had loosened up a bit and I says, Ali, we're, we're going, you know what I mean? So then Liam's drivers came down and they went straight to Louis, um, and uh, there was nothing could be done for him. And they were, why, why are you not fixed, Louis? Why are you not fixed? I said, he's fucking dead. You can't fix dead. You sure. know, but these guys didn't understand. That was their friend, you know what I mean? And uh, so they started to kick off a little bit. And I just took the weapons off them, and they just got in the vehicle and drove off. I stole one of the vehicles with Louis and, and, and left. That was it. Steve's vehicle was left on the side of the road. Um, Liam, you know, got in, and we up the road and then Liam started to give a sip rep to the guys back uh, I couldn't hear what was what was being said I'm trying to get into the back to check Steve Steve started screaming again um, and uh, he just shoot me call shoot me and then he was like do I have my nuts have I got everything down there and I just ripped his pants open because he had taken shrapnel I ripped his pants open and I said Steve you're all there buddy it's all there mate and he goes oh he says my wife will be pleased <laughs> you know, he was you know, he was always joking about something, you know. Yeah. Even in that moment of the pain that he was in, he found time for a bit of humour. You know what I mean? And I've worked on guys um, that have been blown up and shot and all this type of stuff, and most of them cry for the mum. Interesting. Most of them cry for the mum. And all he was interested in was giving his wife a bit when he got home. So funny. You know what I mean? And that, and I was just... I, I just cracked up. <laughs> I started laughing. You know what I mean? And... Uh, so, and then a couple of minutes later, I was telling Steve, we were, we were about 40, 50 minutes out from Basra Cobb, from the, from the airport, because the, the, the camp was at the airport. You had the airport one side, and you had all the contractors camp on the other, but you had an American hospital there. So Liam was arranging, you know, to get straight through to the, to the med center, you know what I mean? And so I'm in the back, and we're hitting potholes, and I'm getting bumped and bashed all over the place, because we don't wear seatbelts. And uh, there was nothing I could do for Steve. That was it. He was either going to live or he was going to die. You know, the Heavenly Father or whoever was, was, in, was in charge of that, at that particular time. I left him in, in his hands, you know. I couldn't do nothing more. So I worked, I'm speaking to Liam, um, and then I remember I'd, I'd never been in the area before, so I wasn't familiar. I just saw the river was on, on the left-hand side. We were on a dirt track, and then all of a sudden the American military came towards us, and these fuckers brush you up. These guys will just rip you to pieces and drive on. What? Sorry, what do you mean by that? I mean, if you come at the American military, you know, you, you stop and let them by. Otherwise, they brush you up. 
Man. They think it's a threat. They think mm. there could be a, a VBID vehicle born, you know, device, you know. So they just shoot first, ask questions later. We were just later. flicking lights and everything. And luckily, they just flicked back at us, you know what I mean? And they just let us, they just zoomed past us and these guys were saluting us and all this type of stuff. Whew. Wow. You know what I mean? And I just thought, you know, there's another drama we don't need. Because, um, uh, you know, everybody think the American are just killers. They're not, you know what I mean? They were put in a shitty situation the place they didn't want to be, hmm. and they had to deal with the crap that came at them. You know what I mean? Yeah, there were some bad. Uh, don't get me wrong. I've some some bad guys out there. You know what I mean? Um, that went there for for killing people. That was their main goal was to go there because they may have been in a couple of conflicts and never fired around. So this was their time now to go over and have a license to just shoot. You know what I mean? Um, so they let us pass and we drove. And I think it was about. Another 20 minutes, and we turned right onto this really bad dirt track and then up onto the main road. Um, and we turned left, and we went to a place that was um, called Cloverleaf, which is the four big roads that you sometimes see in the States that overlap. You know what I mean? We called it Cloverleaf. And that was a bad area as well. We used to get smashed up there too. But, for, you know, good luck was on the side that, that, that particular day after the bad luck. And we cleared, and we got into, we got into the cob. And we got to the gate, and it was um, triple canopy, I think it was. Um, I think they're an offshot of Blackwater. And it's run by Ugandans, the security. And these guys wouldn't let us in. Steve's expiring in the back of the vehicle. These guys wanted to, I fucking I jumped out. And Liam was going mad. We had clearance to go in, but oh, they wanted our ID, and they weren't going to let us in because they didn't want to, want to do their job. And, I remember one of the this big black Nigerian guy standing there with a um, a big uh, like building his shotgun, like you know, and he cocked the shotgun as I got out of the vehicle. You know, I'm just looking. I'm that's going to get rammed somewhere. You're going to look like a lollipop. You know what I mean? And he wouldn't let us through. And then Liam was kicking off, and they were trying to take photographs of Steve in the back. You know, and I'm pushing this guy back, and you know, so tensions are quite high, and you know, and I just wanted to again get Steve you know, to somewhere they could care for him. Uh, I just wanted to start dropping guys, to be honest. I was infuriated that, you know, it had been cleared, and yet, we, they, anyway, this other guy came <coughs> and he cleared us to go through. I shook hands with the guy. This other guy, just this black guy, just stared me out, and he just got the, you know, and uh, he gave it back and started shouting in, you know, Ugandan or whatever language they speak, and we, we got in, and next thing we got to the to the med centre, and... Uh, they were waiting outside for us. And I remember there was another guy called Steve Gibson, who was also a medic for the company I was working for. And I, the, these two female uh, medics, American medics, came over, and they'd already been told what had happened. And, she's, and one of them said, who's the, who's the medic here? And I said, that, that would be me, ma'am. So what's your name? I says, Colin. She says, can we take Steve? And I said, yes. And then this other guy steps in and he goes, I'll take it from here, Cole. And I just looked at this guy and I said, you're going to take something in a minute if you don't step out of the way, you know what I mean? And I knew Steve, Steve was okay, but he just stepped in to take mm. over and I pushed him back and, you know, Liam got in his, his face and stuff and, you know, Steve wanted to walk in. I'm walking in, Cole, I'm walking in, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I said, you're not walking anywhere, mate. You're there for, I'm fucking walking in, Cole. I'm, I'm, they're not going to see me. And I said, Steve, wind your neck in, mate. You know what I mean? Get on the gurney, get on the bed. You know what I mean? Oh, I want to walk and call. And I said, Steve, you 
shut your face, get on the bed, <laughs> you know. So me and Liam just basically manhandled him and got him on the bed and he wheeled him in and he was he was fighting a little bit. Oh, let me up, let me up. And, uh, you know, so we got him in anyway and there was two surgeons and this guy, Steve, came in again and there must, I don't know, there was about 20 people in there. A lot of people there that shouldn't have been. And... Um, a couple of student uh, medics or medics that were to watch and the, the surgeon says do you mind if these if they watch I said ask Steve and Steve's like yeah that's okay that's okay <laughs> <laughs> so anyway they just stripped him straight down naked like you know and uh, they were just assessing him these girls are assessing him you know what I mean and uh, I felt embarrassed for Steve to be honest I just really did, you know what I mean? And he's like laying there, he goes, yeah, check my foreskin, make sure. <laughs> and he did, he goes, make sure there's no shrapnel in there. Again, that was his sense of humour, you know what I'm saying? And, they, and people are just, these two girls, American <laughs> girls, are just look, looking at him, you know, and one did, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, Steve, why you neck in me? You know what I mean? So these girls were just checking him, and they check everywhere, you know what I mean? They check between his toes, they, 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 they check every orifice, basically, you know what I mean? Because you don't know where something's travelled. Anyway, the Steve guy steps in again and he goes, can you feel that, Steve? I'm like, you, what are you doing, you dickhead? And the doctor just says, you can just leave here now. In fact, everybody that's not been on this, get out. You know what I mean? So it left the two medics, the four or five, maybe six, you know, trainee medics, you know, that had, you know that were there, the two surgeons and I, me and Liam. And a nurse, something like that, and they just went to work on Steve. And the and the doctor says, "Can you tell me what happened? What did you do?" And I I told him, I says, and he goes, he says, "Well done." He goes, "You probably just saved this man's life." I didn't want to hear that. Sure. I didn't want to hear that. You know what I mean? To be honest. Um, and uh, so they just says, "Look, we, we're going to get you to step out. We're going to take care of Steve." You know what I mean? And he says, "We're probably just going to." I said, "His hands off." And I says, "It's just hanging on by skin." And he says, "Don't worry, we'll send that with him." See if it can be reattached. You know what I mean? So they says, we're going to send them to Balad. We have a Navy SEAL team in the area. They're going to be here in about 30 to 40 minutes. So they're on two choppers. They're going to fly them up. You know what I mean? And I went, fuck, that's good. Because, you know, they, this is this is the best taxi, taxi ride you, you're going to get, Steve. You know what I mean? It's just a pity you're probably not going to be lucid enough to enjoy it. You know what I mean? Anyway, we stepped outside. And... Uh, Liam walked off, and he just broke down, mm. started crying. That was his friend, mm. you know what I mean? I didn't really know him, so I just gave, gave him his time and stuff, and I just walked off another direction. And uh, then we were called back in, back and forth, back and forth, uh, to, you know, get news on Steve and stuff. And um, I just remember going sit down in, in a corner, and uh, I just couldn't believe that, that that had happened. You know what I mean? That, from start to finish of that... I was getting smashed. That whole scenario took about 20 minutes. But it seemed like the whole day. Mm. But the traveling, which was only like 45 minutes to 50 minutes, it seemed like that it was all day. Mm. You know what I mean? And because I was preoccupied with getting Steve sorted out, I had no clue where I was, mm -hmm. what time it was, what day it was. You know, everything just disappeared. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I just had tunnel vision, you know, and... Uh, so we met the doctors coming in and out and stuff, and we got reports on Steve, and they'd stabilised him, and they'd, he lost his eye. They weren't going to be able to 
get you know they took as much of the glass out as they could and stuff um they didn't take his eye out but they just you know they did what they could they checked his the avulsion the skin he just i didn't realize he's just been peeled the, the whole way across so his face is just basically just was you know pushed over they cleaned it and washed it and they sent it back on again um his nose was was just hanging is uh, you know his yeah his side of his face everything um and they pat they did a, a great job patching him up and then we heard chuk, 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 and I saw the two black hawks coming down you know what I mean and there's a unit stepped out and this guy blocked some lights he was a big dude you know what I mean and then saw this all these other guys just looking out like this and it was the seal team guys and I was fucking you know what I mean I just forgot about Steve I was like <laughs> just looking at these guys anyway and came over and the doctor says this is Colin this is the medic you know this is Liam that, and he shook hands and he says good skills great job again that's not anything I really wanted to hear but I shook his hand and I said thank you for taking care of him and he says you can walk us up to the chopper stop when I tell you to stop he says uh, and keep low and see you later so we walked up the two girls pushed him up um, Steve again um managed to mumble something to whatever they'd given him Demerol or whatever he did just manage to mumble something that we never got to hear he gave us the finger um, I think it was like see you later and, and did this or something like that and then he put him onto the, the back of the into the, uh, the chopper and we watched it turn into a black spot that was it and then we were taking these two men in black appeared I called them men in black they went in black um, I think they were intel belonging to the group the company we were working for. The one introduced himself as Reese, a big, handsome, dashing, square-jawed, you know, handsome, big dude, um, giant rugby player of a guy, came up, shook hands. Again, great job. And this is when it really started to get on my nerves for some reason, you know. I didn't want to be told a good job. I didn't want that, you know what I mean? I just wanted for Steve to be okay, and I wanted to go back on task I just wanted to go back out you know what I mean anyway we went to the intel room uh, my camera was the only camera that picked everything up Steve's was busted picked up his screaming Liam was not anywhere to be seen Liam and I were separated and taken into two different rooms and then interviewed um, Liam couldn't say nothing obviously he just he was up top he didn't say nothing and there was a guy there called Steve Schultz and he looked like a vulture, and he was the, I think he was the in-country manager at the time. Fucking horrible guy. I wanted to get over the table and just smash his teeth down the back of his neck. Arrogant. And he kept questioning me, questioning me, questioning me. You know, and I says, you've seen the footage. I'm telling you what happened. Yeah, but, and I says, and then Reese just says, I'll tell you what you do, Steve. You just, you've, you're finished, mate. Leave the room. You know what I mean? And And I just was... Anyway, so I give it, and, and uh, Reed Reese says, that's perfect, Colin, that's, you know, as perfect, he says, as a as a, a statement that you, anybody could ever give. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. I've never seen him again. Gone. He says to me, do you want to see the footage? I said, yeah. They played Steve's, um, and it just picked up the, the bang, and then the windscreen cracking, going black, mm -hmm. and that was it. And then him screaming, um, and then it, they showed mine, and I'd developed tunnel vision. I was glued to the screen, and 
it picked up so much more that I didn't see with my eyes because it happened so quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I saw the little guy in the side of the road in slow motion just go pop. Yeah. Seen him disappear. You know what I mean? And it picked up everything. And uh, yeah, that was it. They flew Steve up to Balad. And then they sent him across to, I think it was a few days later, they sent him across to the American hospital in <coughs> um, Dubai. And they didn't allow me and Liam to go back out on task. They kept us in the camp. They moved all our stuff up from Aldelma, which was the camp that we're in, um, from Zubaya up to where we were at the Cobb. And we had uh, three days, four days. All traffic was stopped. All tasks were stopped for two, three weeks, a month maybe. And I'm not too sure. And, um, yeah, I got into this air-conditioned room that was about the size of this. Um, like our accommodation was nothing like it. I had a shower, a TV, I had a mini fridge, you know, um, cokes, everything in it. You know what I mean? Laundry, you know, everything was perfect. And my headaches began. And they just started banging. You know what I mean? And I was eating painkillers, going out of style for the, about the next four days. They invited us that evening to go to the embassy bar. Um, Reese uh, and this woman Caroline, I think her name was, who was an attaché. And they wanted to find out what was going on. And I fucking lost the plot. I didn't want to talk about this stuff. You know what I mean? Everybody knew Stephen Liam. They're all paras. You know, the company, they're all paras. The company was started by two para guys, brothers and SAS. Good skills, mate. Fucking well done. But everybody wanted to know the story. You know what I mean? So I, I was on repeat. I fucking hated leaving the room. I didn't want to leave the room, but I had to eat. You know, and 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 everybody was like so nice. You know what I mean? There was very few guys there that had went through what I what we went through that morning. You know what I mean? And loads of guys wish for it. Oh fuck, I fuck, I hope we get a contact today. And I'm just like, no, you don't. Mm. But I never said that out loud. Oh, you fucking take these guys out. Yeah, we do this and that. And I'm just sitting there going, no, you wouldn't. Because mm. the minute you kill an Iraqi, you're going to jail. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If you're you're going to go to jail and you're not going to get out of there, you know what I mean? Because your rules of engagement changed, you know, as as things progressed. You know what I mean? You couldn't... You basically just had to drive through most of the contacts. That you had. They were just small arms fire. They'd be ping on you and you wouldn't, you wouldn't get out and engage anybody or put rounds down or, you know, start returning fire or something. That very rarely happened. You just drive through it. Um, if you're unfortunate and unlucky enough to get hit with an RPG... He dealt with the situation as it unfolded. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I that <clears throat> I didn't want to go home. Mm. I spent four days in a dark room, eating, drinking coke, uh, eating painkillers, and not wanting to see anybody. Mm-hmm. And now I had never been affected that by that before because I'd been in situations where things just went boom, pop, bang, wop, wallop. You know what I mean? Um, from working on oil rigs to seeing a guy have a Filipino guy have a 40-foot container fall him and push him through a grating like a cheese grater. And I had to go down with a black bag and pull him into that bag to send him home. Mm-hmm. I'd seen stuff, you know what I mean? Um, onshore, offshore, in, in different countries. And uh, so seeing that type of stuff never bothered me. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to bed at night and not lose no sleep. Mm. But this effect started to affect me. Why do you think Steve's was more... I don't know. I don't know. I think I felt guilty... Um, because I'd, I felt I didn't do enough for him. You know, I felt that if I'd had more, better yeah. kit, 
I, I but the, this is this is the thing that you've always told me as well. From that encounter, lots changed mm. with the way that um, people um, triaged on the scene and, and yeah. the, the whole tampon thing you told me yeah, about yeah. as well. All yeah. that stuff changed because of this. Yeah, I, I, I used to carry tampons and sanitary towels and guys used to laugh at me. But I did that because they were great for soaking up blood. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And they were the same um, size as the bullet hole. And usually you could get a tampon in there, you know what I mean, and, and push it in. You always had the little string, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. you'd, you'd leave that out and you'd push it in. And sometimes I would use super glue and just glue the top of it to keep it in there, you know what I mean? But then again, it was in too long toxic shock, you know what I mean? A couple of young girls have died, not knowing how to use them, and they, mm-hmm. they, they sort of ended up, you know, dying and stuff. So I had always right above the wound tampon and I'd leave the, the little string out you know what I mean um, and they would just slid it open and and, and do whatever they needed to do like a, you know that type of stuff or you know you would uh, you know you get bandages that you can smash in there as well mm-hmm. you know what I mean um, you were saying like um, whenever people were asking about what happened mm-hmm. lots of people were interested in, yeah. in your and learning from yeah. you, like the idea of putting the uh, the fluids under the, yeah. the body armor, underneath the back yeah. to compress it instead of having it up high. And yeah, it's like in the, <clears throat> like loads of guys wanted to soak up this information that you. Yeah, uh, I I with. I had loads of guys come to me. Um, the four days that I spent in there, um, I fucking didn't want to know. I, I I was on repeat, and I know the guys didn't mean any harm by it. I had fifteen minutes of fame, and it's not what I wanted. It's not what I wanted to be known for, and it's not what I... I didn't feel great about it. I wasn't like, oh, yeah, fucking, yeah, I did this now, fucking see Steve, you know, you know, did this to Steve and blah, blah, blah. I didn't want that, you know, I wanted to be left alone. I didn't want to talk to nobody. I wanted to go back on task. I wanted to go back out again, and I wanted... And I don't know, um, you know, I don't know, like, any viewers watching this that, you know, that'll end up watching this. Oh, he fucking, you know, sounds like he's in Hollywood. It's not Hollywood, you know what I mean? And I'm not being bravado. This is how I felt, you know what I mean? Um, and I'd never had those feelings before. I was quite cold. I was quite, you know, I didn't, you know, I, 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 not emotional, you know what I mean? I've seen guys killed. I've, I've, I've dealt with my friends being killed in different countries, Mexico and, 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 and other countries, um, you know, Afghan and, and, and uh, you know, um, Sudan and places like this, working on other projects and that. And I've, I've seen loads of dead guys and I've pulled in, in accidents, road traffic accidents, people have busted in two and I've offered to help. You know what I mean? I've seen, I'm a paramedic, you know what I mean? You can't become a paramedic and be, and be queasy at, at blood or somebody smashed up. Mm-hmm. Why be a paramedic, you know what I mean? Not to say that we're special in any way, but I just wasn't <clears throat> emotional. But I don't know what triggered me with that IED that put me down a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. I think I felt... I felt guilty because I didn't have proper medical kit. I didn't have enough fluids to put in Steve. I didn't have the bandages that I needed. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have proper kit. And I felt that he lost his hand because of me. Mm. Even though it, I, he didn't, I felt he lost that because of me. But he ended up losing his arm, not just his hand. He had his arm taken off to here. And I carried guilt for the longest time. Um, I didn't go and see him. I went to see him in uh, Dubai on the way home. They diverted us because usually we would go through Jordan um, sometimes, but they diverted us to Dubai and they made sure that our flights were later so we could go to the hospital and see him. And I got there and his wife was there. Mm. 
and his mum and dad was there. You know what I mean? So I'd spent four days avoiding everybody as best as I could. You know, that guy's knocking on my door. All right, call. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fucking, you know, you know, come and have a coffee with us. You know, and they were genuinely nice guys. Sure. Like you know, they were, you know, they were concerned for my mental health. Like you know, um, they were concerned for how I was feeling. And I started rapidly declining, but I wasn't going to show these guys. And it was the same story. And I fucking, how can I, how can I just keep repeating this over and over and mm. over? And I felt like they were trying to catch me out, but they weren't. Yeah. You know what I mean? You just wanted to genuinely know. Yeah. And I just started to get paranoid thinking these fucking guys are trying to catch me on the lie the same way that the Steve guy did in the interview. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I started to decline. You know, I started to just not want to be around anybody. I didn't eat for about two days. I just ate painkillers and coke, drank coke and slept in, in, in the coldest room possible mm-hmm. with the lights out, I had blinding headaches, you know what I mean? And um, And I'd never felt that before. And it was the it was the weirdest sensation for me to be emotional, you know. Um, and then when I got home, I didn't care about nobody. I didn't want to be around anybody. I want to go back to Iraq. Mm. You know what I mean? So the three weeks, when you go home, before you go home, you get one day downtime, so you can decompress. You might get a sneak a few couple of free you know drinks in your room and get some of the guys over and have a few drinks or something like that and then. Hopefully you don't get drunk enough not to wake up to get your early morning flight. And then guys get to the airport, they get drunk in the airport, they buy and miss the flights. You know what I mean? I didn't drink in Iraq. You know what I mean? I would buy a bottle of Jack Daniels for other people, you know, and then get them to my room and have a bit of crack and just watch these guys enjoy themselves. You know, I didn't drink when I was working. I didn't drink on task. And I never really was a heavy drinker. I got home and I drank every day. I drank a bottle of Jack Daniels every day for three weeks. You know, so for the for the time decompressing for that day to going home, I didn't want to leave. Mm. I didn't. I felt like a coward. Something in me just made me feel like I was leaving as a coward. Um, and then when I got home, I didn't care about nobody. I didn't want to be around anybody. I didn't want to go and see nobody. You know, I went and stayed in a hotel, and I didn't talk to nobody, and I drank every day for three weeks or for the two days prior to going back again and I couldn't wait to go back and then when I got back I had 15 minutes of fame how oh, did you do this Colin how did you do that so then I got asked to train medics by the company would you run medical courses for us because I was an instructor anyway <coughs> would you run medical courses for the would you because when you went into Iraq you know you had to have continuous Training, you weren't getting clinical hours anywhere, you know what I mean, unless something happened to you or, you know, and most camps didn't have a med centre. They had loads of medics, but they didn't have a designated med centre, you know what I mean? So we would meet in the TV room. And yes, they had loads of training kit, and I would meet the training room and I would get my slideshows on and, you know, view viewpoints and would train these guys, I would let them cannulate me with needles. I said, no, fuck, you got to learn to do it because why do it on a rubber hand? People are going to go like this. You know what I mean? You're gonna have to. There's, there's, you're gonna have to do it in a real person. You're gonna have to see what it's like to miss a vein because mm. that that vein's there. It's not gonna move anywhere. Veins move, so you got to skip. And I sat there and I'd have thirty guys cannulating me and have <laughs> fucking pinpoints all over me like each hand. I just let them get on with it. You know what I mean? And I'm like, nope, that hurts you. Didn't you? I don't know, no. You know, and I'd be sitting there like <laughs> just letting these. And I, I was punishing myself for some strange reason because mm. some of them do hurt. I mean, even when I go to the hospital now to get blood taken and they miss the veins. You just, want, you just want to reach over and slap the shit out of them, you know what I mean? You yeah. know. Mm-hmm. So I got a task to train 
and run medical courses. They had a new project coming up, um, which was going to be more down south. Um, uh, and so they were, they, they wanted the medics that were coming in trained a bit better than they were. So I was running continual medical, day medical courses for these guys, cannulations, gunshot wounds, tr you know, trauma, you know, um, amputations. Because I've done four amputations in my lifetime of limbs, finger, foot and fingers and hand. I've done uh, six tracheotomies, you know what I mean? Uh, sorry, crikes. A trache is when you cut down here. Crike is on, the, on your Adam's apple. So I've done six of them in my lifetime. And I've delivered two babies, you know what I mean? Um, and various other stuff. But I started to train these guys, and I felt good again. Because mm. I am a teacher, and I like to teach. Mm -hmm. And then that disappeared. And then I got offered to not be on task anymore, but to run a new medical center that, that they were all in the West Kerner. Um, at a place called Energy City, which is one of the biggest places in 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 in, uh, in Iraq now, I said no, no, not doing it. Put me on a team. I'm, I'm, I want to be on task. Yeah, but you know we could use no. Either fucker put me on a team, or I'm I'm going. I'm fucking leaving the country. I'm just gonna leave the. Oh, jeez, okay, like you know. Mm -hmm. And they offered me good money, and you know they offered me, but I wanted to be. I felt like a coward. I felt if I do this. I'm just going to let teams... Not that I'm super special, but I just felt I was better at doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and I just got to the point then where I just didn't want to be there no more. Mm -hmm. And then I moved and I went to, I went to Nigeria. Mm -hmm. I just left for a while, went to Nigeria and other adventures, you know what I mean? But that... I have no idea why that particular morning um, affected me the way it did. I stopped speaking to Steve... I couldn't speak to him anymore. I went to see him once, twice. I saw him in the hospital in Dubai. And he kept ringing me and ringing me, and I kept avoiding his calls, sending the messages on. Sorry, Stephen, busy at the moment. I'll get back to you as soon as I can, like, you know. Uh, his mum and dad were lovely. I met them. They were just absolutely lovely. And then I think it was about four or five months later, I got a, a phone call from his mum, and they'd put Steve into a hospital, uh, and he started to go mental. Mm. He tried to kill himself with the phone that was on the side of the bed. He wrapped it around his neck and stuff like he wanted to see me. So I went downstairs and I got on the phone and I said, Steve, I'm sorry. You know, I said, I can't face you, mate. He says, okay, Carl, I understand. You know, I understand, mate. You know what I mean? I said, I'm sorry, mate. I fucking feel like he... No, I... Carl, I'd be dead for you. You know what I mean? Don't fucking... Don't ever think that. You know what I mean? Now you owe me life. And I'm like, no, you fucking don't owe me nothing. Mm. Just, you know, and he says, come and see me, come and see me. I said, give me two days. And I went and seen him. And he was lying in the hospital. And he's fucking... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I was... He'd had a metal plate. <laughs> I went to see him and uh, he had a metal plate put on the side of his head and he lost his arm and his eye and they'd rebuilt his nose 
นะฮะ I was top seeing him and then um, stayed on the whole day and met his mom and dad again and uh, I met his girlfriend Sarah his wife had left him took all the money um, that he'd received in payment and uh, she I don't know what happened. She left for a reason. Um, I never asked Steve. Um, then I heard a few rumors, which I'm not going to say afterwards of why she did. <clears throat> that's not my business to to tell anybody. Um, but they split up anyway. And then there was a girl, Sarah, a lovely girl who was there, and she was friends of Steve. And I think they ended up dating, and um, met her, um, his mom and dad again, and never seen him again afterwards. Mm. I couldn't see him. I stopped speaking to him. Yeah. The guilt that I felt was—I've never felt guilt like it. It put me down a rabbit hole. I yeah. started drinking. Um, the day that I got home, I seen him that morning. I stayed the whole day with him. Um, I got the flight. He wanted me. The parents wanted me to stay overnight. I said no. I had other things to do. I got home, and I went and I bought the biggest bottle of Jack Daniels I could find, mm-hmm. and my fucking life went down a rabbit hole yeah. for years. For about five years, I drank myself to death. Attempted suicide twice. Tried to hang myself twice. First time was on a <laughs> at a punch bag, a speedball, a hook on the ceiling, and if I had a gun, I would have had to put it in my mouth. Mm-hmm. But I went out anyway, and I got this. I got this flexi cord, like off a TV earl, and I tied it up. And I put it around my neck, and I jumped, and snapped, <laughs> and I banged my head and knocked myself unconscious. <laughs> and I, I don't know how long it was. I woke up later on, <clears throat> choking. Decided it was not a good idea, and um, had a sore throat for my throat. My voice hasn't been the same since. It's still a wee bit croaky. <clears throat> you said you jumped. Jumped off a yeah, table. It was a on the force, table. Yeah. Yeah. Just see, people, people don't realize when you hang yourself. Okay, you're choking yourself to death. Mm-hmm. When you get hung, you drop. Down, and your neck breaks. Your spinal cord snaps. So sometimes your head comes off. But when most people hang themselves on something, they choke themselves to death. So within ten seconds or so, you know your carotid arteries and your jugular veins are blocked, and you suffer. You go unconscious, but you can't breathe for a few seconds. So you're choking yourself to death. So when you get hung, it's completely different. It's the mm. force of dropping down that six feet or so that kills you. You know. Yeah. So yeah, I just woke up with a sore throat, and my throat's been croaky ever since. And decided that that night wasn't a good time. I just decided that drinking was better, mm-hmm. and I went back to drinking again. And uh, yeah, and then it was another while later. I took uh, some Jack Daniels, and I, took, I think I took about two hundred pills, and um, didn't do nothing for me. I just started vomiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I don't maybe because I had too many drinks in me. Mm-hmm. Started vomiting, and then decided that that wasn't going to work either. Yeah. You know what I mean? So and then uh, I just. I couldn't speak to nobody. I didn't meet anybody that was in my position. So when you try to talk to somebody who, I went to psychologists and psychiatrists and all this type of stuff, and I'm like, yeah, I know how you feel. No, you fucking don't. Mm. How do you know how I feel? You know what I mean? And that when people say that to me, I just couldn't leave. And then I went to a drinks counselor, and he goes, "Did you attempt suicide?" And I go, "Shit!" And he goes, "Why didn't you go through with it?" Mm-hmm. I got up and slapped him in the face. I just banged him and he was just real cheeky. He was just really obnoxious to me and I just looked at him, you know. 
And I, he wasn't trying to help me. He was mocking me. And I got up and I said, have you ever had a really hard smack in the face? And he goes, no, and I gave him one. <laughs> I just fucking slapped him across and I walked out and he sat there and I walked out and I says to the two ladies at the desk, who the fuck is that in there? And I says, that's one cheeky bastard. And she's like, and they knew because they were, I found out later there were several complaints about this guy and they, then they removed him. You know what I mean? So, and then I went to various councils and stuff and uh, nothing was done for me. Um, I didn't feel the benefits of anything that anybody was telling me. I was, every time I went in, I went twice, twice a week. So I was going four times a month. And the lady was lovely, don't get me wrong, Rachel. Never forget her. The loveliest lady, you know, and she never once said to me, I know how you feel. Mm. Her husband was an ex-soldier. He killed himself with PTSD. And she never told me that until I stopped seeing her. But she kept asking me the same questions all the time. Now, in the midst of that, I was having audio and visual hallucinations. And what I was seeing was werewolves. And I've told you this, I. There's a movie called Dog Soldiers. These giant werewolves, you know what I mean? And I would see werewolves almost every night. And I would be sitting quietly you know, maybe having a drink or a coffee. And I would hear the scratching of the nails coming down the hallway. And then I'd be sitting on the couch and the next thing, the head would come around and snarl at me. Or I'd wake up in the night and they'd be standing on the bottom of my bed. And I, I mean, it was like a movie, you know what I mean? And most of my life, I always had a pistol beside my bed or something. I always had a gun in the room, like, you know, um, in case something, the shit had to fun outside. And, you know, because most of your weapons are put in the armories, but most... <clears throat> Camp, you know, bosses were good enough. You can, yeah, keep your pistol. You know what I mean? And you just kept it. And I, mine was always beside me. You know what I mean? Um, so when I got into airsoft, um, it was the only way I could be around guns. And even though they were just the replicas and they're just toys, they are quite lifelike. And I kept my Glock pistol beside my bed. And it was only BB bullets, but it was fully loaded, but it gave me comfort. Mm. It, and that's going to be really real to anybody watching this. Like, you know, it's going to be this guy's a, a nutcase. But it gave me comfort because it was familiarity mm. to me. You know what I mean? And, and I'd have bad dreams. And I remember waking up. <laughs> I remember having a bad dream and waking up and seeing this thing at the bottom of the bed. And I pulled it out and I just emptied this 30 round, whatever it was, at nothing. And the door was peppered because they come out at quite a rapid speed. You know what I mean? And the door was peppered with these small holes. Now, that's <laughs> something else I'm going to have to fix now. But I just pulled it and I just saw what it was and I just pulled it named and squeezed. You know what I mean? See, when you squeezed it, like yeah. what happened to the hallucination? It, it was still there. You know, stayed. it didn't put it, it away went, or nothing. It through it. Yeah. I still have them. I still get them, you know, from time to time. Not as frequently as it used to, but I still get them from time to time. Mm -hmm. Or I'll smell burning. I'll smell something. Um, or I'll hear somebody. I'll, I'll, I'll hear somebody's voice. Um, I don't know who it is, um, but I'll hear somebody's voice and, um, you know, try and find them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I still have it from time to time. Not as much because I've kind of dealt. It's within me. It's not outside me. It's, it's in me. You know what I mean? And... Um, a lot of my friends were not fortunate enough to be able to rationally deal with that, and they've taken their own lives. 
and because I was did it twice and it didn't happen to me, somebody told me that I'm still here for a purpose. Mm. <laughs> you know, that it's not my time to go yet. We've all got a number that's going to be clocked in one day. You know what I mean? This, you know, we're going to go at some point. You know what I'm saying? So, and I just decided that I'm worth something, and now I'm now teaching again. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Even though I've got health problems, health issues, and stuff, I'm still able to function. Whereas people, there's some people who are not. Hmm. You know what I mean? But I don't know why that day put me down a rabbit hole because I'd been through a lot before. Now maybe that was just the icing on the cake. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but the guilt that I felt, and I still feel guilty now, um, and I don't think that guilt's ever going to leave. I know that there's not really much I could have done. It didn't, wouldn't matter what trauma kit I had, you know what I mean? But I felt because I didn't, I wasn't given what I, was, what I needed, mm. I did less than I could have. And I'm, there's loads of medics that I've met over the years that have been in similar position. I've felt the same way, you know. It doesn't, um, not everybody lives, you know what I'm saying? I've done CPR on people and they've died. People die because it's the time to go. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know what, why it affected me that way. And it still does, you know. And that's the first time I've talked about Steve outside me and Si. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, but that's, you know, that's the job that I did. And there's always a repercussion to it. Mm. There's guys who can go through I mean, I've met guys... They could sit beside somebody's decapitated head and have their dinner. But I don't know if that's all bravado. Or does he curl into a fetus, fetal ball when he gets in his room and cry like a baby? I don't know. I mean, you know what I mean? <clears throat> and I was like that. I, you know, had been in so much stuff, you know, stuff over the years that uh, I was empty of emotion. You know what I mean? I just, like in that, when the guy looks at the, the, the mirror, mirror yeah. there's a there's a, a thing with a guy who was invited it's a by called only the dead. Yeah, yeah. there's a guy that was a, a journalist that was invited by jihadis to film them. They promised they wouldn't kill him, and they didn't. And it shows this guy smiling, and at the very end, he's looking in the mirror to himself, and he's a shell. He's empty. You know what I mean? And when I look at myself in the mirror, I don't see me looking back again. This, it's not me. My eyes are black, you know what I'm saying? And that's a reflection of, 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 of how I am now, you know? Um, and uh, I don't think that stuff ever leaves, but you just learn to deal with it a little bit more because you, I, think you, I think you understand that you have worth, you know, that you, that you, you do have worth for mm-hmm. something. Now, I could talk to other people about my experience, but it's not necessarily going to help them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It might trigger them. Mm-hmm. It's a chance you take when you, you know, I was invited to talk to, uh, in a few places and, um, you know, uh, one guy killed himself shortly afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I, I did that because I triggered, I triggered him. And I did that because if he hadn't spoken to me, he, I'd be inclined to disagree with you. You know I what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, to be honest with you. Yeah. So I, because yeah. if you take if you take you out of the equation there, and I've I've lost multiple people to right. suicide, I understand mm. the guilt. Mm. Don't understand what you've been through, but I understand the guilt of yeah. losing someone to suicide. Take you out of the equation there, you don't know. Mm. 
So yeah. I won't turn on you and say, no, it's not your fault. I'll turn on you and say, you don't know. Mm. But in my head it is. Mm. In your head, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because if I hadn't spoken to him, whether it would be somebody else that might have done, but I did that because he spoke to me. If he hadn't have spoken to me, he, would he still be here? We don't know. So that's a double-sided coin, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, a, and a, a double-edged sword. I, I think a safer way to, to, to refer to it is I'm linked to that yeah. rather than I did that. But even, like, who knows if the guy would have killed himself. Yeah. You know, take Colin out of the picture. We mm. just, you, we, that's what, that's you can't why, play the game. That's you can't why, play yeah, the but he, you know, that's he, did it, saying, he did it after speaking to me. Yeah, but two days later, yeah. you know. He, yeah, he, so he, he still maybe went on a journey in those two days yeah. and at the end of it. We, I mean, we all, I think we all carry something, you mm. know what I mean? You don't have to necessarily be in the military to have trauma. <clears> you know what I'm saying? We, my life was shit growing up as a kid, mm -hmm. you know. I don't know if you always, I don't know if you, you might have had great parents. I don't know, but my life was not good. You know what I mean? And um, there's a lot of stuff still follows me around now, mm -hmm. which I make sure that, you know, my son Connor's 32, you know what I mean? And I made sure that he didn't have the life that I had. Mm -hmm. He lives in Dublin now and he's, he's doing his own stuff and he's in the military. But I made sure that he wasn't treated the way that I was. You know what I mean? And people, you know, my family, I'm like, oh, you weren't treated that bad. They went in my shoes at the time it was happening. Sure. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So, um, so yeah, you know, that was like one incident um, going back to that IED, and I don't know why mm. that made me feel that way. Yeah. Because as I said, I mean, I've been yeah. on this earth a long time <clears throat> and worked onshore oil rigs, seismic vessels, oil platforms onshore in really hostile countries um, and saw and dealt with loads and loads of stuff. Contacts, you know, um, assisting other people. And I've seen a lot of stuff, you know what I mean? And there's guys out there seen far more than I have, you know. But from I can go from my experiences. I don't know why mm -hmm. that did that to me. And I, and I carry the guilt of that. And I just can't, I just couldn't speak to Steve, Steve again. Yeah. I couldn't look him in the face, you know. I couldn't look at the eye that he lost, you know. He had a plate in his head. His head was like Frankenstein and staples all the way down in his plate and he's all right. I mean, and I was, oh, mate, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And then seeing his, his arm gone and he was like, uh, my hand call, I'm going to get him to taxidermy it for me and one, I'm going to turn it into a toilet roll holder <laughs> and I'm going to fucking, that's going to be in my bathroom. <laughs> he wanted his hand to be preserved yeah, yeah, and yeah. put on a plaque so he could have a toilet, lump of toilet roll in it for people to use the toilet. Yeah, That's his sense of humour. Yeah, And I said, Steve, because, ah, fuck, all he goes, I've got another one. <laughs> he never complained. He's like, he had over six operations and he never complained once mm. about, oh, woe is me. Sure. You know yeah. what I mean? And he, he carried that sense of humor on all the way through stuff mm -hmm. and in the most outrageous of times. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And uh, it's like I say, I, I'd only met Steve two weeks prior Yeah. to go into mm -hmm. fill in the medical gap where, where their medic wouldn't come back again. Yeah. Would you extend? And I never extended again after that. Mm. I learned a lesson that day. Go home. You know what I mean? Because if you can get through your, if you can get through your 12 weeks, 10, 12 weeks, with no dramas, you know, the shit is going to hit the fan. You know, you're going to take on somebody else's crap. Yeah. 
mm. by extended, and not that I would wish anything to happen to them, don't get me wrong, of course. but I never ever put myself again yeah. where I would volunteer to stay. I worked away 15 years and was home for two Christmases because mm -hmm. all I saw was dollar signs mm -hmm. and I wanted a better life. Yeah. And that was it. And I never extended after that again. In fact, I continued to work in Iraq until I took a break in 2013 and went to Nigeria, um, to a papa in Nigeria, to a quite an, a more easygoing job, running a medical center and training a team um, and working closely with other guards. I did that for a year. I went back into Iraq for another year and then I left Iraq permanently and went to Sudan to work on um, gold, gold fields. I should have just stayed in Iraq. Um, yeah, Colin, I just wanted to ask you, we've talked about this a few times, but I think it'd be interesting for people to hear. Um, after uh, everything, sitting now at the age of 43. Um, you or me? <laughs> you. <laughs> 59. Are you really 59? Yeah. yeah. Unreal. I know. Um, blessed and blessed for easy. Such a baby face. Um, sitting now, what are you... Um, how would you describe this phrase? I guess. What are you left with? What are you carrying? Is anything feeling like it's missing? Normality. I don't. I don't think I'm ever going to be the same. I can't remember what being normal is like, and I don't know how to explain being normal because what's normal these days? But I remember as a kid, I was free. Felt like really free. Um, had no, no, you know, when you grow up, you have no cares, no worries. You know, we don't. Time doesn't mean anything. You know, um, until your parents tell you to be in at a certain time. Uh, <clears throat> okay, let's take it a different way. Yeah. If you had, where would you be now if you had not joined the military? Where do you think you would be? I now? would be teaching scuba diving still. Right. I would be there. I would die in Belize. I would have died on that island. Um, I've never... I've been to some amazing places in my lifetime. Belize, San Pedro, and Burgers Key was where I was allowed to be me, where I had no dramas, I had no worries. Um, I had nobody telling me I wasn't worth anything, I wouldn't be anything, I wouldn't achieve anything. Um, the freedom I got when I was underwater and just hearing the bubbles go past your ears. I don't think there's a sound like that every, anywhere. You know, skydiving, you just hear the wind rushing down. That's freedom. That's an adrenaline rush that you, I just think people should experience once in a scuba diving. I think it's something that people should experience once in a lifetime. Being able to walk in paradise with no shoes on, no shirt, a pair of shorts, and a smile like a Cheshire cat, knowing that you wake up to that every day. It's not free because obviously you work to live there, but the freedom that you get or that I got there, I've never, ever had that in my life since. So is there no way back to that life? No, I don't think so. I think that... Um, Again, that was a once-in-a-lifetime experience that can't be replicated. And I've been to lo loads of other places. I've scuba-dived in loads of phenomenally beautiful countries. 
But that was the first time that I was allowed to live with no rules, no regulations, you know, with my cousin David, who gave me the opportunity to go there. I had never experienced anything like that in my life. I'm very visual colors. I'm a very color-oriented person. Um, I don't know if that's an, an autistic thing, but I've been like that since I was a kid. Um, but I love colors, and the colors that I saw in Belize was just unreal. It opened my my life to something I never thought was possible and was always jealous of seeing other people live in movies or in advertisements. The bounty advertisement years ago <laughs> that we used to have, that's what <coughs> San Pedro Burgerski was like. Wow. Looking up and you're just seeing 30-foot you know, coconut trees and just walking through what they call it, seagrass, which is very thick, coarse grass. Mm. Kind of hurts your feet. Having that experience, because um, I ground myself a lot, I take my shoes off when I'm out and just sit under a tree and feel the earth and the grass and everything, and just on my feet. I mm-hmm. think it's a really good way of grounding yourself, you know, because when we expire, we're going to go, we're going to go back to nature. You know, we're going to go in the ground, um, mm-hmm. we're going to go back to nature, whatever way that you look at it. But having that experience of no time limits, not being, not being asked to go in, not getting beat when you go in, you know what I mean? Not being shouted at when you go in, you know, not living in a place that was full of rules and regulations, but just having complete freedom on yourself, you know, and I've, I never, I've never had that feeling mm. since. Um, I think maybe the second conversation that we had where we talked about Belize a lot, mm. I'd written down on the page, uh, Belize is his Garden of Eden. Yes. And in the story of the Garden of Eden, they eat the fruit of, what is it, the knowledge, knowledge of good and evil, evil knowledge, yeah. and they can no longer go back. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of people say that in some ways that's also like growing up. You leave yeah. the, the childhood. like. But for you, stepping into the military was like that bite of the fruit that yeah. once you bit into that, you you can't go back. No. It's not even yeah. possible to go back. No, you can't. Um, and, and you know, that is something that, that's a very biblical. I like that. I like that analogy. That's that's really good. I've never heard it explained like that before. And I've had this conversation with the few remaining friends that I that I have left. Um and I've never actually quite heard it like that. Um, and they all feel the same way. You know, America, a lot of people frown in America, but America's a great country. There's a lot of freedom there, you know. And it is really taken for granted because it is free. Mm. You know what I mean? The way that things are now, probably not as much. But, you know, you pretty much live to do what you want over there. You know, you work, you live, you work and you live and you have a great life. Here it's different. You know what I mean? There's too many rules and regulations here. You know, there's, there's too many things forced on us here, you know. Can you give me an example? Like oh. what, like of how America is more free than here? Um, people are just nicer. You know what I mean? There's much more to do. Um, it's it's changing now, obviously, with the way that the climate is and the way that wokeness is coming in and you can't see this and you can't see that and you can't, you know, do the blah, blah, blah. But when I lived there and I was growing up there, um, you know, you didn't have anybody knocking on your door because you put something on Facebook. Yeah, you know, you didn't have that type of stuff. Yes, there was always racism, you know, but that was on all sides. You know what I mean? It wasn't wasn't just white people saying names. It was, you know, you went into somebody else's neighborhood, you felt the wrath of, you know, not being there. You know, I just think the freedom is was just much easier because um, you weren't scared to say how you felt. You know what I mean? Whereas now, we, I'm not, I don't care about, I, I'll say whatever I want. I'm not going to live under somebody's thumb and say, you can't say this or you can't say that. I'll never live like that. 
but I'm I'm cautious in what I say mm -hmm. to a point, but I'm never going to let anybody tell me how to live my life. America growing up there to me was, there's just more freedom. It just felt better. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The places are bigger. You had more space to run, you know? And like I said before, a parent, a family doesn't raise a child. It's the neighborhood because there's always a parent on watch when the children are out playing and each household took that responsibility to do that. So I could have done it today, so I could have done it tomorrow, you could have done it the day after, and you could have done it the day after that. So you sit and you watch the, the kids play and have a good time. Mm -hmm. So the neighborhood is raising your family. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So everybody's connected. <clears throat> you know, you don't get that here. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares about your children running across the road. Nobody cares anymore, you know what I mean? And it was just a better time um, for me, personally, uh, whereas now as I'm older, and things are just changing more rapidly. There's just not the same freedom. There's not that feeling of it. So if you can't go back to the past, mm. if you can't go back to the garden, mm. where do you go? I just take one day at a time. I don't plan anything anymore. You know what I mean? I never say, oh, I'm going to do this next week. Oh, I'm going to do that. I'd never do that anymore. Mm. I get through each day because I'm still struggling mentally. Mm. You know what I mean? And it is a bit of a challenge at times. I don't sleep and... Not feeling sorry for myself or, you know, but this is this is just me, like, in a nutshell. Um, I just take one day at a time. And I'm grateful for each day, mm -hmm. you know. I, I don't really pray, like, as like in going to church, but I pray that if I wake up the next day, I can be a better version of myself than the day before. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that's how I live. So what does better look like for I you? I have no idea. I have no idea what better is, to be honest. I just try not to be... The person I was before, um, because I, you know, I, I, I can be short-tempered with people, you know, I can be um, stubborn, you know what I mean, and that's just the way that people are. I just try not to repeat those moments the next day. I just try to be a better person, mm -hmm. you know what I mean. So, I always try to meet somebody new. I try to start a conversation with somebody, and I always learn new words, mm -hmm. whereas I never really did that before. You know what I mean? I might just hear a word, somebody says something, and then I go and look it up. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I do. I just try to learn something new. You know what I mean? And now that I'm teaching again, now that I've got my own my own teaching center and things like that, you know, I, I, I it gives me enormous pleasure to watch people learn mm. and smile that they've thought that they couldn't do something, but you, you know that they can, mm -hmm. and you break that barrier down for them. And at the end of the day, you know, thank you for that. That's, you know, and that makes me happy. You know what I mean? Whereas if someone, someone doesn't say, oh, we'll call, yeah, 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 see you tomorrow. And then say, I really thank you. I learned something. I feel I'm failing them. You know what I mean? So yeah. I'm just blessed for each day. I never plan anything. If I wake up, you know, I, I'll, I have a plan for the next day. Mm hmm but I don't wake up to plan that day. I just know, that, well, this is what I'm going to do if I wake up tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to teach this subject. Mm -hmm. So if I see the next morning and I feel good, then I'll go and teach that subject. Mm -hmm. But I don't say, oh, I'll do this next week. Mm -hmm. I'm just grateful for each day that I wake up. Yeah, You know what I mean? And that's just really how I live now. Tell me about your teaching, your teaching center, your um, presence. I'd um, love to know. Um, close protection bodyguards. Um, I worked uh, in that. Once I got out of the military, I worked for that very in Iraq, but um, that was like also a paramedic. So I'm teaching that now. So I'm teaching, my company's called, I'm going to push this if you don't mind. Please. 
It's called Talent Security Training, NI. How do you spell that? Talent, T-A-L-O-N. Mm-hmm. And basically what it is, it's a shield. I'll touch, it's, it's pretty cool, actually. It's a little shield with two bodyguards on it, gold on the outside, black and silver on the inside, and an eagle's claw holding the shield, Talon. But how I got that, how I got Talon, I had a very good friend um, 20, 25 years ago. His name was Mike Talon. And him and I went through a lot of life together. And Mike took his life um, about 10 years ago. Just went off and just, you know... Had a bullet, basically. Um, didn't didn't really tell anybody what was going on. Um, th- I didn't know that he was suffering. We and you don't with people who suffer because they just laugh and smile. The reason they laugh and smile is is because they don't want to see anybody going through what they're going through. So they want don't want to project, you know, their karma on other people. So they laugh and smile, hide everything. Robin Williams was a great was a great example, you know, of of what what he was going through. And so Mike and I had planned years and years ago that if we got to a certain point in our lives we would open a security company we didn't have a name for it and I just thought Mike wow. so Talon I think Talon was a real catchy name I was always jealous of his last name you know <laughs> yeah. Gibson Talon Gibson Talon what we do you do you know what I mean so um, yeah and, and it's uh, Talon so and and uh, I thought very deeply about that because there's a big connection to it so that is my company and I now teach close protection through the SIA, Security Industry Authority. Um, I teach through in UK, which is a uh, call of cases, uh, n- uh, you know, uh, United Kingdom. And I'm a registered uh, instructor with both of those. So I teach close protection, uh, close protection top-ups. I teach all the SIA door, door stuff. Um, I teach first aid, pediatric first aid, food hygiene, you name it. I'm, I'm kind of teaching at the moment, you know what I mean? So, and things are going really well. Good man. I've got my own... Uh, registered training center in uh, Portadown, where I live, Class. and things are going really, really well. And I just actually had a phone call last week of a young first-time mother. Um, he said, oh, are you uh, are you the guy that owns Talon? And I said, yes. Uh, Do you teach first aid? I said, yeah. What's up? And she goes, Do you teach anything for children? You know, to learn about. And I says, yeah, pediatric first aid. She goes, yeah, that's it. And I says, what's wrong? She goes, well, I was breastfeeding and my baby started choking. Uh, and I got really, really scared. And I said, well, children do choke, you know what I mean? And I said, babies are greedy. You know what I mean? They are greedy, you know what I mean? Unless you, unless you remove them, they're going to chew all day. Yeah, they're going to yeah, you know, yeah. feed all day, you know what I mean? And I said, it's pretty much like a puppy, basically, you know. I said, you have to pull the food away. <coughs> oh, um, there's a few of us, you know. And I said, the only day I'm free is Sunday. Could you could you come on Sunday? Yeah, I said, how many? She goes, the six of us. Wow. And I said, all new mother. Yeah, you know, there's, you know, I, I'm my baby's three months old, four months old, and my friends are slightly older. And I said, yeah, show no problem. How much will he charge us? And I, and I said, nothing. Mm. What? And I said, nothing. I, I said, it's 70, 80 pounds for the course. But why won't you charge us? And I said, well, that 70, 80 pounds will buy you diapers mm. or it will buy you, buy you baby food. That 70 pounds will allow you to feed your child for a while. I says, if I can't give a little bit back, I make enough money from the courses I do. I'm not. I'm not going to rob people, you know. I'm not. I'm not sh- lacking money. You know what I mean. So, and I don't believe that people should just be greedy just to make it. You know. And I'm at a position where I can help somebody. And if it's n- new mothers, we were all babies once. We all choked at one point. You know what I mean. And because I heard the f- the fear in her voice that she might lose that child, that kind of struck a little 
a little cord, you know what I mean? I said, come along. I said, come, come down, bring your babies. Oh, I said, bring your babies, put them on the floor. Mm-hmm. Do whatever. They can be in the classroom with you, you know what I mean? You can, you, if you need to, you know, breastfeed, there's, there's two toilets, you know, you can use them or you can sit whatever you want. I'll leave the room. She goes, no, 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 you're okay. Don't worry about it. So they brought the babies, ran the course for them. I didn't charge them. All they paid for was a certification, mm-hmm. which was, I think, was like £10. And I, and I just felt happy doing that. What is it about teaching and seeing that penny drop moment in people that gives you great joy? I was told I would never be anything. I was told I would never achieve anything in school. And my my attention span in school was two seconds because I hated being there. And I, I'm bright, don't get me wrong. I was always bright in school. I just didn't study. I just couldn't be bothered. I just wanted to leave, you know what I mean? Because you you just... When I grew up, I grew up in... Like, I'm a 60s baby, but I grew up in the 80s. And there was lots of trouble here. Bobby Sands and all this type of thing. And people were dividing and people were hurting each other. And friends and neighbours were falling out because, you know, of religion and things like that. And I grew up in that era. And I had a really, really hard time because I come from, you know, a mixed family. And um, and I was told it would be nothing. And for the longest time in my life, I believed that. I believed that it would be nothing. I believed I would never get anywhere. I believed I would never achieve anything. And I proved those people wrong. And I set out to prove those people wrong. Um, I knew it could be something because I'm not stupid. I just didn't know what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And now that when people say that to me, I say never, never sell yourself short for nobody. Mm. Don't ever let anybody tell you that you're not worth anything. Don't ever let anybody tell you you can't do something or be something because you can. Elon Musk didn't go to school. He's a billionaire. You know what I mean? All these Richard Branson, you know, all these people who are billionaires, you know, didn't have great educations. You know what I mean? So it made me happy that I'm in a position now that I can help somebody and watch them smile when they know it's not difficult to do what they want to do. And all it is is a bit of patience because not everybody learns at the same pace. When I'm teaching, within 10 minutes in the classroom, you're going to know who the smartest people are and you're going to learn who the slowest people are. I teach at the slowest person's pace. I don't go by the smart people because they're going to pass. So I will move the, the slower people more closer to me, mm-hmm. to focus on them. And I'll explain this to the smarter people. Look, I'm just going to set you back a little bit, like bring these people in. That's no problem. And then you'll find as classrooms go on, the smarter people get comfortable and then start helping the people who are a bit slower, which is fantastic. Because I've taught in classes in the past where the smarter people didn't give a shit about nobody and just were cared about themselves. You know what I mean? I'm still going to teach them because they paid for a course. I know I don't have to spend that much time with them because they're smart, but I teach at the slowest person's pace because mm. you have to make them feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so for these young mothers who came in, you know, they, they all got pregnant before leaving school and didn't really finish school. So they just thought of themselves as nothing. So when they did this, it's only six hours. Actually turned into a bit longer, to be honest, um, about eight hours or so. But they had fun, and they were smiling, and they were laughing, and they were breastfeeding. And they did it in front of me, and they didn't care, and I didn't, didn't bother me, you know what I mean? I did the same thing when I was a kid, you know? I, I don't really think I ever left my mum alone until I was 13. Joking. <laughs> <laughs> Joking. But, um, no, it's just... It's fantastic to see people smile. Mm. And I, like, I hold what's inside me so I don't project it on other people because I hide a lot of stuff, you know what I mean? And I know what it's like when other people do that 
hurt people attract hurt people. Mm. You'll always find a hurt person with another hurt person. Mm. You know, and that's 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 a disaster waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because you project everything onto each other and mm. it can never be fixed, you know. I think like a first argument in a relationship, you never come back from it. You're never, never the same again. You know what I mean? So if I can make somebody smile and make them feel for that few hours that they've achieved something that not only will help them understand that children do choke, and yes, it can be scary, but there's also a way to fix it and take care of it and feel better about it and be more confident, <clears throat> and that makes me happy. Yeah. Would you include, if I asked you, um, like, and this is part of your question, I'm not going to take it for you, but um, you're just a bit more specific than this. Um, if I asked you what has helped you the most, would you include that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, in what's helped you? Yeah, teaching. Um, I, I've, from, when David brought me to Belize, um, I went to all the, Basic for you know the basic uh, you know scuba diving the, to advanced scuba diving to night diving to in water rescue to underwater photography you know underwater I think the only certificate I didn't really get was underwater knife fighting because I didn't really have one but I have loads of little certificates like for macro photography and night dives and night dive leader and like and all this type of stuff deep diving you know and he gave me an opportunity to learn. You know, because I didn't want to like really learn anything again with, with the experience I had in school. And David just sent me down one day and told me to wind my neck and pin my ears back and shut them up and listen. You know what I mean? I always say that to people, the same things that he said to me. And he taught me and he sat and he was, David's small redhead, really crazy, mad, angry little Irish guy, but he was so patient with me. You know what I mean? And he showed me that I could do this. And I always looked at stuff and said, no, I can't ask. Archimedes principle, displacement of water. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Never knew what that was. And then he explained it to me about a penny in a boat, why they displace water and why, they, why the penny doesn't. And then it was uh, Boyle's law and Dalton's law and all this physics stuff with scuba diving. And I was like, you know, and it was easy. <clears throat> Once I started reading, it was easy. Mm-hmm. And I was just putting mental blocks, mental obstacles in front of myself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and I, I just let them climb higher and higher. And I told myself I couldn't get over them. You know what I mean? And, and I, all I had to do was walk around them. Wow. Didn't have to climb them. Just walk around them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So kind of piggybacking on uh size question there, what kind of advice could you give to someone who's experiencing hallucinations in a way? Well, that's a really good, uh, that's a good question. Um, I haven't had that, been asked that before, mm-hmm. to be honest. You know what I mean? Um, I just think that people who are suffering with hallucinations, whether it's visual or audio hallucinations, it's horrific, you know, because there's somebody there that's not there. Now, that person can be a good person or bad, but my cousin, Andrew, God bless him, Andrew was an ex-Marine, and he died in his sleep um, in 2013 um, on St. Patrick's night. His his, uh, stomach burst, and he bled to death. He had ulcers and stuff, and he was drunk, and, you know, he didn't feel any pain, thank God. And Andrew suffered with audio and visual visual hallucinations. And he had the devil on one shoulder and Damocles on the other. Who's Damocles? It's a Greek. Um, you ever heard of the sword of Damocles? Nope. Like a freedom fighter. Okay. You know, like a, that type of thing. You know, he fought evil. Unreal. Something like that. But I, 
I'd never heard of Damocles before, mm. and Andrew, you'd know, probably know this better than I would say, you know what I mean? Not but he, better than you, but... Well, you're more biblical <laughs> than I am, you know what I mean, and more spiritual, you know what I'm saying, so, and, you know, you are quite a smart, smart guy, because you pull stuff out that I've not not heard of before, you know what I mean, and I go back and I read that, read about that, you know, so you learn something from somebody every day. Um, and it's always got to be a friend that is giving you things, that, you know, not, or you need to go and look at this, but just saying something that makes you think, you know. And Andrew dealt with, Andrew dealt with this for years, years and years. He wouldn't open the door to me at times. Andrew, I'm kicking the door in. I kicked his door in many times to get him to make sure that, that mm. he was still alive. You know what I mean? And he's sitting struggling in the corner, sitting crying, struggling. And his parents didn't even know this. And his brothers didn't even know this. And I, I knew it and I would see this all the time. And I says to Andrew one day, what's wrong, Andrew? And he'd always cock his ear like this. And one of them would be speaking to him. And the devil was usually well, what he described as this person who said that he was the devil was temptation for Andrew. And Andrew would always drink when this entity was speaking to him. Then Andrew would get conflicted when he was drinking because he would cry because this other person would be telling him not to do that. It was bad. It drove him mad. Drove him mad. So mm -hmm. each person's experience of hallucinations, visual or audio, you know, it's pretty hard in the beginning to deal with it because you don't know what's right, what's upside down, what planet you're on, what day it is, because it takes over you, you know. I learned mine the hard way through drinking and just hitting the lowest point in my life, which was attempted suicide. And when I had a wake-up call, when the second time it didn't happen, I heard David in my ear telling me to get up and push on. So the worst vice in life is advice to people. But what I could say is get help. Hmm. Talk about it. Hmm. You don't have to go to a psychiatrist. You have at least two good friends that will always be there for you. But you don't think that you can count on anybody and you don't think that people hmm. want to listen. <laughs> can waste my time. People don't do that no more because mental health is a massive thing these days. And mental health is more recognized. Hmm. And there's more people sitting there. There's helplines. I called helplines. You know, I, I f preferred to speak to strangers <clears throat> than the people I knew because I thought they'd use that against me. Ah, you, you know, I thought they would use it against me. You know what I mean? And it doesn't happen overnight. Nothing, there's no quick fix. There's no quick answer. I'm talking, that IED was 2011, it's 2023 now, and I still have episodes with that. Not just that, because there's a lot that's happened, but I still deal with those things. And they're not going to go away, but I've learned to accept the fact that they're there, that I can deal with it and I can ignore it sometimes but it always raises its ugly head all I can say to, to people is is talk about it hmm. find somebody you can talk to you know what I mean um, and if you can't talk to your friends or your family ring a helpline ring Samaritans you know there's helplines that, that, that 
people on the other end will listen to you. Mm. And if you need help, they'll get you help. They'll take you to a hospital. They'll take you to some facility that can help you, whether it's with medication, whether it's through therapy, there's help. Mm -hmm. But the only person that can help yourself is you mm. at the end of the day. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, What do you think talking does? For me, I learned to talk basically when I met Yusai in Airsoft. I never really spoke about anything to anybody before. I never wanted people to know, oh, you're, you're a tough guy, you've done this and you've done that, and you're macho, like, you know what I mean? It's not that I didn't want that ego because it wasn't an ego with me. It's hard to talk to people who've never been in your shoes. Unless, I speak to my friends that I've worked with in, in close protection and Iraq and Afghanistan, these places, almost on a daily basis now. The only person I don't, I don't didn't speak to was Steve, because I just carried too much of that with me. But I have other friends that have been in the military 15, 20, 25. The guy I spoke to today, rang me today, Dave, is one of my ATLs. He's opened, it, opened, opened up his own security company in the UK, and, you know, he wants me to do some training from... It's you just have to want to be helped. You just have to want it, you know, because it's not going to work unless you, unless you take the first step. What brought you to that point where you decided I want? Was there a time period where you just didn't want help, and all of a sudden something happened? I didn't think go, there was anything wrong with me. Right. I didn't think it. This is going to sound really stupid, okay? And I saw this on TV one time. I would sit and watch the TV when it wasn't turned on. And I would see stuff on the, and I would hear stuff on the radio. You know what I mean? And I'd be listening intently to this stuff or I'd just think the TV was on. And that sounds stupid to some people, you know? But when your mind is telling you something, your body pays attention. You know what I mean? I mean unless you've been in that position, you can't really fully understand that, you know? And it's like when you see something that's not there, your mind is telling you it's there and you're going to be either scared or you're not. You're going to have fight or flight. You can't deal with it rationally. Hmm. There's no rational answer to that at all. You, it's there for me. When I would see the werewolves, I'd get frightened sometimes. And, and I used to see them I used to see them around Black Skull. I'd be playing airsoft and next thing I, I would see something just walk across and I would be taken really back by it. You know what I mean? In the daylight. This is stuff that just happens at nighttime, mm. but it doesn't. You know what I mean? And uh, I don't know. It's you just. <clears throat> I don't know. Sorry, you know. It's was there was there a point? Sorry, sorry just one quick before you. Uh, what was it about Sai that made you want to talk? Or Sai is a nice. Sai is one of the most easiest going people I've met. He's not judgmental. You know what I mean? And. When he came to me one day and says, oh, you know, God has asked me to come and speak to you. I didn't feel offended by that. I didn't go, fucking nutcase. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. You know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm quite a spiritual person, you know, and I've become even more. Um, but Sai was just easygoing. And when he came down to me that day, you know, I was like, okay. And we started talking. And I think almost immediately we became friends. Mm. You know what I mean? And then he started coming to the site and, you know, started hanging out a little bit. And, you know, but he never, ever pushed anything on me. 
You never says, oh, come to church and, you know, you need to find God. It never did any of that. When I had other people do that to me, and that just kind of put me off, you know. Mm. But Sai was, like, Sai is, and not because he's sitting here. Sai is one of my, my best friends. And I don't really have what I would say best friends. I have acquaintances. But we've known each other since 2015, uh, 2017. I have no concept I think of 2017 anymore, so when, they opened up, maybe. when they opened up Black School. When you started? And... Uh, so Sai would come on a regular basis and they met Ali and then when Sai had children and brought the children along. That's right. And we've been friends ever since. Um, you know, but he Sai is not judgmental and if I say something I know it's not gonna go any further than him. Because when I talk about things, my things are private <clears> and I'm <throat> very careful who I speak to. Not because I'm scared of being judged, because I'm worried about people not understanding and saying, Oh, you're full of crap. You know what I mean? Because they oh fucking you know, that's just all in your mind. I had, when I was living in France, this, this guy, Tom, that we were staying with, was supposed to be ex-old school SAS from Borneo and these places. And he used to come out with all these stories that we just found out later wasn't wasn't true. But he, oh, PTSD is all in your mind. And that was the way him and his wife was, you know what I mean? And I never told him I had PTSD. And he would start talking to us one day, and, you know, and uh, uh, people with PTSD, it's all bullshit, it's all crap, it's all this. And I said, well... You being SAS, Tom, you know what I mean? You, you're mind over matter, mate. Because I have friends in the SAS or ex-ass guys, and they suffer. Some of them suffer, you know what I mean? Because they were, you know, they went through soldiers before that. They, a, lot of them, a lot of the special forces guys that I knew were orphans. Hmm. You know what I mean? Or grew up in really, really bad families, you know what I mean? And their way out for them back in them days was to join the military or go to jail for, for fighting. So, you know, it's... Uh, Six or one half a dozen or the other, you know what I mean. So, but uh, Sai was very kind, um, and he was easy to talk to, mm-hmm. and he was the first person that I basically opened up to. Sai's quite an emotional person. <laughs> I don't mean that to put Sai in the spot, but he he is quite an emotional person, and he understands what emotion is. Mm-hmm. He's quite empathetic, um, empathic. You know what I mean. Uh, and Sai can display his own emotions without feeling less of a man you know what I mean and it takes a strong person to do that mm-hmm. you know what I mean is to be able to maybe get teary eyed or to like today I don't really experience emotion very much but certain things like today bring back bad memories mm-hmm. you know what I mean and having a little bit of a teary eye kind of helps sometimes because mm-hmm. you're not holding it in yeah. you know what I mean even though I tried to do that but Sai is very kind he, he's when he speaks he's very explanatory he does not have measures with him. He'll tell you the, the way that it is. We had a good talk coming up on the train today. Mm-hmm. And we're, you know, kind of going through similar things um, that we're trying to figure out. But Sai's always also had a disruptive childhood. And I identified with that. You know, so you always meet mm-hmm. somebody that has something in common with you. Might not be necessarily be military-based, but we all share some experience of something that's very life, very lifelike, you know what I mean? So it was easy, for, it was easy with Sai. And plus, you know, we liked airsoft, you know, and we used to shoot against each other and have a bit of fun and stuff like that, you know, so it was a... Uh, oh, I'm the you got me in the teeth. Very, oh, very, it's a very good friendship, you know what I mean? It's symbiotic, you know what I'm saying? In the so. car, <laughs> in the car, hiding in the car. I'm like, I forgot to put my grill down. Come here, right in the teeth. There you Around go. the corner. That's fantastic, yeah. I thought I'll be nice because I could get him here and not yeah. that'll hurt him. So I'll wait, I'll wait a bit, and he's bam, straight in the teeth. Um, snooze you lose, snooze you lose, brother. Yeah. Eleven down, 
every time going forward. <laughs> like um, another thing I want to say as well <coughs> is the way that I am in my life now. If you don't bring a certain type of happiness to my life, hit the road, Jack. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in any flack anymore. I used to be surrounded by people like me. You know what I mean? Lived, I used to live in the past a lot. I used to remember things that were great and things that weren't great. You know what I mean? And you relive the glory days over and over and over. And you never let yourself get out of that bubble. So I don't associate myself with that anymore. You know what I mean? And if you can't bring a, a good, happy day to my life, don't. I'm not going to be bothered with you. I'm not. You know, I'm not going to project my luggage onto you, and I don't want you to do. <coughs> excuse me, the same to me, because I'm just not prepared to live like that no more. Because it puts you in a rabbit hole mm. that sometimes you get down, and 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 Alice in Wonderland isn't con- going to come to come and get you. You know what I mean? You're just going to hit a dead end, and you're going to go down that spiral staircase again. Mm. Bleak. You know what I mean? So, size a good influence. You know, I know that size on the other end of the phone. If I need to speak to him, and vice versa, you know what I'm saying. So, and I'm not a judgmental person, and I'll listen to people now, and I understand that people are having hard times, and I can recognise somebody who's masking their emotional feelings to make other people happy. It's something you pick up on quite quite quickly, you know. So, it has a good influence. You know what I mean. So, so would you say? One of the best things that somebody could do who was going through what you were going through is to find community, to find brothers, to find sisters to talk to. I don't think or... I don't think it's that easy for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's good if they can do that. It's good if they can if they can they have to reach out themselves. Most people sit back to to wait for people to find them in my experience. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, if somebody cares about me, somebody's gonna notice that I'm in a bad place. And they're going to pick up on that, and they're going to say, "What's wrong, Carl?" But it never happened. Mm. So I was waiting for for something that was never coming. So that's why when I hit the rock bottom, and and tried suicide, um, I knew that it was down to me mm. to reach out for help, and yeah. I didn't want to because I'm a man, and I am a man. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not an alpha male, but I am I'm quite a masculine male. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, I'm always going to be that way. But you have to reach out yourself. Mm. You have to take that first step of opening the door, knocking on the door and walking inside. You know what I mean? If there's, always remember that if there's an obstacle in front of you, you can walk around the obstacle. You don't have to climb it. Because, mm. you know, sometimes it's like one of those, you know, stairmaster climbers that you get on and you just, you're just like walking and, walk and getting nowhere. You know what I mean? Whereas there's a way around things. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go through it or over it. There's a way around it. Mm-hmm. And reaching out and asking for help is the first step. But you have to want that help. And that's how it starts. Mm. Yeah. This is really, it's really good. good. I feel like we're kind of slowly the plane's landing if there's anything you guys that's, that's, yeah. want to... Do you have anything, Daniel? Uh, not protected. Like, uh, actually... Um... What kind of, uh, well, what kind of suggestion could you give for someone who's uh, doesn't really know how to? You've said it yourself, like properly express themselves and all that. How would, what kind of advice could you give to someone who's trying to look after someone else in a way, trying to be there for someone? Like, is there anything else they can do? Okay, looking after somebody else takes a heavy toll on you. Mm. Okay, and it can cause detrimental damage. 
to you if you're doing that mm-hmm. because you become a sponge. You want to help that person. You know what I mean? And you fall into this trap of doing your best every day to help that person and then your own mental health starts to decline uh, and then you ignore that because it's your friend and you want to help your friend but meanwhile you're deteriorating you know what I mean and you can only do so much yeah you're not trained to do that mm-hmm. wanted to help your friend is natural it's a natural response because you don't want to see people suffer especially somebody that you feel close to again you can only advise them to get help for themselves because you have to watch yourself at the end of the day. You know what I mean? We yeah. fall into the trap yeah. of, you know, <clears throat> taking this responsibility on that you're not prepared for and you're not trained for. And it's, it's, a, it's a slippery slope that once you get on that, yeah. you know, it, it's very, very difficult to come back from. You know uh, what I mean? It's like I said, I don't, I don't like giving advice. Mm-hmm. I'll talk to people, I'll share my experience, but yeah. I, I refrain from giving advice. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because a lot of people don't want it. Then a lot of people get offended. Well, you think that you know, and, and that causes a, a roller coaster effect. Yeah. So, and do your best by helping them to seek, for them to seek help and accompany them there if you need to. Go with them. Make sure they get there safely. Wait yeah. for them if they're in therapy, you know what I mean? And, and come home with them and, and, and ask them about their experience. Ask them, do they want to talk about it? But remember, once you're on that merry-go-round, it's pretty hard to get off. Yeah. You know? I would say two bits of advice that I was given years ago. One was never um, never work harder than the person you're trying to help. Oh, my God. Right? Because that leads to burnout. Yeah. And then, yeah. And the second would be um, you can't lead anybody where you haven't been yourself. Yes. So if you're still struggling with stuff similar, then it's hard to, you know, the blind need the blind kind of a thing, yeah. you know? Um, I think the best thing you could ever do is just listen mm-hmm. because yeah. you don't have to have the answers. Half yeah. the time they just want to get stuff out of their yeah. of their head. They just want to say stuff out. And a lot of times they say stuff and go, you know, I don't even believe that. Mm. I don't even believe that, but I just need to say that out loud. Yeah. So it's not about having the answers for people. It's no. not about giving advice, you say. It's yeah. just about listening. Yeah, some talk. people just need you to listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? And listen, sometimes listening for people is the hardest thing. Yeah. You know, because they'll sit like a nodding dog in the back of a car <laughs> and agree with everything you say while the head's going like this. And most people don't care. Yeah. They just want to... Most people pretend that, they, that they're interested in what you're saying. When they, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And then you go like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. And that's how you know somebody's not interested. Yeah. So, yeah, you know what I mean? Great sign. That's, yeah, that's... Two things that I would mm. say is definitely, you know, definitely hundred percent. If if your heart is with somebody, then that that's a hundred percent right yeah. there. If if you're not interested, if you don't actually care, then don't mm-hmm. don't yeah. step into that ring. Yeah, you know. But if you love somebody and you want, you're like, I just feel like I'm meant to be there for you. Do you yeah. want to get a coffee? That that's that's the battle. Right. It's there. amazing thing to ask somebody, "How are you doing today?" Mm. Everybody I meet, hey, how's your day going? I meet, sit with a stranger. Hey, how you doing, bud? How you doing, ma'am? Yeah, yeah, How are you feeling today? And then they go, well, you know, this happened to him. A dog's teeth were pulled out. And, and I just say, okay, yeah. And they, that person wants to talk. Hmm. And I'll sit and I'll listen to them. My God, that's terrible. And I genuinely mean that when, when I say that. I'm not mocking them. You know what I mean? And it's nice to spend five or ten minutes of your day asking somebody else how they're doing because you don't know what they're going through. Hmm. You have no clue. And I think 
I'm more aware of this today than I was 10 years ago. To just to say something, hey, how you doing today? How's your day going? Mm. What's happening? Makes a huge difference. <laughs> something know? we talk about for your close friends yeah. is you have to ask, how are you three times? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and each each yeah. one is just peeling back a layer. Yeah. It's like an onion. Yeah. You know, you're gonna okay. some some things are gonna make you cry. Yeah. Uh, when you pull it like an onion apart, you get tears sometimes, and sometimes people's yeah. gonna tell you something that's gonna make you cry mm-hmm. because you feel you, if you're a good person and you care about like sizes, you love that person, you care. It's, it's gonna hurt you, mm. and that's when you become an emotional sponge, mm. and that's a slippery slope mm-hmm. because you 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 generally want to help. And then your heartstrings are pulled and tugged and everything, and you become a sponge. And it's more and more. And then all of a sudden, one day you sit there and you, you're sighing, and you, you know, and then you feel, oh, I don't really, really want to go through this today. And then you feel letting that person down because you can't deal with it anymore. Meanwhile, you're suffering. Hmm. It's a slippery slope. Yeah. You know, people in my position or people in positions like this of their, themselves seek help. Take that first step, knock on the door, ask for help. It's not, it's not that hard, but it is, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. This might seem like a very, very strange place to end. Cursed be the ground for our sake, both thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for us. For out of the ground we are taken, for dust we are, and to the dust we shall return. Why is that your favorite quote? That's one of my favorite movies of all time. And uh, the Book of Eli, Book of Eli, you know, as hyped up as it is, I like action. I, I am just one of those action junkies. Denzel Washington has always been one of my favorite actors, yep. always been one. He's, he's, he's an incredible guy. If I could, you asked me a question one day, if I could sit with somebody that he's not, he's not expired, obviously. But other than the answer I gave you last time, I'd love to talk to him hmm. because he's, He's one of those guys that is just genuinely nice and he never says anything bad about anybody and all the interviews and Morgan Freeman's another one as well. He's just such a good guy, you know what I mean? And yeah, some of his movies are corny, but I like those movies. But that to me, when I heard that, <laughs> I've got a friend, Harry, and uh, I quoted that to him one day and then he what he quoted me was, um, what was it? Uh, I said the book of Eli, and he said uh, the book of uh, the, the the life of Brian. <laughs> you know what I mean. So he came back with one. You know, he so I came up with this here, and I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. You know what I mean. Um, and he says uh, so. He came back with the, the life of Brian. You know what I mean. And he started quoting all these quotes from the life of Brian, <laughs> which just for some reason had me in fits. <laughs> but I don't know. That kind of just struck me or something because, mm. you know, um, they say that we're born from the dirt. And we'll return to the dirt when when we die, you know what I mean? And that's that's going to be your forever sleep. That's going to be your forever place, you know what I mean? And I have so many friends sleeping there, but that, I don't know, that just kind of hit me. Mm. So, great movie and a good quote. And plus it's from the Bible yeah, as well. So, it goes on a lot more in the Bible. That's just adapted from it. But that's actually in the Bible. So, yeah. but it's yeah, a good one. Yeah, sure. Roshka, do it. Hellas. All right. Um, if you can go back to uh, in a time machine to an 18-year-old version of yourself, what would you say? I'd give him a slap. I would give him a good slap. Um, 
and I would use what my cousin David said, sit down, shut your mouth, and pin your ears back, because you don't know everything at 18. You know what I mean? Um, you just go, most people go through a stage in their life where they just think that they're absolutely invincible, and they know everything, and they don't care about nothing. You know what I mean? Um, and I was that, that, that kind of person before I went to the military. When I got to the military, I just saw a different life. I saw a better version of myself. You know what I mean? So, you know, we, we all we all grow up differently. But um, there's not very much I would change in my life, to be honest. Um, I don't really have many regrets. Um, at 18, I don't know. Uh, I wasn't a know-it-all. I didn't think I was better than anybody. But... I think I would have applied myself a bit more. You know, I think I would have learned a bit more rather than wait until I was older because I wasted a lot of time. Um, yeah, I wasted, I, I've wasted a lot of time doing things that I just shouldn't have been doing. You know what I mean? And if I could change the grown-up part, you know, I would have changed a little bit to better myself just to be a better person back then mm. because I grew as I got older <clears throat> you know what I mean and I realised because I didn't know my worth back then because I was told that I just was just a hothead you know what I mean um, back then there were, it was different times but I just yeah I would just pin my ears back and wind my neck in and just listen a lot more rather than yeah yeah I know that yeah yeah I know that you know what I mean so I could change that I would change that so right. Colin, yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Really, really no appreciate worries. it. Appreciate no worries, it. buddy. Thanks, Thank man. you for having me back. Daniel, a, thanks for making it all happen. It's definitely it's been an experience. It's nice to be able to talk about this stuff, you know what I mean? Because it's not anything I talk about. So, But it's nice to have people who sit and you know want to listen. So hopefully the people who listen to this, I just hope that I touch somebody and help them. Mm. And if that happens, I'm happy. So... Because life is worth living, you know. And don't wait to live it till you're older. Live it while you're young and make the most of it. Because one day you're going to wake up and you're going to be my age. You're going to be 59. And you're just going to really want to wish that you did more when you were younger. But I've had a great life and yeah. we've done some amazing things and met some amazing people. And I'm, you know, quite grateful for that. So, yeah. <laughs> so. That's a wrap. <laughs>